Hello, everybody. Apologies if the uh, room was scheduled for the wrong date. Sometimes that happens when I uh, schedule the call-in session. I think this time it probably was because I've changed uh, time zones. And so the uh, generic sort of date, sort of uh, whatever is uh, different. So, But anyway, hey, Richard. Hey, Michael, how you doing? How was your uh, earlier conversation today? Um, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say it was good. I don't think that really captures how it went. Um, I'm just someone who's, like, for better or worse, preternaturally inclined to just be willing to have discussions with almost anybody within reason. So, I mean, obviously, I'm pretty well aware of that particular individual and his uh, whole sort of approach to interpersonal uh, relations. But um, I don't know. I think uh, it's still kind of worth doing, at least in my perspective, because I don't know. uh, Not every conversation that you have needs to be totally pleasant or smooth sailing. And if there's friction or conflict or if one of the interlocutors is uh, sort of obnoxious and flinging personal insults or whatever, you know, it's good to have that as something that you can contend with as rationally as possible. So that's what I at least uh, try to do. And you never know who's listening to these things either. I mean, not that my ultimate ambition is always necessarily to uh, convince or persuade someone to change their mind on something. I think sometimes conversation is just worthwhile for its own sake. But, um, you know, I like to think that there were some people listening who could at least grasp what, a, what it is I was trying to say and how it compared to the uh, you know, logical and intellectual consistency of what the others were trying to say. I know I, I did see you popped in for like three minutes and then couldn't take it anymore, which I uh, can't blame you for at all. Uh, I was busy. I popped in and out a few times. I was just, uh, the only thing I heard was the rape thing. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, if, imagine if Russia, you know, if the U.S. is raping Russia and Russia is a woman who's going to fight off the U.S. And, you know, it was a stupid thing. And then, uh, and then, um, I saw that like Hinkle, like, uh, tweeted this man, Michael Tracy thinks a woman, you know, defending against rape is an act of aggression or something like that. Yeah, somehow they twisted it into me being a misogynist. <laughs> yeah, it was very, um, you know, it was very disappointing. It was like a very, dis- how were, like, were the people polite and reasonable? Like, No, not at all. Not I at mean, all. Y'all like yeah, I mean, polite. <laughs> like, it's the opposite. You know, they're attacking, you know, they attack me on personal grounds and, you know, critique my physique as though like I'm a fashion model <laughs> or something and say that my um, my thought process is inhibited by how much lard the you know thoughts in my head have to go through in order to like reach my mouth for me to vocalize them. You say you've had too much soy and you need to death Yeah, death called me a soy forth. boy, called me whatever, a liar, I think he said at the end. Um, at one point he had like a um, he went on sort of a, an interlude and started, you know, singing my praises, which was interesting because he's saying, you know, he's just trying to flatter me, I guess, and saying how bold and courageous I've been on other stuff that I've done, you know, I guess journalistically over the course of the Ukraine war. But he was saying that all in service of making the further statement that that's why it was so disappointing for me to be so, I guess, you know, traitorous and 
uh, operating in such bad faith when it comes to this particular sort of nomenclatural point, which I didn't think it was that controversial. Or at least in theory, you wouldn't think it would be that controversial, but it really is because I've had the same argument ad nauseum with people who are pro-Ukraine, right? I mean, they'll say that it's totally abominable for, to characterize like the policy of sending, for example, I don't know, heavy artillery or Abrams tanks or Bradley fighting vehicles into a war zone as a pro-war policy measure because although those armaments are being dumped into an active war zone and will be used specifically to facilitate and expand the warfare of the war zone, it's really meant to bring a stop to the war because the idea is enabling Ukraine to win the war is the ultimate purpose. Therefore, you could say that the pro that, that the warfare initiatives being employed pursuant to achieving that end are actually anti-war, which is just like this hilarious inversion of logic that really stems from, I think, a wariness on the part of people who are in favor of this pro-intervention policy in Ukraine, largely, uh, you know, who t- largely concentrated, although not exclusively among liberals, view it as uncouth or think it's sort of unbecoming to be actively pro-war, at least in terms of how they describe their own position. Like only a troglodyte or only like a barbarian would you know, be pro-war, right? Or, you know, like a, or like a hardcore conservative Republican in 2003. Those are only the people that are pro-war. Me, I'm actually in favor of intensifying and expanding the warfare for high-minded, benign reasons in that I'm actually anti-war. That's why I want the grenade launchers to be shipped as quickly as possible into, you know, the Zaporizhia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, so I'm accustomed to that argument. And they make, and they also use the, I mean, the pro-Ukraine people have also used this incredibly stupid and lame-brained analogy about the woman fending off the rapist. And they would say, what? You're saying that it's somehow pro-war to want to send the victims of an invasion who are just seeking to fend off their aggressor, the weapons by which they can fend off the aggressor? What? That's just like saying a woman on the street who is accosted and about to be raped is somehow you know, unjustified or is unacceptably pro-violence if she violently fends off her potential rapist. So like, that's the caliber of analogy that they're um, capable of, apparently. And uh, interestingly enough, that's also the caliber of analogy that the um, other side, so to say, meaning these kind of pro-Russia war partisans uh, are capable of. And I think like what unites them is that, you know, when you're in a mindset of partisanship for one particular warring party, um, and you're an avowed, as these guys were on the chat, um, supporter of the Russian military campaign, and you know you're also trying to present yourself as a reasonable, acceptable person in like an American political context. That leads to inevitably just to like endless, tedious, and incoherent sort of word games and unresolved sort of like logical conundrums because you know war kind of is like almost fundamentally irrational irrational so if you've staked out your position that you're going to be a partisan defender of one particular warring party 
then I think it almost seems inevitable that that's going to uh, compel you to take like incoherent positions. And did they defend their, uh, did, uh, did yeah. you talk to Samira? Did she engage with you? Or did they engage on like, you know, when they, like, the, when they talk about this is Satan and like this is Satan and, you know. <laughs> no. And so, I mean, the impetus for this was that um, that girl Samira asked me, uh, you know, they messaged me privately and invited me to do a debate on Twitter. So you didn't, you didn't quiz them on Satan and how they know Satan, you know, you know, what his preferred uh, Well, Samira was just supposed to be sort of like a moderator. She didn't really participate much. It was almost exclusively uh, Hinkle and then this other guy, Brian Berletic, came in, who I think, you know, some people in this chat probably like, because I heard him cited at times. I mean, I I don't know. I'm not going to cast aspersion on the guy personally, but I don't find his uh, whole presentation really compelling at all. Um. Yeah, uh, well, it got to the one point where I brought, I mean, I brought up, because he was, uh, it's funny, I mean, I know this is going to sound a bit obnoxious and smug, okay, but so be it. I really wish more people were required to just take logic 101 before they enter into the public sphere and engage in any debate, because there are just like these very basic fallacies that they get, I think, unknowingly stuck in all the time that if you had just studied logic, like formally or, you know, read up on or were instructed in the sort of foundational tenets of what it means to reason logically and consistently, they maybe they would recognize better. Um, but a lot of people just don't never do that, which, you know, is uh, unfortunate. But... Um, so one of those fallacies is, if ever you know, I try to invoke like a parallel or an analogy to any sort of prior war to illustrate like a principle or a concept in relation to the Ukraine war, their immediate claim is that I'm saying like, for example, Russia's military campaign in Ukraine is quote the same as you know the U.S. war in Vietnam or the Soviet Union war in World War Two. Or whatever else they think, like to invoke commonalities in certain sort of narrow contexts relating to different events is to say overarchingly that the two events that you're bringing up are quote the same, and I just hear that all the time. It's um, you know one of these weird uh, logical inconsistencies or fallacies that if you spend enough time debating with people online, as I probably unfortunately do, <laughs> you just hear them over and over again. Um, but so I said that although I'm not saying these, uh, these uh, different or disparate wars and conflicts are the same, here's what I will make a direct comparison in relation to, which is that Hinkle's statement, which I told him, I'm not sure if you meant this like slightly tongue-in-cheek or if you were totally serious. Um, because it's hard to really tell, given the shtick that some people have in terms of like, you know, sometimes they're semi-serious, particularly on Twitter. Um, but assuming that it's sincere, because he gave every indication that it was sincere, and you actually believe, as you declared, that Russia isn't just fighting, quote, the West or U uh, Ukraine or the U.S. It's fighting absolute evil. That's the term he used. And this is like the last battle for humanity. Then what I will compare you to directly are the messianic pro-war preachers 
who would give these deranged sermons in 2003, 4 and onward, invoking this like clash of civilizations rhetoric where the absolute evil at that point was obviously you know, radical Islamic terrorism or something or the Ba'ath Party in Iraq and making a pro-argument in on behalf of George W. Bush invading Iraq because that weird apocalyptic sermon-type rhetoric that Hinkle invoked is very much reminiscent to my mind of what I associate with like a Pastor John Hagee or a Jerry Falwell or a Pat Robertson. You know, in, a, in another life, I actually did my, I mentioned this, mentioned this to you, uh, I think yesterday, Richard, but I did like one of my two sort of college theses on the Christian right in the Bush era and with, you know, and, and in part on how they proffered sort of like a pro-war argument with like biblical justification for uh, the Iraq war. And it's like you could almost see it being, see what Hinkle uttered in defense of Russia's war effort being uttered verbatim uh, in terms of this absolute evil concept that uh, these preachers would have invoked it's back in the day. So, yeah, I have to bring it up. What is it? Because the U.S. has gay marriage and Russia doesn't have gay marriage. Like this is the end times and you have to defeat... Is that, is that even religious? What is what is this? I don't know. I, I don't think they've. I don't think it's really well thought out because, I mean, he's also. I think he says he's a communist of some sort, or I'm not yeah, sure exactly. Mega, I've heard him say he's a mega communist. Mega. Right. So I mean, does has he read no, Marx and Engels on I, I the, the, the family know. unit? No, I'm not sure. He believes in God, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, well, yeah. That's why I wanted to ask you know Sabira if he said you asked her, but no, I guess I guess you guys didn't get to. Didn't get into the theology. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of people just hate it. Like they don't like the culture of America in the West, and it clearly colors their. Uh, or, but know, it I seems like I'm, it seems like Hinkle has benefited from the culture of the U.S. I mean, he's in Hollywood. He's was in some sort of some aspect of the show, of show business. I don't even know exactly, but it seems really. like he didn't previously have these like supposedly principled critiques of the. Depravity of American or Western like culture. Yeah, he's an actor of some kind. I'm not 100 percent sure. I mean, I haven't done thorough research on him because I'm not that interested in this. Um, but I think he was in some acting or acting adjacent field. I have, have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's like approximately right. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, he's the <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, so was it beneficial? Did you learn something? No, not really. I mean, I learned. I, I learned like what it's what it means to keep one's cool, I guess, when you're being pilloried, which is good in a, maybe a, a tangential sense. Like, in that, I didn't learn something direct. I just learned, like, how I can comport myself <laughs> in one of these discussions. And just, just, just for clarity, I mean, the, people think that I'm sometimes sort of fixating on um, wordage or, like, I'm just sort of citing the dictionary and sort of being pedantic. I actually don't think that at all. I actually think, you know, one of the... Orwell is way oversighted now, but everybody actually should read the, you know, the foundational essay, Politics in the English Language. I don't know if you've ever read it, um, but that was the first essay that they gave to the incoming interns of the Nation magazine when I was there, you know, 12 years ago. And it's a good, and they do it for good reason, which is because he makes the, I think, absolutely true point that clarity of language or precision in language is actually connected to conceptual clarity. It's connected to 
not just the words themselves, but the concepts that the words refer to. So it's not all in all cases just strictly pedantic. Sometimes it is, but not in all cases, and I don't think in this case, to point out that if you're trying to make the argument that it's actually anti-war to support a warring party's military effort, then, you know, showing how that's an extremely dubious and unsupportable claim is not just about quibbling, you know, frivolously about the wording. It's actually gets to the very heart of the sort of conceptual matter. So anyway. Uh, Richard, what do you make of this anti-war rally controversy if you, as, uh, insofar as you've followed it? Uh, I, don't mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think these people are the best, you know, necessarily representatives of the uh, anti-war effort. Um, a lot of them are, you know, indeed, pro-Russia. I mean, they want Russia to win. I mean, I, I do think it is what you're saying. Is I think you think it is a little pedantic uh, in the sense that, like, like, why is anyone saying they're anti-war, right? Because, like, ever, no one says they're pro-war. H.R. McMaster, right, doesn't say he's uh, uh, pro-war, um, right? They say, we got to get Ukraine, we got to get Ukraine to win. Um, and these people are saying the same thing with Russia. And, like, somebody from a, a pacifist perspective could say, no, just I oppose anybody doing anything, right? And that could also... Uh, that could also be an anti. That could be also be a pro peace position, but nobody says their position is anti war, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a perspective, right? They call it an anti war rally, uh, and they are, you know, a lot of them are for for the Russian position. So, you know, it'll be fun to watch. I don't think it's a you know message that has uh, a lot of sort of is going to make you a lot of allies. I mean, in, in the United States, it's probably it's bad optics, and you know, I don't know really what it's going to accomplish. It's probably counterproductive for people who don't want the U.S. to be supporting Ukraine right now. Right, and if the whole point is to rally support for the supposed anti-war cause and the optics actually militate against your the ability of these people to do that, then, you know, it goes beyond optics. It actually defeats the entire purpose. I mean, the, one, the thing that I want was most compelled to... The thing that most compelled me to even make a comment on this at all because I actually, you know, approached certain people associated with it in private first, you know, starting two weeks ago or so, just, you know, raising some of these points. Um, I mean, I think it's just mind-bogglingly humiliating that they would elevate this person, Tara Reid, who's just, again, one of the most, actually, she's, I have to hand it to her, she actually is savvy, you know, kind of perverse way. Um, but all the same, she's a, just a con artist. And she manipulates her way into these, you know, she's like uh, uh, Zelig, who I think I've mentioned on earlier colleagues in the Woody Allen documentary, where she's like always kind of glomming herself onto these disparate world events somehow now because of the profile that she was allowed, uh, enabled to craft for herself around her, um, you know, rape allegation of against Joe Biden, which seems to have fallen by the wayside. I don't see like a whole lot of... Uh, Furious attempts to corroborate well, before that. that she, she accused Biden of this? Um, she was nobody with a public profile. Oh, I mean, she, is this, like, was that in the congressional? It was somewhere in like the. It was somewhere in the Capitol, right? It was like within the hall, within. Congress. Well, she. Can, I mean, I did a whole. People can Google if they want. I did a whole long thing on this for the Spectator in 2020. I mean, she claimed that in 1993, Joe Biden cornered her in a corridor on a on a work day, uh-huh. on a public corridor in the Senate building. Uh huh. 
with, you know, colleagues and staff walking back and forth all the time, 24-7 on a work day. All of a sudden, Joe Biden, for the first and only time in his life that anybody's ever aware of or that anybody has ever alleged, at 53 years old, I think, decided to rape Tara Reid in broad daylight. And, you know, and, she, and Tara Reid made no mention of it anywhere, publicly, uh, anyway, or even privately, I think, as far as can be sort of discerned, until 2020, when at the tail end of the Democratic primaries that year, there was this last-ditch push by certain sort of dead-ender Bernie Sanders supporters who didn't re- you know, realize that the race was essentially over, delegate-wise, to say, okay, we need a Hail Mary, we need something that's actually just going to force Biden out of the race. And so these you know, media types um, elevated Tara Reid, who had just been on, had been on Twitter. If you look at her Twitter history, she would just like tweet all caps, sort of like tirades at just prominent figures, just as like a weird sort of obsessive that tends to do, but they, you know, got her, they kind of uh, manufactured this new story, which she only started claiming in, um, I think it was the end of March of 2020, that Biden had raped her, even though she said, uh, you know, months before that Biden had not raped her. I mean, she explicitly denied what she then would go on to say happened. And she was supposedly this domestic violence uh, professional who uh, testified as a um, expert witness in court cases in Monterey County, California. Oh, and by the way, uh, fast forward, a number of sentences of the people that she helped get thrown in prison had to actually be revised because it turns out that she fabricated her credentials as an expert witness, which is actually hugely well, significant because it taints the whole proceedings. Like a psychologist or something and she would say that she would testify that the men were rapists. Well, 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 well that was her. Well, job. she would test. She testifies as a. She would testify as a supposed domestic violence expert or advocate because she had gone through it herself. I mean, she's accused. Like I think I tallied it up in that article, but I think it's at least like four men, including her father, ex-husband, one of her ex-boyfriends, and Joe Biden, and maybe one. I think one other that I'm forgetting now. All of abusing her, you know, physically or emotionally or whatever. I mean, it's just a, it's just a, a mess. And, you know, I would have no, I mean, I covered it at the time because I thought it was being poorly covered. I would have no reason at all to revisit it, but they're elevating this person as like a representative, a public facing representative of what they claim is the anti-war movement in 2023. It's like just beyond absurd. Um, and she's not the only one. She was actually, you know, writing for, uh, RT, the American operation of RT, uh, prior to February 24th of last year, um, until the day of the invasion, which is when RT, RT's American operation got uh, shuttered. So she lost her, uh, her, her gig there. Um, but you know, she did, she has like these weird medium posts where she's fantasizing about Putin sexually and saying how, uh, caring he is for children and animals and things. Like she actually says that. So I don't know. I mean, Really, I mean, do you have, do these people who are organizing this rally, and we'll open it up because I know people want to comment on this and then people were asking me to do the call on um, because they have uh, thoughts. But like, why is it <laughs> if you actually had a genuine uh, desire to advance a putatively anti-war cause in the United States, why would you out of your way to make public, as public faces of that cause, like some of the most 
like just legitimately crazed people in public life. Um, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, this isn't a matter of some eccentrics or oddballs showing up to a public rally somewhere and waving a sign, which happens inevitably at every public rally, right? I mean, that's just what it means to have a protest. You're going to have weirdos show up. Now, this is like, this gets to the, like, operating premise of the event itself. Um, you know, and they have... Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that everybody who's participating is pro-Russia. I don't think that's true, for one. Um, and, you know, I think certain people who are participating actually would more accurately represent what I think any sort of rational person would understand to be a pro-war message. So I don't, I don't mean to tarnish everybody who's associated with it. But, I mean, even just by validating the critique validating the attack line, rather, that people who are anti-war actually just secretly support Russia or love Putin or getting paid by the Russian government, which, you know, I get told about 10 billion times a day. And most of the time, as with me, those attacks are scurrilous, meaning they're not true in that, like, I don't have some deep-seated reverence for the Kremlin that I'm just trying to conceal from people and um, falsely sort of portray as these supposedly anti-war arguments that I've made. Um, nor am I paid by the Russian state, never have been. I mean, if uh, you know, you know if Vladimir with a Moscow postal code gave $5 to my Substack once, I have no idea if that happened or not. It's possible, but as far as I'm aware, <laughs> nobody, uh, I've never received any money from the Russian state. But what these organizers are doing is actually validating those attack lines, which are ordinarily scurrilous, but in this case happen to be factually accurate in that there are core public faces who are avowed explicit partisans of the Russian state's war effort. And there also are people who have a direct you know, financial relationship now with the media and propaganda apparatus of the Russian government. So like, if you're vindicating those arguments... Um, I don't know. If I was a bit more paranoid, I might actually wonder whether this was an op to discredit the anti-war cause such as it exists in the United States. Um, I don't think I, I, won't, I won't go that far because I don't have any evidence for it. And I also think it's probably more plausible that they're just really the people who put this thing together are really just that oblivious and dumb and probably, you know, how, how much attention you I shouldn't say dumb. Get? But, Is this going to get enough attention to discredit the uh anti-war like will this be covered on like cnn or how big is msnbc how big is it gonna be um i think it'll get some coverage i think it'll be overwhelmingly negative coverage and you know they're yeah. giving a gift to the people who would to the to the journalists and whoever who would give it negative coverage by actually you know gift wrapping those negative uh, attack lines as as happening happening to be a, uh factually accurate here i don't know but i think you'll see a, a bit of coverage i don't know um It'd be interesting. I'm in I'm in Munich myself right now, so I'm not going to be a, there in person to cover it. I don't know if I would have gone anyway, but I think my time is probably better spent going to the Munich Security Conference. And I mean, if you have uh, friends that anyone were thinking about going to this, I think it's probably a bad idea. I mean, unless you want like the FBI, like you know, start, unless you want the federal government to start paying close attention to you, uh, I don't think it's the best idea to go. Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, ill-advised to go. I mean, it could be worth checking out, or even if you want to cover it as a journalist or just as an observer. I think yeah, you can, I mean, you can walk up, you can, I mean, it's a rally, anyone can show up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
probably not. Probably not the best idea. Maybe they'll storm the Capitol. Yeah, maybe they'll storm the storm the Capitol to prevent the next what Ukraine vote. I don't know. They just like want to hang Mike Pence all of a sudden. <laughs> just find Mike. That's what it becomes a tradition. Just find yeah. Mike Pence. And hang that would him. be a fun tradition, actually. Just hang Mike Pence in effigy uh, every couple of years. Uh, the um, what? Well, do you know what's going on with the Ukraine funding? By the way, I just uh, I saw something about Biden was going to ask for some more money. Really? Uh, yeah. I'd be surprised if Biden was asking for more money. I thought I, I, thought right I saw now. you tweet it. The, the $10 billion are putting together Republicans. So oh, well, no. I mean, it wasn't that Biden is imminently asking for more money. Because remember, they passed the largest funding package yet by far in late December, which was you know rushed through in the lame duck session with the idea that it would last through uh, at least like the mid to late summer. So they wouldn't have to, you know, deal with the faction of Republicans in the House who might be opposed to Ukraine funding. They could just, you know, glide through for the next several months on uh, what, what they had passed under the last, uh, the last Congress. Um, the thing that I posted was, um, and I saw uh, your, your buddy uh, Philippe uh, endorsed my take on this. So, um, you know, there's a, there was a, uh, a Heritage Foundation pa- uh, paper, policy paper that was published last month, you know, didn't really cause much of a stir because why would it? Who reads policy papers? Well, the people who do read it are the staff, staffs of uh, congressional Republicans, um, especially when it's the Heritage Foundation, which has, you know, been the most influential think tank for the D.C. Republican Party since, um, you know, the late 70s and definitely since Reagan took power in 81. But either way, uh, and so uh, it was written by this former deputy national security advisor under uh, Trump, Victoria Coates, is her name. And basically the paper is addressed at the new class of Republicans who, who now you know, comprise the majority in the House on how they should think about or handle the Ukraine issue when it comes up. And the idea was, you know, you can sort of posture I'm summarizing here, but you can, they can, these Republicans can sort of posture as being adversarial toward Biden by demanding that he per, provide a plan or give like strategic clarity to his next request for funding. Otherwise, Republicans should stand firm. Um, but, you know, once Biden gives the plan, then what they, the Republicans should do next is to see whether Biden is like truly committed to victory in Ukraine. It, like no more half measures and you know, victory is doubly necessary because, of course, and this is how they sort of, you know, uh, shore up the Republican support, because victory in Ukraine against Putin, meaning to not just enable Ukraine to triumph, triumph militarily, but to cripple Putin's ability to wage any further warfare. So actually to weaken the Russian state, as, you know, actually, as Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, said was the aim of the U.S. policy last um, April. Um, but she says, Victoria Coates says that, look, victory in Ukraine, Ukraine is more vital than ever because of the direct bearing it has on, on uh, Taiwan and Russia. Um, and so yeah, that's, that's the go-to tactic to rile up Republican support because there's, even among Republicans who claim that they're leery about U.S. quote aid in Ukraine, they can probably be convinced in about two seconds to take any anti-China position under the sun. And so if they can be told that actually funding Ukraine to beat Putin is itself an anti-China position, that probably is going to be a pretty convincing argument. And um, yeah, I mean, and she goes through some other stuff like, um, 
you know, unleash America's energy dominance through Ukraine, uh, which is good, like, you know, designed to appeal to Republicans who like just want to spray gas everywhere they possibly can, meaning the actual kind that you profit from and uh, what have you. With the point being ultimately that, you know, this policy document is what you would imagine the sort of foundation of a funding bill, um, whenever it comes up for, you know, deliberation, probably in several months, but whenever it comes up, you could see this policy paper like kind of being the foundational sort of tenets of how the Republicans in Congress approach it. So they can cover their bases politically, claiming that they're adversarial toward Biden, just like Democrats claim that they're adversarial toward Bush after the 2006 midterms on Iraq. Uh, but, you know, basically funded the Iraq war effort without conditions and perpetuated the status quo. Republicans are now like, kind of be, being given a formula for how they can do exactly that. And either way, it's almost you know, moot because Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik in the House, then Mitch McConnell, John Thune, et cetera, the leadership for the Republicans in the Senate, they've all been ardently pro-war on this thing for ever. I mean, the idea that Kevin McCarthy was some sort of um, – War skeptic is just totally bogus, uh, a bogus narrative that was sort of concocted for political politically opportunistic reasons by both sides, you know, during the midterms campaign. So um, I just pointed it out to say that, you know, the people who were screeching, whether because they were in favor of cutting off aid or in favor of depicting Republicans as seeking to cut off aid so they could characterize Republicans as like these insurrectionist pro-Putin slash Trump, you know, um, uh, interlopers or whatever, uh, that narrative is just, there's no evidence really to believe that it will be uh, borne out whatsoever. And t- lots of evidence, including this paper, um, that the, the opposite might be true. And in fact, Republicans could seek to escalate the uh, provision of warfare and demand that Biden take even more aggressive action, which was their basic posture when the war started, remember, including the posture of McCarthy, Scalise, Stefan. Yeah, well, so, what do you make? Did you see anyway. the Washington Post story where they... They have like all these anonymous sources. The U.S. is telling Ukraine that they need to like you know move ahead or find a way to like you know reach a settlement or something like that. Did you see no, that? But, well, they didn't say that. They just said that. I mean, I saw the one article. I think this is what you're referring to in the Washington Post, where it's like the some some anonymous official cl- the, clarifies that when Biden or other administration officials say that the policy in Ukraine for the, on the part of the U.S. is as long as it takes to you know secure victory. This anonymous official says, as long as it takes doesn't mean as much as it takes, or it doesn't mean like the intensity of the support will continue as long as it takes. Like that could, that could uh, shift somewhat. I mean, I don't know. I think, I think there's, uh, there's decent reason to believe that the, um, uh, the administration is trying to put pressure on Ukraine government to really have some sort of like decisive triumph in the war in spring, summer, or whatever. I don't think it means much in terms of like portending some policy shift because for one thing, I think this idea that Republicans are actually going to jeopardize support, uh, quote unquote aid, military aid to Ukraine is just sort of not grounded in reality. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right too. So what did the article, what did the article say exactly? I remember being sort of surprised that you basically the U S was saying to Ukraine, I don't know why this is in the paper that, they were, um, you know, the, 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 you know, that there was potentially, you know, a limit to where they would cut off the, um, the aid, right? That was what they were saying. Yeah, let me pull, uh, let me, let me pull I, it up. I read it on the plane last night. I'm just kind of going to find it. 
I'll give you the exact quote because I think the, this quote okay. really is um, all that uh, all that matters in terms of some summing up whatever US inside the article gives. Ukraine, right? U.S. US I got a U.S. Warning. Okay, he, so an, an anonymous official says, as long as it takes pertains to the amount of conflict, it doesn't pertain to the amount of assistance. So this official is saying in this sort of oblique way and in sort of like a knowing way that when Biden and others in the administration do this constant refrain that support U.S. support for Ukraine will continue for as long as it takes, meaning as long as it takes to win the war, that doesn't mean that the amount of quote-unquote assistance that the U.S. provides will be will continue for as long as it takes. Like, so there could be variation in the level of assistance provided. Yeah. Um, then I, but, which I don't think is that significant of a distinction, actually. The senior administration official said the Biden administration will continue to request as much funding as it believes Ukraine needs as it has come throughout the war, but there are no guarantees, Congress, blah, blah, blah. Right. right. So, <laughs> so, so it's all about this, like, far-fetched uh, assumption that Kevin McCarthy is going to lead, like, the anti-war movement, which is just idiotic. Well, is there, I mean, is there any hints of this in the Republic? You say the leadership is like this, but could there be a rebellion? I mean, it seems like, I mean, I don't know. I don't watch, like, these um, cable news uh, shows, like, it is conservative media, but I, like, follow these Twitter accounts that, like, some of these Twitter accounts really got some entertaining material from, like, Newsmax and, like, right-wing, you know, podcasts and such. And they're really angry about Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine. Like, their one policy area where, like, they really hate the establishment for is, like, Ukraine. So it's like... It seems like an intense belief among like certain people in conservative media that like supporting Ukraine is like the worst thing in the world. Uh, so could those people have like an influence within Congress? Well, yeah, they could have an influence. You know, uh, Matt Gates actually did introduce a resolution. Uh, was it this week or last week? Actually, Gr- Greenwald just um, interviewed him on his Rumble show about it, um, where Gates is calling on calling for the cessation of the further provision of aid to Ukraine. Notably, it's just a resolution in that it's just like a statement that he's introduced. It's not actually like a legislative mechanism to do the formal thing of ceasing that. Gates has power, right? Gates can hold McCarthy to account. Like there's a... Yeah, he could. Because of the concessions he extracted during that whole speaker vote thing. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe they use that for Ukraine stuff? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, I, I definitely think it's, there's, it's, it's more, it's less clear that this stuff will just get rubber stamped than it was under the previous Congress when, you know, Democrats bragged that they had no dissension in their entire caucus whatsoever. So everybody from Ilan Omar to AOC to, Bernie Sanders and down, right on down the line, they were all 100% unanimous in support of every, literally every single Ukraine funding um, measure. Um, so I think it's not it's not going to be as clear cut as that. Um, but you know, I think you think the Democrats' um, behavior post 2006 is very instructive here because you know if you had just believed the common narrative, you would have thought that the Democrats under when you know, when Pelosi came in in the House in 2007 would cut off funding for the more in Iraq, right? Or at least do something that was decisively um, effectual in, in, in changing the course of the war. Because um, that's what they campaigned on in the, election, in the 2006 midterms. And they did absolutely nothing of the sort. In fact, they 
at one point, the Democrats even proposed more money for the war under this you know, Chairman John Murtha than uh, Bush was requesting. And then ultimately what they did was they passed uh, appropriations for the war uh, exactly as Bush had uh, requested, more or less. So, but at the same time, the Democrats also would do like, or like individual Democrats or faction of Democrats within the House in particular would do these messaging bills or resolutions where they would, you know, condemn the administration, say the war had failed, whatever, whatever, whatever. In other words, they would give like rhetorical, um, uh, they would like mollify rhetorically elements of their party who were actually agitating for the Democrats to end the war. Um, so they throw them a bone, but you know, when, the rubber hit the road. What they did legislatively was continue to fund the war. And, um, you know, I see really no reason at all for that to change. On top of the caucus leadership in the House being ardently pro-Ukraine and more hawkish than Biden, um, they also installed as committee chairs three um, – it's Michael McCall – Michael, Mike Turner, and now the other one is escaping me, sorry. But like the, uh, for the Armed Services Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, and the Foreign Relations Committee, all three chairmen of those committees, which are you know really influential in crafting especially these legislative vehicles for war funding, they're all 100% down-the-line hawks on, on Ukraine, unreconstructed. So, I mean... I got to see something other than Matt Gates and 10 other House Republicans putting their name on a messaging resolution to convince me that there's actually going to be some, something meaningful that impedes the you know, um, enactment of further funding down the line whenever that happens, like, I don't know, August or something. Yeah, I remember that uh, after the 2006 midterms and uh, um it was a thing that, uh, like, it was like the, almost the talking point was like, you're going to leave the troops, like the American troops will be out there in Iraq, and then they won't have money anymore, and I guess they won't have, like, you know, armor or clothes or whatever. They would all get, you know, they would all get killed. Uh, it was That was sort of the political pressure. It seems like it could be very similar with Ukraine, right? Like, oh, if they ever, like, really want to cut off aid, they're going to be like, you know, we're dying, and, you know, and they'll, they'll start being blamed for every potential setback Ukraine has on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality of it, it's very hard to imagine. And you're right. You're right, very right to look into the, um, and look in, to look into the, you know, the, to just go into sort of the Congress and who's on the committees and who's in leadership roles. All that stuff matters. Yeah, I think you're right. There, there's probably no hope of a uh, U.S. cutting off aid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they'll just say, oh, you're leaving them high and dry. You're letting Putin do genocide. You're... Because I mean, just think of, look, think of like the existential stakes that have been ascribed, at least nominally, to the war. Right? They're saying if Putin prevails, that means the entire Western international order since World War II has been destroyed. Um, that that means that uh, Putin's going to do his Hitler 2.0 blitzkrieg across the rest of Europe, which means that the U.S. would have to intervene to like save Estonia or something. Um, all these stakes that have been ascribed to the conflict are so grandiose that it's it's hard to see how a concession can be made on them um, in that, like, what? So now we're just going to uh, let Putin do a Hitler blitzkrieg yeah. and well, destroy maybe, the maybe rules-based international order? People just forget, right? I mean, that was like a year ago. That was a long time ago. You know, people just forget, right? Hey, well, they say know, the same stuff now. Hmm? 
I mean, they, they say the same kind of stuff now. I mean, that's yeah, what, what, that was the message when Zelensky was addressed Congress and all, all the rest. Yeah, I hear much. I mean, I hear much less of it. I hear it much less common. But uh, you're right. I mean, if it happens, it's not going to be like they were wrong. It'll be like you know, uh, we we just start talking about we we'll stop talking about it and look at something else. But I don't think it's going to happen. But that's that's how it would happen. Okay, uh, one last point quickly, and then we'll go to um, the callers. I promise. Um, I just, Richard, I'm just curious what your take is at this point on the whole spy balloon palooza thing. I mean, I haven't paid that close of attention to it. Um, because it seems just ridiculous to me on multiple levels, but it did catch my eye that just within the past like day or two, all of a sudden Ukra- Ukraine started claiming that Russia is sending reconnaissance balloons into Ukraine. And I don't think they've ever claimed that before. So it's just coincidentally that after the U.S. has been through this mania about Chinese spy balloons, that all, all of a sudden like China, uh, Russian spy balloons are this huge menace in Ukraine. I, I don't know. It, it just makes me wonder, like, what the sort of underlying uh, reasons for the sudden, like, propagation of this narrative are. Like, what did they sh- – I actually don't – I didn't see what Biden, whatever Biden said earlier today. Maybe he did. But anyway, what's your, what's your take? Uh, I, didn't see the, I didn't see the Ukraine claiming Russia sending balloons. Maybe just like, you know, it's like whatever, like, the U.S. is, like, you know, into at the moment. Maybe Ukraine is just like, oh, we have balloons, too. Like, you guys are paying attention to balloons now, so, like, balloons is part of the, is part of the war. Uh, you know, <laughs> it sounds like something like that. People, like, it was funny. People were, like, freaking out on Twitter where they were, like, you know, there was a few days where, like, the U.S. was just shooting down, like, random things in the sky. And then people were like, oh, my God, this is the alien invasion. And then be, like, somebody from the Pentagon says, you know, are you ruling out UFOs? We're not ruling out anything. Oh my God, the headline would be the Pentagon is not ruling out, you know, UFOs. Like there's a, you know, high, you know, good possibility that that's what's going on. And, you know, I thought it was coincidental, you know, quite a coincidence that the UFOs were invading right after this Chinese balloon thing happened. Um, and then, you know, there were stories in like, you know, the New York Times was like, well, I mean, they started to be, you know, they started to look for a lot more things after the balloon happened, and now it's coming out that they don't, they were related to China, and you know, they were, they were probably all balloons, some kind of private uh, thing. I haven't looked at the latest news, but it doesn't look like UFOs, and it doesn't look like it's a invasion from China. Uh, well, they are technically either. UFOs, right? Because they're unidentified flying objects. Like they haven't identified what the yes, objects are. Yeah, it's very, I mean, very pedantic and correct point. You're right; they are, uh, but the, well, yeah, maybe they're they're just embrace being pedantic. <laughs> they're, not, they're not aliens, or they're very unlikely. I mean, the aliens that are so, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the UFO, the UFO videos they were showing us before. It was like they, they were defying physics, right? Like they could go from like, you know, they could move at the speed of light and like, you know, change directions at like the drop of a pit, drop of a hat, and it was like, okay, and now they're suddenly like, they're you know, they're all suddenly like so incompetent. The aliens' uh, technology is so backwards that the U.S. is just, you know, shooting like four of them out of the air. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is just so ridiculous. <laughs> I, I've never believed in this. I never believed in this UFO stuff. I mean, I like, you know, not like there can't be aliens out there in the universe, but like these, you know, these, these, uh, uh, these, you know, little uh, streams of light that you see in these like hazy videos. Like, you know, oh, because the Pentagon can't explain it, that means, you know, it's a good chance that it's aliens. I never bought any of that. Like, if they're aliens, they're, like, probably not, you know, if they're, and if they're visiting us, they're, and if their technology is that good, they probably know how not to get caught. Um, 
And, you know, I was just like, why, what would the odds be that they would just be a bunch of, you know, squiggly, you know, squiggly lights on a, you know, on a screen. And that's the, that's the only evidence you would have. So, uh, yeah, it's silly. I mean, the, the balloon thing is, is silly. It's, um, you know, you see Bolton saying they could have used this to drop a nuclear, a nuclear bomb. Like China was going to send a balloon to drop <laughs> a nuclear bomb on, uh, Montana. Yeah, just hope it doesn't blow in the wrong direction. Now they're saying that they want they were supposed to look at they were like going to look at Guam or something. I saw the story, and it, you know it, it like just blew the wind blew in the wrong direction, and then it went to like Montana. So, you know, like that's like doesn't well, yeah. Like I mean, now there's this Washington Post. I think it was Washington Post, right, where they said that their the preliminary intelligence assessment now is that China was going to do what it had commonly done with these items, which is kind of send them, I guess, maybe in the periphery of Guam somewhere, which. I mean, Guam happens to be closer to mainland China than the United States, so it wouldn't be that unbelievable. Um, and then there was like an unusual um, weather event, I guess, in the Arctic some, somewhere or something. There was like an unusual sort of wind pattern that set the supposed Chinese spy balloon on a more downward course where it actually did inadvertently enter the uh, continental U.S. But who knows? I mean, my suspicion, my sneaking suspicion went starting a couple of years ago when there, start, there began to be this more sort of mainstream acceptance of at least the viability of the idea that UFOs could be like a legitimate thing to be curious about. Um, is that, you know, the, the turning point for me was when 60 Minutes did this segment on UFOs about how like the Pentagon had this program it had been under wraps for a long time and was only reported in 2017, which is true and notable that the Pentagon had this like secret uh, unit that was studying UFOs for a long time that actually Harry Reid got funded because of the um, the uh, relevance of like Nevada and, and Area 51 and whatever. Um, but when 60 Minutes had this segment on it and uh, the politician that they chose to be interviewed for it was Marco Rubio and he was saying, yeah, UFOs are like, you know, a legitimate thing and the government has to take this very seriously and this is not just some sort of like kooky conspiracy um, fixation as it might have been thought to be in the past. Uh, <laughs> then I was pretty, um, pretty convinced that the probable reason for why this subject now got such like mainstream tra- traction is because they're going to use it as like a way to hype up you know, military spending on, uh, to counter China. Uh, primarily, maybe less directly Russia, but you know, partially Russia also because it's seen as an alliance with China. But if China has these, if China might be the, like the culprit of these UFOs, then whether they're aliens or China, we gotta like beef up our um, our uh, you know industrial capacity to identify the source of this threat. And I, so I, th- I thought there seemed like there was a pretty obvious like national security element here as to why this was being so suddenly embrace, but I don't know if you ever had that thought. Yeah, no, I've, I mean, that's actually, that's what I've written on UFOs. I mean, I have a very old substack from uh, when I first started writing about UFOs, and that's what, that, you know, I was sort of more, uh, you know, on the conspiratorial end of this is a way to get budget and, you know, money. Yeah, I've always sort of believed that, but, you know, I also sort of believe now that they, you know, that they really, they really believe that they're just not, I mean, like, like whatever, I mean, they just seem stupid. I mean, they're just like, shooting things like randomly like not even knowing what they're doing so you know it's almost like you know they probably don't you know maybe the the money thing crosses their mind but i don't think they uh yeah i don't think it's even i don't think it's yeah even. there's there's like a four hundred thousand uh, dollar sidewinder missile that's just apparently if what we're being told is true 
lying on the bottom of Lake Huron right now because whatever they thought that they were firing at wasn't, I don't know. I, just so weird. But yeah, anyway, okay, let's go to, uh, let's go to callers now. Hey, Matt. Yo, first of all, I'll start with something funny. Like, I tried to get out of politics for a while, and I'm so glad you brought this cod artist up. Because all of a sudden, I was, like, hearing rumors that from, like, Crystal Ball and then Katie Halper that Joe Biden raped the girl from American Pie. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it, but it's, T- it's, it's R-E-A-D-E, but even that is just one of her many pseudonyms. That's actually not her. Yeah, name. I think, I think, yeah, I remember you taking that down pretty solidly. Just but like Eliza yeah, Blue. So I mean, I Eliza Blue my, uh, is not her given name. She has several names and that's yeah, usually a bit dude, of... I smelled her for a while, away too. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I get, I've been crazy busy with work this week, but I got my uh, fiance a paint set, so she was busy and I decided to take a break and I saw you in the Twitter space and I decided to go ahead. Because I like, I you know, I do like Samira. She's a very interesting poster. It's always fun. Um, uh, interesting. My God, what a pack it. of morons! Yeah, I mean, but the, like, I don't understand her as posting literally. Okay, what up? I, I, I don't understand her. Period. But I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I like her up. Well, her and Anna. I was trying to enter the because when they were calling you fat, I was trying to cool down the situation and say I think we can all agree that Vouch is fat. You know. Also, I mean, her and Anna. Yeah, a, I mean, I could, I probably. You I, remember I, the Anna bit? Her and Anna with the starving the Russians. I mean, that was a good bit. Also, it's just strange because, like, yeah, I should, pro- I should, could stand to lose like twenty pounds, but I'm not like fat. No, in the way that like Bro, you, you would just good. say like in a fat picture, guy. By the way, you look good in the picture he posted of you. So like after this, I saw that too. So, but but I just want to say this, dude. It was like they were so dumb. Like my god, because I was I you know I thought you know maybe they would be like there just aren't a lot of anti-war people and we're out we're you know the person the Rita they could quote the TR thing, the man the Rita versus the critic. No, like it was so fucking low IQ. It was worse than any woke rube. It was like one of the most insane things I've ever heard. And that Brian, I want to say as a veteran, quote unquote, that Brian B word is such a fucking idiot. Berlinic, like, yeah, I so think he stupid. actually is a veteran. I don't like, know what his full deal is, but like, he is. It gives he is me a PTSD. Sure. Like not real. Like it gives me like flashbacks to dealing with these fucking idiots. Like he couldn't reason, but like he never responded to anything you were saying, and it wasn't out of like I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't just he was being being a bitter, trying to discredit you. Like he couldn't conceptualize, like conditional reasoning right that's another thing i wanted to ask because when they were doing the fattest course i wanted to be uh, uh if you hadn't eaten breakfast this morning what would you how do you feel if you don't get that one ask richard <laughs> richard <what is> that? <laughs> you're watching you're you're watching very closely my twitter battles so, uh oh you know who you know who it you know Are you richard, this is funny. wait you don't so <laughs> the, you're so innocent michael this is good that you don't know this but, uh, like, I, I said this about Malcolm Kuhn when he uh, attacked Perry on Twitter. And Twitter, uh, Perry DM'd me, and he's like, what does this 15% mean? I keep seeing it around. I was like, don't learn it. <laughs> no, this guy, this Marine is a fucking Okay, idiot, well, not, like, now I tell me the breakfast it. thing, because I think I, like, maybe vaguely understand okay. what you're alluding so to. So the bottom sure. 50%. The yeah. bottom 50%, and we're not looking at what groups are there. We're just saying the bottom 50% of the IQ range, if you ask them, you know, well, if you had had dinner or breakfast, how would you feel? They get very bewildered because they can't, they just say, I did, but I did have breakfast, you know, I did, you know, because they can't do conditional reasoning. Did I describe it right, Rich? 
Yes, yeah, something like that. I don't know the exact percentage, yeah. But if someone is very dumb and they're not, you know, they're not, uh, if they're not able to engage in analytical reasoning, uh, you know, with you, the you know, you can just say, you know, what if but you the, didn't eat breakfast this morning? And it's a reference to their stupidity. But it's like the the astounding thing is apparently fifteen percent of the population can't do this question. So whatever. yeah, I mean, the, the, um, I, I think the thing is with some of these guys who were in the the Twitter spaces. If you're in that particular milieu, right, like you're, I guess, maybe American or Western-oriented, I hate using the word, term Western without being able to use scare quotes, um, but if, like, you're in this, like, media ecosystem where you're, you inhabit that particular niche of being, you know... I, you know, it's hard to get them. Some of them have just flat admit that they're partisans of the Russian war, uh, war effort, which yeah, I think you could. I, I don't understand why they're bashful about admitting that. Um, you know, just defend your position. I mean, uh, you can make an argument for it, I guess, if you'd like. Um, but whatever uh, nook of the online media ecosystem that those people inhabit, it's kind of very. I mean, echo chamber is a cliche, but like it, it has like its own sort of self-contained like. E- uh, epistemic sort of structure where you can tell like they all have like the same sort of patterns of thought. They all have the same sort of um, styles. Yeah. Yeah. Not or styles or they all have like the same sort of uh, approach to the issue, analytical approach to the issue that was kind of, it's be kind of just like the generic take within that particular world. I don't know. I'm not, maybe I'm not describing it well, but it's, it seems like, you know, if the guy, Brian, seemed like he couldn't reason well on the fly and, like, he couldn't do conditional reasoning or whatever about breakfast, um, I don't think that he's dumb. I just think that he's um, maybe sort of no, absorbed. No, he's dumb. You don't, you don't, because you don't encounter these he, people. He could dude. be like, dumb. I mean, like, I, 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 no, he's, he's dumb. Like, Jackson might have been yeah. doing a bit. Jackson might have been doing a bit. I'm telling you, Brian is that dumb. Like, I, like I, I, I recognize this character from my life travels. <laughs> like, you, um, like, you yeah. couldn't do it, dude. Like, he kept coming, like, you know, if you want to say, like, I think the West, NATO needs to be taught a lesson, you know, Russia's to take Ukraine. But he kept going back to this metaphor of rape, and, like, it was so, like, <laughs> but he couldn't, you're, the, the myriad of ways you discounted it, like, he couldn't handle it, and they would get all flustered. Also, like, Jackson, you watch, you guys watch 30 Rock? No. I'm not yeah, There's comedy. an episode with John Hamm. I'm very humorless. There's a there's an episode with John Hamm and he cooks chicken with Gatorade, right? And that's the vibe I get from Jackson Hinckley. So the, the point is he's so handsome that no girl has ever told him not how you make chicken, you know. So he makes all his dates this Gatorade chicken and they enjoy it, you know. So this guy talking shit to you about like where you look, it's like, dude, you've gotten by like as a forward policy thinker because you can't like he like made no good points. Oh, okay. Right, like it was bad. No, like, it was no, it was it was I, bad. I know I, I, that, that's why. Like, you know, I was I was being earnest. I don't know if you heard this part, but I said to him, like, I actually wish you would just forthrightly state your position without getting into this like obviously oxymoronic insistence right. that you're in arguing in favor of a of Russia's war effort. You're actually making a pro or argument. Like, if we could just get beyond that. And you could just say that Russia is waging a just war. Then we could actually have like better terms for embarking on like a potentially yeah. sort of fruitful de- uh, debate or discussion. But they just couldn't budge on that particular issue because no, you know, no. yeah. I mean, Richard knows this but guy Anatoly uh, on uh, yeah. on Twitter, right? Powerful takes is his name. 
Somebody asked him, not, I didn't ask him, but somebody asked him just after the spaces thing, like, do you think Tracy is right? And he says, Tracy's obviously right. I know that because this guy's a partisan of the Russian war effort. I think he is Russian himself, lives in Russia, crit- criticizes Putin for mismanaging the war. But he said, you know, of course I know that I would have no position at that particular rally because he's avowedly pro-war. So he's intellectually honest and forthright. These other people, for a variety of reasons, including that guys like Hinkle are being put in, out into the pu- for public consumption as faces of the supposedly of the supposed anti-war movement, you know they have these uh, different incentives where they have to do like you know logical jujitsu that is not very persuasive at all to make it seem like they're actually you know espousing a position that is consistent with what the position of that rally nominally is, which is to be anti-war. Yeah, okay, so, uh, but I thought, I, I did have a cool cover with a question, but I just said, like, you really handled it very well, but it was it was so cringe. I well, thank you. But you're biased, Matt, because you're clearly in love with me. I'm a Tracy head, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, oh, so, is I thought Scott Horton was good, though. Scott, he's part of putting this rally together, right? He's one of the good no, ones. No, yeah, yeah, I, I like Scott Horton. Again, I, I tried to make this distinction in my initial thread. I'm not saying that everybody who's associated with the rally is irrevocably tarnished by their participation in the rally. Um, You know, the only three politicians I've ever really had much affinity for in my entire life happen to be participating in the rally. So, I mean, which is part of the reason why I'm annoyed in that I think that it's just inevitable that they're going to get attacked by association. I mean, it's, um, you know, Tulsi, Dennis Kucinich, and Ron Paul, um, all of whom I actually know personally. So, I mean, I wouldn't be saying this about the rally if I didn't feel like I had a well-founded reason for it so i don't know yeah but they could have just said you know like look we don't care like if the rallies in america it's about american policy yeah some of our speakers want russia to Ukraine, you know instead they just just it was it was bad it, like i couldn't believe this <laughs> it really was something else. right and i think it's actually it's, 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 it's like useful to it's posting. useful to be exposed Sorry. to that uh, i think because you know i've had like a maybe t- t- three or f- two or three instances similar to this over the, over the past year when, of course, most of the time, like 99% of the time, I'm in conflict with the pro-Ukraine war people, right? But every now and then something comes up where like the pro-Russian war partisans come out of the woodworks and, you know, air their grievances about me. Um, and it's actually a good insight because it just um, lets you know that the irrationality and illogic bred by kind of war fervor and war partisanship is not limited to one side. It's just kind of like a truism throughout the ages that it kind of just makes everybody nuts. Yeah. And also I would say it's not only leftists and liberals that are hysterical too. There are some fucking hysterical conservatives because I think it was right. These people were right coded, right? Um, probably somewhat. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, they're sort of like orthogonal to left-right as we <laughs> conceive of it now, but maybe vaguely somewhat. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, Jackson Hinkle started trying to develop a public profile for himself as like one of, the, like one of these uh, glamorous Instagram Bernie supporters. So I, I don't know. Jesus Christ. What a fucking world. All right. This is enough. Stress yep. me. All right. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Shane. How's it going? Hello? Yep. Can you hear you? Hmm. How's it going? 
I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, um, I, I, I thought you looked good in that picture that Jackson posted also. <laughs> you looked like half my buddies, and I thought it was weird, <laughs> like all the personal attacks. I thought it was, like, embarrassing. But, um... Well, thanks. You know, <laughs> I just popped into the space for a minute earlier because I, like... I kind of agree with like your thinking about stuff more, especially what you were saying, like clarity of language relating to clarity of concept and intention. How is it that you put it? Um, so, well, clarity, I mean, and you should look up Shane, that essay by Orwell, if you haven't read it. I mean, if you're going to read any essay by Orwell, this is the one that you should read. It's politics in the English language. It's short. Um, where he, he basically makes the point that clarity of language is necessary to insist upon not for its own sake or not just for its own sake, but because yeah. in unclarity of language is typically connected to like unclarity in the underlying kind of concepts that are being articulated by way of the language, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So if like, if, you, if you're, if you're using unclear language or obfuscatory language, it means that you're trying to obfuscate the underlying principle as well. Exactly. Because there is like, a misconception that happens in that because you're shying away from the actual consequence of like how you put your thought into language and then how that then goes out through society without getting too postmodern about it. Right. Like, but like in some ways I do find myself as somebody who's like really, I, I I'd like to, kind of think of myself as like normal, but as I've gotten older and, you know, kind of gone from being like a typical Obama Democrat to, you know, through the Bernie phase, right. <laughs> he was really excited. I know your type. And now like, I, know, and I relate like, to that type, by the way. I mean, I was like seen as my, I was, uh, I had, my reputation was the number one Obama supporter on my college campus. So I know that I have personal. Yeah. I grew up not so far away from, Jackson, actually, and my Where's little that? sister and him have Newport, just like south of Long Beach. In Orange County? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, New, Newport and, Beach. I, I, or, or Newport. I, I, I've been to Newport Beach. I'm not sure if I've been to Newport. Yeah, Newport Beach. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, okay. So yes, I've been yeah. to Newport. Yep, I know it. Yeah, and obviously, it's a pretty conservative town. You know, Nixon actually had a house above, like, a surf break that's you know, kind of relevant in the culture, but well, yeah, you know, Arch, arguably you know, the most influential Republican person. bastion in the entire country for years. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Like it, I mean, it's crazy. The stuff that is going on here. I mean, like the wedge, right. This like funny, weird surf break. It's right under PIMCO. Like you can see the PIMCO tower. But that's that's another trip. But what I what I was meaning to say is like as somebody who's just like weary about stuff in this weird way that I like, you know, moralizing about stuff gets really trippy. So I try not to do it. But there is a feeling that like what Putin's doing has some sort of moral justification. And I, I come to that conclusion mainly by like I I just have this head trip about what Russians must see America as being capable of after what they threw in the nineties. That was kind of a moment that took me from being like 
a Bernie Sanders liberal, like, you know, to like where it's like, it wasn't okay. Like that was- Well, no, Shane, I totally get that. that I I know exactly what you mean. I mean, uh, life expectancy for Russians in the 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and when the U.S. was supposedly trying to bring economic freedom to Russia by more or less installing Yeltsin, who I think at one point yeah. in his presidency, the new Russian Federation had an approval rating of 2%. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know 100% what you mean. Um, but, but here's what I would try to clarify the point as being. Not that whatever those arguments are as to how Russia might view the United States are invalid or unworthy of consideration. I'm just saying that let's have conceptual clarity about what it would add up to if those moral arguments led one to avow active, explicit support for the Russian government's war effort right now. Exactly. It would be a pro-war argument. I mean, it seems like trivially simple to me. So it's not like I'm saying that stuff that you're mentioning there about the 90s should be discounted. I think it's actually hugely contextually relevant. But it's just sort of like ancillary to the point that at least I was arguing today with. Yeah, and that's like kind of what like compelled me to like call in and you know say that is because you know in a way I disagreed with you about like or I thought I did right and it, when I turned off the space I I think I must have been listening to it for like less than fifteen minutes but like y- they brought up this idea that you were saying that a woman who's about to be raped shouldn't defend her themselves and you finally were like. This is such a stupid fucking argument. I'm going to like take you on it. Yeah, right? they fi- they they finally the, the position uh, berated me into actually addressing the analogy. And you did it really well. Like you that was like it was literally at that moment I was all like, yeah, I get what Michael's trying to say and I like turned it off because I mean like MAGA communism is reactionary communism. That's all it is. Like MAGA was reactionary didn't lead to anything and like they're trying to they're trying to bounce that off this geopolitical thing and by and the way like, Shane just so I people understand like, the, the the way to address that analogy in very simple terms is to say yeah. if a woman is about to is being accosted by a violence potential rapist right in that situation and she takes like she, violent action to ward off the rapist exactly you could simply say that she took justified violent action to ward off the rapist. In, uh, or, uh, in other words, the act of violence that she committed was justified. But it would make no sense to say that you making an argument that her act of violence yeah. was justified is an anti-violence argument. It's a pro-violence ar- argument in this one narrow respect. So she in has, the same in sense, that, you, these that, people could just that. make a just war argument on behalf of their support for the Russian military campaign, but they choose instead to confuse the issue. Exactly, because if they really wanted to own the analogy, they would say, well, yeah, of course, the woman isn't anti-violence. She has the right to violence in that particular situation where she's being like, you know, existentially threatened. And so it's like whether or not you want to graph that onto Putin. So like you brought it up with the metaphysical thing where like Jackson's going like they're fighting evil and it's like an absolute evil. And it's like, well, if we're talking about multipolarity, right, like there isn't an absolute anymore. And so that's like, in, you know, they're not being precise with their language. And I think it's going out to this misconception where like, if Jackson really is playing this like pro-America guy, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you can kind of sense my politics about stuff. Like I'm, I think California is a really special place 
and like a war would be like really fucking terrifying like i'm not sure the infrastructure could handle it and so like yeah i guess where like, china's going to invade first california <laughs> he should he should be smarter like that rhetoric is fucking retarded like we can't like trying to escalate a war and like hoping that putin's gonna like crush nato like it's just it's backwards and it, it's bad thinking and i appreciated you like engaging with him and like i don't know it's just cool to like have people out there that are like kind of making that consistency yeah well uh thanks for that you know i didn't get into this with him because i mean the whole thing about absolute evil is just sort of this weird i mean i didn't want to get too into the weeds with him on that issue because you could I also say, wouldn't. Hey, dude, I, I also wouldn't want to get too into the. Is just on some new trip and like you're just taking this reference that's <laughs> new and exciting to you as a 22 year old, and like I don't know, dude. It could be a CIA thing that's pushing him through. Like, well, right. If my, he, I, he, I, don't, like, I, I don't think it's CIA. I'm not going to go there. But like in the same yeah, way that yeah. there would be a limit to how much utility you could get out of trying to have a rational debate with an apocalyptic preacher who's claiming that the rapture is imminent. Like there's only so far, there's only so deeply you can probe that. There's only so pro, there's only so deeply you could probe that assertion within like the bounds of rational inquiry. And similar with his statement that you know the West is the embodiment of absolute evil. I mean, I don't even know what that means exactly. It's this weird sort of like, you know, it sounds like a monotheistic moralization thing that is hard to really engage with on a rational level. It's like level atheism. It's like Reddit atheism. It's like Reddit atheism. <laughs> well, like they think they're that. staking out this totally rational point of view where they're like the west has done all this bad stuff and it's like dude like i don't know like there's some cool stuff about america like don't right and for whatever bad stuff and for, and for whatever bad stuff the u.s has done thinking in terms of absolutes i think is almost always inherently distorting because you're saying that mm-hmm. so there's nothing evil to be identified as per like the Russian state or the Chinese state or the North Korean state or whatever. Like I'm not in favor of the current U S foreign policy disposition were those countries, but I wouldn't make the leap to say that those countries are absolved of all evil or like incapable of the commission of evil, because that's what saying that the U S is the absolute evil. I think would necessarily have to imply if you're saying it's the absolute source of evil, then that means that, that the kind of what you're calling evil is not going to be existent elsewhere. And I think that's just like a very, like almost laughably productive way to look at the world and like the complexity inherent. In it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it was good talking to you, Michael, like keep on keeping on. All right. Thanks, Shane. Uh, all right. Andrew's up. I know he had uh, thoughts on this. Well, Michael. How's it going? Oh, I've had a better week. I've uh, been uh, hit in the face with a recycling lid and broke my glasses. So not only really? have I been... How did that yeah, happen? <laughs> well, is that on video? I, you know, I wish it was. <clears throat> I was just like gale force winds outside, knocked a recycling bin over, so I'm going out to clean it up, and it just popped up and in like one smooth motion removed my glasses. And uh, <laughs> where, 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 where do you live or, you know, approximately uh, where there are gale force winds? Northern Illinois, every now and then. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Lake Michigan and whatever. Well, I'm not on Lake Michigan, but it gets windy around here. I'm yeah. in a county, but... I'm just talking is- out of my ass as if I know, like, Gale Force winds <laughs> can go from Lake Michigan to wherever the hell you are in Northern Illinois. Right. Well, let's say yeah. they did, just yep. for... 
we're experts on Gale Force wins. But, right. you know, the, the overarching point is that not only have I been frustrated by what I've been reading, but I've been frustrated by the process of reading it because I don't have my glasses. So, oh, so are you sh- you're, you're short-sighted and far-sighted? Well, it's just been fuzzy and, you know, it's not great. But okay, gotcha. The, the problem well, is... Well, you have my sympathies. <laughs> thank you. Um, you're, you're big on conceptual clarity. So this is what I want to get across here, which is what I think... The, the the reason, other than, uh, I mean, Jackson Hinkle's kind of a meme, like, if Putin said that it was a war, then Jackson Hinkle would be calling it a war. The second that Putin calls it a war, Jackson Hinkle will call it a war. Right, and he's calling and it a special, I mean, that's, that's the tell, obvious. right? I mean, that's almost too obvious to ignore, right? So, he actually uses the euphemism special military operation. Like, why would you do that if not yeah, that you're trying um, to streamline your rhetoric with the rhetoric of the actual Russian Say. It's the same way that the United States, you know, called Vietnam a policing operation. But the point for me is that there's people that are coming at you with different motives. But some of the people that are coming at you, and I think Brian Berletic falls under this category, is uh, you and him are like oil and water. But it's this uh, conceptual clarity over what the actual argument is here, I think. And the, the point being that some people feel that you're being pedantic because in the context of this rally, which you refer to as an anti-war rally, which I understand is part of their some of their advertising. But as an overarching core concept, the concept of that rally, and you can verify this by looking at the demands, is essentially to end the carnage by ending U.S. aid and NATO aid to the conflict, which would, as we all understand, end it. So the point of this is that you I don't know if it would end it, actually, but anyway, partisan. go ahead, finish, go, okay. finish your point. Well, it may not, but the I mean, you, is, hold on, well, let me just interject quickly, because I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but, I mean, yeah. I don't know it to be true with 100% certainty. I mean, it may be, but I don't know for sure. How can one say that if the U.S. just at all of a sudden tomorrow withdrew all support whatsoever for the Ukrainian state, that Including NATO. Russia, what? Including NATO? Yeah, let's say all Western slash U.S., all external support for the Ukrainian government as it's currently constituted were just withdrawn overnight. Let's just say hypothetically. I mean, I, I don't know for sure that that would automatically end the carnage. I mean, I think the war aims of Russia have gotten more maximalist as the war has gone on. Maybe they do a full scale a full or a fuller scale uh, invasion and actually try to forcibly impose regime change. I don't know. I mean, you can't rule that out, right? I don't think that would be the same as extending the carnage. I think that would be a resolution. I think that Wait, yes, what? there would that would involve some violence, but that would be you know that that would be the end of the war. They're not going to unless you believe what the Ukrainians believe, which is that this is a genocide. Then what the goal would be would be to, I mean, if we understand this as what Russia has said, which is that they want to get NATO out of Ukraine, demilitarize them, and put in a neutral leadership, essentially. That's the entire goal. So if that aid stops, then Russia gets rid of what they consider the militarized uh, factions that pose a threat to them. They're not going to get continued aid. Where do they get the aid from? Uh, Hold on, Andrew. Andrew, Andrew, if tomorrow the aid's cut off from the, quote, West, right, Russia then uses that as a license to go no holds barred, full on, you know, take no prisoner military operation slash invasion. And... That's by force, right. attempts to achieve these aims, okay. and that results in violence and death and destruction. That's not a cessation of the carnage, as you put it. 
That's a continuation of the carnage. It just is. You could say it will then result in ultimately in the cessation of the violence because Russia will have achieved what it regards to be victory. But it Correct. would involve the, the perpetuation of further violence and carnage. Well, first of all, it would end the carnage on the behalf of the West. So that carnage would be ended because we are contributing to carnage, as you're sure. aware. So that, that's what this rally is about. It's not about, first of all, it's not about Russian carnage. Secondly, it's about, and I'll, I would like to make an analogy about that in a second, but secondly, it's about the, uh, the idea that Russia would just come in and start a genocide, essentially, the, in practical terms. I know this whole, this, I know, but this, this is the idea, that they would be violent and they'd get their way through violence and it would be like an authoritarian, okay, but... I mean, is it, the, is it implausible, uh, the, Andrew, the that they would they would that, use violence no, to achieve their aims? I don't think that's they, implausible at all. No, I think it would be like a especially because they because they just like Ukraine have gotten more radical and it, uh, you know vindictive as the war is dry. Okay, but they wouldn't have any supply. This whole hypothetical is so crazy because it wouldn't happen, right? Like the 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 whole thing wouldn't end in a day. But if it did. There, there would pe- there be people that would surrender. They would run out of arms, and those who would resist would end up being killed. And that's the end of the war. That's the end of the conflict because the West ended the carnage on there. Okay, on but their what head. happens that's, when there's the, what happens when there's the Azov insurgency? I mean, you don't think that you, you can't imagine that resulting in further carnage? I mean, I yeah, think you're a little bit Azov. maybe. I think you're maybe a little bit. Um, uh, over okay. overly certain as to how this would somehow magically you know, eliminate all remaining carnage. I mean, supposedly there were plans for the U.S. to fuel uh, what they what some factions within like the intelligence community thought was going to be an insurgency. Okay, that would again be part of the carnage on the West, then, wouldn't it? Because that's part of the demands. That's part of the, this. If you look at the demands of the rally. The demands of the rally are to stop our fueling of the war, and it's undeniable. Who are they going to go to to fuel their war effort in Ukraine? It's it's going to end. That's the reality. But th- my analogy for this is: imagine we're in two thousands. Uh, I don't know the timeline so well. So like Afghanistan, right? We go in, we invade Afghanistan because we're pursuing Osama, and we say that Al Qaeda trained with them. Blah blah blah. Right? Except, oops, we let t- Osama get away to Tora Bora, didn't we? Okay. So now. Out of Tora Bora, he's in Pakistan or something. We don't know where he is. But we're now fighting the Taliban because now it's a totally different operation. And we have an anti-war rally. Here's the hypothetical. And the war, anti-war rally. And we have a Taliban member. Just, you know, I know that's crazy. But let's say there's a Taliban member that speaks there. Is that now an, a pro-war rally because we have a Taliban member speaking? Or are we saying, and the carnage of the U.S.? who is invading and these Taliban people are defending themselves and it does, it's not a pro war. That's, that's the whole point is that they feel like they're being smeared by saying we're pro war. They, they, they don't want a carnage to continue. They want carnage to end and the route they see to that. Are they pro war? I believe that they are uh, pro war in the sense that they are uh, supporting a war effort in, in the process. For whatever of, uh, reason, they're supporting the war effort. They're supporting yeah, the war but that's, that, effort. Okay. that's irrelevant. Uh, the, the, no, that's, 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 that's no, the most relevant in, thing. In, no, it's not. In the context of this rally, it is not. If you had an anti-war rally for Afghanistan, you had a Taliban member there, it would not become a pro-war well, or not. Andrew, I'm not saying that the war is now, you know, in every respect, a quote pro-war rally. That's not what I'm saying because there may but be. That's what they. I, I would expect there to be certain people who are participate who actually do have a, you know, 
right. co- uh, coherently anti-war position that they'll promulgate at the rally. So I'm not saying that everybody is necessarily sort of undercut in their ability to espouse an actual pro, uh, anti-war position at this rally now. Could I say, uh, I'm saying, I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying the impetus, the stated impetus for the rally, and you say that I call it anti-war. It's, it's not just about the promotional material. I mean, look at the, the funding page for when, where they're soliciting funds. Right. It says that they're trying to put together the most, the biggest and most impactful anti-war rally in like 20 years. That's the stated purpose of the whole thing. So that's not not me saying it. Correct. But that, that's, that's in the context of the U.S. You're reading it without any context. No, I know the context. Because what, okay, why would the, the context is the U.S. war effort, the anti-war effort for the U.S. If we had a rally in the U.S. that was anti-war, we wouldn't be saying, no Afghans could come here because I mean the whole point is that it wouldn't undermine the war. The, okay, the, let me well, well, let's go to your let's go to your the Taliban analogy because I've this has been brought up um, before and I think it's it's worth addressing. So let's just think it through for a second. Um, first of all, I mean not that this is directly relevant, but Bush always did say that the reason for the war was not strictly to capture Osama bin Laden. He said it was because anyone. Any government that harbors terrorists is now going to be viewed by the U.S. as just as culpable for terrorism as the terrorists themselves. So he was saying that there's no distinction between the Taliban and al-Qaeda slash bin Laden because the Taliban allegedly was harboring bin Laden even though, you know, so which is a reason why (laughs) when the Taliban actually came out and said in September of 2001 that they would work with the U.S. to actually attempt to um, arrest bin Laden and and hand him over to U.S. authorities, Bush rejected this. So, you know, they were set on war. But that's, you know, an aside. Um, now, if a, if a Taliban warlord were invited to what was sold as an anti-war rally, and at the rally he was calling for militarized jihad in Afghanistan, um, now against U.S. soldiers or, you know, uh, Afghans who didn't like the Taliban or whatever, he was giving a mil- pro-war making a pro-war argument for some war aim of the Taliban. Yeah, that would raise, call into question the impetus for the rally. I think it's sort of less severe than is the case here because in the case of Russia, we're talking not about like some guys in head, you know, uh, some like you know, desert um, tribesmen who are, have like no, we're talking about World War we're talking about, well no we're talking about Russia which has the which has an enormous military which is mass under, undergoing uh, imposing mass conscription on its populace which is militarizing its economy not that the US isn't doing this as well not the conscription part but the militarization of the economy um, which yeah it is true is shuttering media outlets um, that dissent uh, that's just true i think that that tends to be exploited in like Western Gary Kasparov type narratives, but that's, that's also true. So to have a significant vocal faction of the people who are, you're claiming are representative of your cause being partisans of that particular warring state, yeah, that does call into serious question the organizational impetus of the event. Um, why? Now, why? Yeah, why? If the, if the goal is to end the carnage, end the, and that's how I see it, end the war, as in end the process of violence, and the way they see th- that accomplished is by ending Western intervention, which is clearly the logic of the rally. It's not a, 
it's not a pacifist rally, and it shouldn't. Well, I never said it was a pacifist rally. I, but that's basically the idea: is that anybody that says that the Afghanis, Afghanis can defend themselves, anybody that's supportive of the idea of the, in my analogy here, of the Afghans or the Talibanis or whoever defending themselves against the U.S. Anyone, forget the Taliban. Anyone that picks up a weapon against the U.S., you can't endorse that because now you're pro-war. But you're basically saying those people have to be. Well, you excluded. can endorse it. Just be clear they, on what you're they, endorsing. They have to be excluded. They have to be ex- because yeah. this is that's the argument you're making. You say these people should be excluded because it's an anti-war rally. I'm not saying anybody should be excluded. They can they can have whatever the hell rally they want. I'm not an activist running a rally, right? Uh, so, I'm saying yeah. they. But if they do choose to include certain people, and not just include them, remember, but like yeah, put out put out these custom graphics where they're saying, "Come to our rally so you can hear from." Anti-war, um, an, anti-war uh, figure Jackson Hinkle and, or Scott Ritter, and it turns out that both of them are actually the not okay. anti-war what? at all insofar as they're avowed partisans of a warring party's military effort. Yeah, I do think that means that they are calling into legitimate question what they're saying the event is for. Now, I, I, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that, you know, Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich or Tulsi Gabbard or whomever can't go to the rally and give a, an actual thoroughgoing anti-war speech in that they are not endorsing the war efforts of Russia, but calling for a legitimate end to the carnage, which, I mean, if you're calling for Russia to triumph militarily, if that's what you're saying you support, then I don't think that's, Often should be assumed as somehow synonymous with calling for a cessation to the carnage. I mean, I think you know it'd be one thing. It'd be one thing if these people just adopted the position of like the official diplomatic position anyway of China or India or South Africa or Brazil or Mexico and what have you. And their position on the war was that there should be an immediate ceasefire and there should be negotiations for a political settlement. Um, That would be one thing. Uh, but there, if you're saying that your idea of achieving a cessation to the hostilities is to specifically to enable Russia to a, a secure a overwhelming military victory, then that's not clearly some sort of automatic curtailment of the carnage. That's actually calling for the expansion of offensive military warfare. But that's not what any of these people really are doing. I think they're yes, saying they are. that they're, they're no, they're, endor- but they're endorsing this process as Russian defending itself, whether it's a war or not. It's a war of defense. That's what they're saying. And that basically at, at the end of the day, if the West stops the armament of this, it's going to force a negotiation, which is what everyone apparently wants. That's at this rally. Every, that's the core concept of this rally is to end the warfare through the cessation of Western supply. So that's, that, that, that is the core concept. And it, it shouldn't be a contradiction, in my opinion, to have people that are pro-war effort of Russia, if that's the context that they understand it in. And they're not saying, you know, if it was someone that was a drunk Vatnik that was saying, let's exterminate the Ukrainians, then obviously you wouldn't want that person. But if these are people that are clearly pushing in an effort, you can read their words and, and see the whole holistic picture of what they're arguing for, and they're not arguing for some kind of Russian triumph. They're arguing for an end to hostilities, which would be forced through these terms. Through Wait, the, so Scott Ritter is not calling... Scott Ritter is not... I don't think he's calling... In favor of Russia triumphing militarily in Ukraine? 
I think he's for them triumphing in getting their objectives met because he believes right. that that's going to be, but that's not the same as saying we want Russia to just dominate them. That's saying we want a negotiated peace because these are the things that are driving the war. These issues unresolved equal war. So we need to resolve these issues. And the only way that's going to be done is if the West stops because Russia is not going to stop. And this is a nuclear war. That's the stakes in this. It's much worse than the Afghan analogy because this is a nuclear war we're talking about. That's on well, the, right. Yeah, the stakes the are much higher. So that's why people are giving you so much heat about this, that they, they see this. Because I don't, I don't agree. I, 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 I don't. Some of them, not all. Not the people you're arguing with that are calling you fat and lard face, but some of them, <laughs> not all of them. I mean, first of all, Andrew, I don't even necessarily agree or I'm not going to just agree with the drop of a hat or agree unconditionally that if what Hinkle or Ritter uh, say that they want to happen happens and Russia triumphs militarily. I mean, you could quibble with the wording of that, like achieve their their stated military aims, that that somehow renders... Um, no longer alarming the prospect of nuclear war. I think that there's, you know, wars are chaotic and can go in many different directions. And I mean, I, I don't think if, if what you're saying is that you, you, you desire the expansion of warfare so your favored warring party can prevail. I don't think that automatically lends itself to this assumption that that is going to eliminate the risk that you're saying you want to be eliminated. It could easily veer off in some other direction and increase the risk. So, I mean, again, if it, if it were the case that these people were basically just advocating a version of what the vast majority of the rest of the world advocates in that they want negotiations and a political settlement. They do. And I believe they that, all do that. I believe well, no, they no, no, they don't. I mean, Okay. China, uh, when, India, when it says it wants a nego negotiations and a political settlement, is not simultaneously saying, yeah, actually, we're mounting an affirmative defense of the justificatory basis of Russia launching missiles into Lviv to destroy the electrical infrastructure. Like, that's not what India is saying. India is saying it seeks a cessation of hostilities, not that Russia's hostilities are justified on defensive grounds. And, oh, by the way, maybe we should have a political settlement. They're saying a political cessation... Hostilities should cease, which yeah, obviously the like U.S. is impeding as well, and that the warfare writ large is regrettable and must be stopped. Um, yeah, so well, that's, not, yeah. that's not what these guys are saying. They're partisans of the actual war effort because they have this whole convoluted theory about how it's defensive or whatever, which, again, I'm sorry, I don't buy. I know the history with the Donbass and so on. Um, but I, I don't see any evidence that all of a sudden in February of 2022, there was this like overwhelmingly obvious defensive rationale that just emerged that makes everything Russia does militarily, you know, um, intrinsically justified because it's for defensive purposes. I think, you know, clearly the, the I mean, even just go, by going with the rationale is for the war that Putin himself articulates. Putin expanded the parameters of Russia's war aims unambiguously on the, in September. On, not unambiguously, based on... Or it's well, yeah, unambiguously. It's not unconditional. It's based on the condition of longer-range weapons, which we then said... He basically okay, said he still expanded them. 
Yes, but the condition was upon our expansion of the the war. So that's the whole point. Is that this? Who? What are the odds that Russia wants to wind it up instead of down? If we would stop the aid, that, I mean, that, come on, Andrew, think of it this way. You're telling me that. I mean, okay, granted, we're talking about this in a vacuum now, but this is just to get to the heart of the matter, sort of conceptually as best we can. Mm-hmm. If you were just told that, look, there's some conflict happening that could, that if not addressed, could lead to additional warfare, and some external party or some party needs to bring a stop to whatever conflict is going on in order to ensure that that future warfare is prevented. And the way that they have to go about doing that is to launch a military campaign to forcibly impose regime change and topple the government. I mean, with that, just superficially, just as at first blush, would that strike you as like an argument that you would find convincing or that does that strike you as like the contours of an argument that once delved into you could say to yourself oh yeah you know what that makes perfect sense i mean i don't know i'm not in the habit of as, what do you mean as defensive what do you mean it, it makes sense yeah i mean def- for whatever reason i mean you're saying that well, if that russia wins the, the war then that you puts can, an end to the violence right yes that would be correct okay I think and largely, if, if, if you in comparison to if what we're doing now and obviously we both understand this in a one-way escalator correct Sorry, no, I, it's, that's, sure the situation is going to be increasingly escalatory. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the trajectory clearly okay. is escalatory. So yeah. he, we're making a comparison here. Do we want a couple hundred thousand more dead Ukrainians or do we want 50,000 dead Ukrainians that wouldn't stop resisting, but the, they surrendered because the West eventually, which is, by the way, hint, hint, hint. Guess what, guys? Spoiler alert. That's what's going to happen. I'll whisper like Joe Biden. So maybe the Democrats understand we're going to stop giving them aid. Jack. Well, I'm not so sure about that. So that's what's going to happen. It's Why are you so sure of that? Because Jan Stoltenberg's already saying we're running out of weapons, and I know you don't like But that's Ryan why they're Rebutting. boosting industrial capacity right now. And it's they they just passed that in the NDAA. It's going to take years. for these. For right. just, they're, they're in it for the long haul. For, but that's <laughs> the Ukrainians don't necessarily have that kind of time. That's the whole point. They literally are saying right now they're running out of ammunition. They're telling the Ukrainians. And it's this is that all, since April. But they're advising them to slow down. They're right. shooting. They're, this is this is an increasingly dire situation for the Ukrainians. It's these are things that you can find in Western media releases, which is one of the things. Whether or not we, you know, enjoy this pedantic argument or whether it's pedantic or not, I don't Brian think it's gives a lot though. of this. Brian Berletic gives a lot of this information, which is why I value him, and I think there was benefit well, to this conversation, and I I, I think that. You know, I, I wish it had gone better, but I do think that there was as bad as as much of a meme as Ingle is, there was some good faith in the sense that they really wanted to figure out what your position is here and they, they believe that it's obvious articulated right, <laughs> yeah, every which God. way. I don't know how much more clearly to articulate it at this point. You know, another thing I object to, Andrew, is that they have this just like dogmatic faith or what's what's comes across anyway as this dogmatic certitude that everything Russia could conceivably do in further in furtherance of its, its purported war aims is justified on the grounds that it's quote defensive. Now, I don't think they would say everything. Well, I, I mean, say, uh, no, I definitely in practice. I mean, do they object to anything Russia has done on the grounds that it was well, not defensive? I'd like to talk to them about them as individuals. Well, I mean, I, I I got one of them. I got them. I mean, well, let's just n- narrow it down then. Both of them said. 
that because I just I just gave this as a random recent example that happened to happen within the last 24 hours, not for any other reason than recency. Did I mention that Russia's bombing the electrical infrastructure of Lviv in western Ukraine as of you know yesterday morning or something? Yeah. So, so you're saying that that's justified on the grounds of defense? I'm sorry, if defense is so if yeah, defensive war, war is so nebulous of a concept yes. that it could basically encompass pretty much everything that Russia could do to immiserate Ukraine. Well, well, it's not everything. That's one if, well, thing. It, they're it doing morale. They're, they're doing strategic bombing right now in in the sense of they're trying. They're they're undertaking military action in Ukraine for the purpose of degrading the morale of the Ukrainian populace. Now, the U.S. has done this yes. pl- done this plenty, including in World War II which was also justified on defensive grounds because four years earlier, Japan bombed a military installation in the Pacific. Um, but, so, but if you told me that, you know, because it's a fundamentally defensive war it, that the U.S. That, that caused the U.S. to enter into that war in 1941, that because of the Pearl Harbor bombing, that that means that in you know, four plus years later, they can just obliterate anything they want in Germany or Japan, in or specifically, and this is the expressly articulated reasoning for it, to basically heap misery onto the populace such that they would seek for their government to stop the war. Um, yeah, you could make that de- argument on defensive grounds, but it's so elastic of an argument that it becomes conceptually incoherent. Um, so- if you're saying that, no, Russia is just acting in its own defense because of the Donbass and of the Maidan, and that's why it's trying to inflict deliberate harm on the civilian population of Ukraine. That's justified. No, I'm sorry. I don't think I've ever justified any state's offensive military action or whatever action, offensive slash defensive, which is kind of a nonsense distinction anyway. I don't think I've ever sought to justify deliberate attempts by a warring state to inflict misery and death and destruction on civilian populations. So if you're That's in a position war. now where you're doing that, that I, I know I, I do. I know I, ha- I have to wonder what your sort of like moral uh, bearings are. My point, that's war there. Every war is going, but to that's not an exactly thing. That's that war is not an argument, but that, but no, it is because you're saying it's some kind of elastic concept. The second you start dropping bombs on another country, you're harming the civilian population, whether you hit a right. tank or whatever else. It's all harming the civilian pop. It, but no one's trying to target this. That's not a military objective, Russia, not to target the civilians. Well, yes, it There's is. Plenty, it is absolutely... The idea of targeting civilian power grid and civilian infrastructure, which is a dual-use uh, Oh, facility. please, Andrew. I mean, I've oh, heard come this... On. I've heard it's this true. argument a million times with yeah, regard to the U.S. Oh, it's dual use. Any war. Find me a war where they didn't do that. Find me a war where they had the capability and it was a serious enough war. That yeah, and I'll find you can. a war where they did it and where I wasn't being bludgeoned into somehow admitting that supporting that is anti-war. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's anti-war. I didn't they, always, they always fudge this stuff where they'll say that civilian infrastructure is actually dual use because you can power up a... Uh, an armored vehicle with the same electrical source or something. I mean, this is the same. This is the argument that the Ukrainian people made when they bombed, yes. when they did the truck bombing on the bridge in Crimea. That oh, and it's dual use, so it doesn't matter that they incinerated five civilians because it's technically dual use. I mean, it's a logical sort of formulation that is adopted it, as a as a sort of as like a, a contingent on 
their overall support for the war effort that they're a partisan of. And thus, it's sort of like detached from any kind of recognizably coherent, at least in my mind, sort of moral uh, calculus, because I, I don't know, it's a, you can justify anything if you become a partisan. You for can't justify... Tr- you can most anything. No, you can't justify dropping chemical weapons in Kiev, which they haven't done. And most commentators have said they were surprised with the light touch that Russia used when they went in. And that's because they were sure. trying to resolve it with the minimum amount of carnage. But now, because of the West, which this rally is trying to end the carnage and supply of, they've had to increase it. And the, the, the process of doing that involves hitting civilian infrastructure like power. That's a fact of literally all war. If you're going to have a war on this scale, that's the kind of shit that's going to happen. And we're, they're, you know, we're not, uh, Russia's not dropping napalm on children, are they? No, we do that kind of stuff. That's, that's, well, I mean, I've seen some, what look like white phosphorus type stuff being dropped, or at least like incendiary uh, bombings. It's incendiary. Um, Yeah, yeah, that is. Okay, which is indiscriminate. Military. So you're first saying it's not Russia. Russia's not deliberately bombing civilians as a no, matter of its stated war aims. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. That's what they said in World War II about the bombings of civilian population centers in Germany and Japan. That's not what we're explicitly intending do to do. We just happen to be dousing entire civilian populated areas yes. with indiscriminate incendiary, uh, uh, you know, explosives. I mean, it, it's a it's a distinction without a difference. It's still the, 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 it's still the party that takes that action, meaning to drop incendiary explosives on a wide range of area without discrimination. They're the ones who are culpable then for the ensuing carnage. You can say that you know, NATO Russia expanded in, in, in 2004, which is true, and I've, you know, I'm not going to deny the relevance of that in a broader contextual sense. But like, I'm, I'm sorry, that's an excuse to justify or that's an attempt to what, deflect from the culpability of the party who actually what, carries no. out that civilian so, uh, that 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 action that results in the infliction of civilian suffering i think war crimes can take place in a defensive war clearly okay i think you would agree with that and that I don't know what a tar- defensive war is frankly i think this is just a cliche that people bandy about go look in the literature i mean i mean uh, the just war theory has been debated through the ages and there's no consensus as to what is the defensive war. Like one of the things that this guy, Brian Berletic says is that, you know, he was trying to, he lectured me. I think, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or in the space. I think it was actually on Twitter. He was saying, no, Michael, what you don't understand because you're just ill-informed. I love that. that that's what these guys always tell me that I just like don't have requisite knowledge as though like I've, you know, I'm not, I don't know what happened in 2014. I'm just, total an, an ignoramus and that's why i'm saying what i do but anyway what what i don't understand is that it's just objectively true that this is a defensive war and that everything that the u.s has done has been an offensive war i'm not even trying to justify anything that, that the u.s has done well, but the, to, to to make to make it seem like there's this like doctrinal certainty as though it were you know communicated from god to moses on the hilltop and then inscribed on the sacred uh, stone tablets that no. such and such is a defensive war is just idiotic. I mean, that's not just, yeah, true. Just by all available evidence, much of which you've yourself well, no, by, by what available evidence? By what by available the- evidence is the bombing of civilian electrical infrastructure in Western Ukraine serving to strengthen the defense of Russia right now? People, people just claim that military. without substantiating does that it. Does that strengthen or weaken the capabilities of the Ukrainian military? That's, the, that's basically... 
I have no idea. Neither do you. You're not involved in the logistical. I'm pretty (laughs) sure lacking electricity is going to make it harder. I mean, yeah, I mean, it can make it harder. But I mean, so, (laughs) you know, civilian, if, hold on. But you also don't know that it's for a strictly military purpose either, because if it's strategic bombing with the intent of degrading the morale of the Ukrainian population, then they're dropping the bombs for a non-military purpose as well. I mean, just like the right. just like the United States did when it bombed the electrical grid of Be- uh, Belgrade in order to uh, undercut support w- among the civilian population for Milosevic, specifically by inflicting right. suffering on the civilian population. Without um, so, knowing Putin's mind, you can only say that's an effect. And Russia's right. clearly not, like I said, you can look at their pattern of behavior, and their behavior was not to, you know go in and terrorize the Ukrainian population to the maximum extent possible. And I would believe that pattern is continued. And, and, you know, there, there is still power in Ukraine. I don't know, Andrew. Hospitals. I mean, there, 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 this might come we across as like war, cheap emo- emotional manipulation. But, but when I, I don't know if you heard this when I mentioned it in the Twitter spaces thing. And I'm not one to go here most of the time. But I do think that it's worth at least trying to be mindful of what an average Ukrainian civilian who actually does, who doesn't really have a dog in the fight, right, or is not like some hardcore ideologue, but whose life was 100% disrupted and turned on its head because, you know, right down the block, for supposedly defensive purposes, Russia lobbed a couple of missiles and maybe like exploded the, um, you know, the, you know, whatever, the community center down the street or something, which has happened. Um, you know, when I was in Poland on the border in Jeshev uh, uh, and other places, and I went out of my way to do a non-NGO orchestrated series of interviews with actual people, you know, displaced Ukrainian women carrying their babies and extremely upset because their lives had just been upended. I'm going to say to them, sorry, you know, Olga. <laughs> of course it, not. It, you know, sorry, Olga. The missiles just fell down on your neighborhood for defensive purposes because don't you know what happened in 2014? It's just, it's a, it's you, a, well, it's a logical leap a that could, could, well, right, exactly. But that's not who we're talking to. We're talking to, this rally is not talking to them. This rally is talking to the DC establishment, the war machine that's in the title. That's who it's talking to. It's not looking for random refugees coming out of Ukraine and telling them, hey, you know, <laughs> Sucks for you, but that was a defensive well, war. Well, so forget about the rally then. I mean, if you're if you're making the argument about defensive war, which Brian does as like a you know seemingly like a zealot, and Hinkle and others, if you're if you're, I don't know if this is your perspective. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. But if you're saying if you're in favor of this line that the war is like so obviously, objectively, and like metaphysically defensive in nature that it's actually even demands, as they put it, affirmative support on moral grounds because of how straightforwardly defensive it is, then, yeah, you would have to make that argument to the displaced Ukrainian 30-year-old woman with her baby who had to flee across the border and doesn't know where she's going to stay that night. Because you have to say that you know, you're just collateral damage for what we insist because we watch some Ukraine on Fire documentary on Rumble, that this is a defensive war. So, sorry, you know, tough luck, but you just have, you're, you know, your su- suffering and the suffering of your baby is subordinated to our conviction 
that this is just a manifestly and indisputably defensive war. That's what well, you'd have yeah. to say if that's what if your, you your, your in position. If you believe defensive wars, if you believe a defense, which I, I think you'll agree with this claim, that at least some point in history, a defensive war has been waged. I, maybe like what? that's even beyond, you know, ever in human history. Well, give me an example. One group, uh, an example. Let's see. A defensive war. I don't know of how many. About, I think people have this weird conviction about something that they haven't looked into very much. In defensive sovereignty, when Ho Chi Minh fought the French, when he was fighting for uh, sovereignty, the defensive sovereignty, is that a defensive war that the French imperialists are dominating a Vietnamese country who then take up arms in defense of their own freedom, in defense of their own sovereignty? Do they get a chance to defend themselves, or is that not a defensive war? Because... The colonialists actually run the place, and they can't uh, they can't rebel because that's not defensive. They don't get to fight for anything. Um, you know, I don't know. It's 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 arguable. I mean, I think you know, I don't know a whole lot. I have to admit about that particular period of the Indochina conflict. Okay, then can you just? Tell um, but me but, ever- but hold up. But but there were other. De- I mean, other countries achieved decolonization in Africa and elsewhere sure. by sure. through. Negotiated settlement. I mean, that's just true. I mean, yeah, so yeah. I mean, there is. It's one way yeah. to do it sometimes, but other. Well, ways how, about, how about wars between states? For, so forget like uh, you know an well, insurgency. Why? why? Can you well, because that's what we're talking about here. Can we be straightforward then, and just can you tell me straightforwardly, yes or no? Do you think if you tried, you could ever come up with an example that you would be satisfied yourself saying in history it was a defensive war ever, or is that something in that you believe theoretically? Yeah, I have to say that yeah. it's possible. Like I don't, if, if I don't personally know of a good one off hard. the top of my head. No, I mean okay, people will say I, World War II, but I mean that's just usually based on some like folklore that they absorbed in ninth grade about World War II. How, so, I, mean, I mean, what about the wars between the Native Americans and the colonizing Americans? Were they defending themselves as they had their lands taken, their people raped, their contracts broken, their fucking entire race genocided? Was that a defensive war? I think I can come up with some defensive. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that's probably. Yeah, I think yeah. That's why. That's why I'm trying to. I mean, there's a there's been lots of armed conflict or you know conflict over the course of history, Andrew. So I mean, I don't think it's that unreasonable to say let's try to narrow it down to wars between states. Well, those were states. I think those Indian uh, Native Americans were states. They had republics. They had confederations. They had militaries. It wasn't the state we conceive of. There's, but okay. it's the same thing. It's the same. All right. Thing. Let, me, so let me let me just stipulate then that the war, whatever war efforts that were undertook by the Native Americans against the, like Andrew Jackson or something, were defensive in nature. I, okay. Are so, you saying that that's somehow like I'm there's a way to apply that to the to Russia's war in Ukraine? I, I, I don't yes, see it. I, I do. I do. See How? That that's the case because they they believe it's an existential threat, which I think it's pretty clear. Through the history of NATO, that it is an existential threat to Russia. The, the so it's, it comes down to Russia, what they believe, which is what any war like. It's comes the, like, to, like right? so we're not. What, so we can't what, then make a substantive evaluation about whether that belief is well merited. I think it's pretty easy if you look at a map, right? Because you could go. One of the things I heard John Kirby. I think you would actually find this amusing. John Kirby struggling to answer from Matt Lee. Did you see this? Matt Lee asking him. Did what was NATO this? It was. I just saw it today, but Matt Lee basically asked Kirby, so did NATO expand to Russia's border and 
uh, is that how we found NATO uh, having Russia on NATO's border, or did Russia expand to NATO? And basically, he had Kirby have to f- be forced to answer <laughs> that basically NATO's defensive, NATO's defensive. But that's not that's well, right. That's the thing. Is it de- defensive. Well, that, Andrew, that's who's, why who's, you can't go on. But hold on, that's why you can't go on what Kirby or Jens Stoltenberg or whomever says right. they believe about NATO in terms yeah, of it being a defensive alliance. You, you have, have to, to actually, if you want to get into a normative argument about what is justified and what isn't, then you're going beyond just like realism, right? Where, you know, Mearsheimer kind of extricates any sort of moral calculus from these like balance of power disputes between states. If you want to get into the moral dimension, mm-hmm. then you can't just go like what Russia said, you know, Russian government officials say they believe or what guessing, NATO yeah. officials say they believe. You actually have to get into the detail of whether their stated belief is justified and not just justified unto itself, but justified in the sense of giving justifiability to offensive warfare campaigns. Right. I'm, I'm not using it as a moral term so much as I, I guess it partially is inevitably has that weight, but it's, it's more of a process of what are the causes of the war. And I think the right. causes of the war for Ukraine are being used by the United States. They're a proxy puppet. They basically, you might not even forget Ukraine, right? Like if we're being adults here, (laughs) what is the U.S. motive and what is the Russian motive? The U.S. is the aggressor and the NATO is the aggressor. Pretty clearly, if we look at the whole picture in context, not just what John Kirby rants, but if that's what makes it hilarious is that it's obvious we walked up to their doorstep, started a war in a country that's historically Russian, literally has been Russian for most of history. And then we had a, a civil war funded that basically had undertones of ethnic genocide. And then we go, oh, geez, it's can we tell defensive war by Russia? Like, of course, that's what it's going to be perceived as by most people that look at the whole picture, I think. And that's why I find your work so valuable personally, because you expose the actual history, not just what God, John Kirby says. Well, thanks. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Sometimes I can sound sarcastic when I don't intend it because no, sarcasm I, I is just you. my, uh, sarcasm is just like my uh, default, default setting. Um, yeah, yeah. Monotone people, uh, we have an issue with but, but Andrew, I, I guess I, I don't understand why, because people will, you know, furious, like people in that Twitter spaces would furiously object to this, but... It seems pretty obvious to me that the decision by Putin on February 24th of last year was a decision to launch a preemptive war. Right, yeah. Um, I think Brian... It was, right? Yeah, okay. Brian would agree with that because he is... Okay, so the doctrine of preemption, I think... And I'm not saying it's the same as Iraq, okay? So I know people always rush to accuse me of making that claim when I'm not. But... That was, that's another recent example of a preempt, preemptive war. Now, you, you can have a preemptive war that's justified and not justified, or you can make that argument. But right. th- yeah, I sort of formed my views around these topics in large part because my adolescence coincided with the Iraq war, right? And there was a huge mm-hmm. body of literature about oh, the doctrine of preem- preemptive war itself. Um, not just whether it happened to be justified in the case of Iraq, but preemption as a doctrine, right? And there was a very compelling, I can give you a firm citation, I wish I could right now. There's a very compelling case that preemption, that, oh, sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah. Now it seems we're back on track. Okay. There's a very very compelling case that you can find, you know, in like moral uh, philosophy, that preemption as a doctrine, so forget about Iraq in particular, Preemption as a doctrine is 
sort of necessarily coincident with aggressive war because to launch a war preemptively is to initiate the aggression, right? So, and you can quibble with whether that's true and maybe I'm not summarizing it perfectly, but that was a very common understanding as to the defensibility of preemptive war as a doctrine circa early 2000s, even separate from the specifics of the situation with Iraq and Bush and whatever, right? So to say now that, oh, no, forget all that, this preemptive war or th this invocation of the doctrine of preemption last February is 100% justified on purely defensive grounds. I mean, again, that's an argument you can make, but to act like it's so obviously straightforward and like above contestation, I find really bizarre and obnoxious, actually. I'm not accusing you of being bizarre and obnoxious, but, you know, Brian seems... Uh, it wouldn't be convinced the first person. Okay. Um, and I'm bizarre and obnoxious myself at times, for sure. Um, but, like, I mean, I don't know. Preemptive. All of a sudden, I'm now obliged. I'm not, not just me, but like no. anybody who's like a moral... A coherent moral thinker is obliged to endorse preempted the preempt the doctrine of preemption. I see, no, see, this is a separate point that I think is credible from you here. Whereas you could just be a complete pacifist. You could say, well, I don't "No, have you don't have to be a complete fight. pacifist by rejecting well, the doctrine of preemptive war." In, in, other, words, in, in other words, in other words, anyone who rejects the doctrine of preemption is right, not okay. necessarily yeah, a pacifist. You don't have to be. No, you don't have to no, be. But you could. Right. I'm just saying that's one plausible. If you. If I was applying it to this specific scenario. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Preemptive war could be seen as aggressive. Preemptive violence in general could be seen as aggressive. If someone has a loaded gun and they're waving it around, at what point are they a threat to you? Right. That's and also, legal, also Andrew, a, I'm not a, sure I understand why you seem to be so convinced that any non-militaristic avenues for resolving the conflict in Ukraine as it existed per... February 2024, uh, sorry, 2022, I don't know why I said 2024, were uh, 100% untenable. I know what happened with Minsk. I know what Merkel said. I don't think said. anything is 100%. Well, right, exactly. I mean, in the, in the, I, in the grand sweep of history, it had only been eight years. So I don't know. I think, I think actually diplomacy can tend to work. I, I mean, especially if within no, a no, matter no, of no, weeks, no. especially if within a matter of weeks, there was the tentative outlines of an agreement as per Naftali Bennett that Ukraine would... Um, you know, uh, demilitarized yeah. in the sense of being, becoming militarily neutral and a firm not joining NATO and so forth. I mean, it seems like there were potential openings for a diplomatic arrangement of some sort, even pre-February 24th, that are not so radically implausible that it would seem to just, you know, again, reflexively justify anything that Russia wants to do in terms of warfare on the grounds that it's supposedly it's, it's, defensive. To me, defensive. It's a, it's a, I, I'm not 100% on anything. I'm saying it's a probability game and have some empathy in the sense of put yourself in the shoes of a nation that has NATO waving its gun in its face. And at what point are you allowed, allowed to react? Because you're never allowed to react, by the way. That's the answer. You'll never, it doesn't matter what Russia does. They're always going to be the enemy. You know, it, it, a lot of people said that Ukraine was about to launch an offensive on the LPR and DNR or whatever uh, because of the increased amount of artillery and the amount of soldiers that are moving around. But right. it, it, there's there's a lot of arguments you could make about this specific war. I'm saying by probability and by empathy, I'm coming to the conclusion that Russia basically felt backed into a corner 
And actually, if you read what they're saying today, they said they're acting way too late. We should have done this earlier before NATO had a chance to build up. And maybe the carnage would even have been less then because Ukraine would have surrendered quickly. If they had done this when Obama was in office, you know, maybe he would have actually done the right thing and backed out because Obama had the sense at the time. But who knows? But yeah, the, and there are all the sorts of was, contingencies. I mean, if, like, if Trump is right and if he had won re-election, there wouldn't have been a war. Well, like that's just one variable in a whole constellation of variables that if you switched it out would have changed the timeline radically. Um, so if that was the only variable that had to be switched out, then this idea that it was like the do or die moment in February 2024 and all of a sudden preemptive, preemptive war was the only conceivable option and you can understand it's if you're empathic enough. Well, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Who's... Are we trusting Trump when he says? I mean, that's no. I'm saying I'm saying assuming that he's right. I don't I don't I don't trust oh, him at all. Yeah. Well, but like, I you know, don't, just stipulate I, I that he's correct. Even, I don't think he's actually correct, but you know, yeah, let's say he is. Not reality. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, I it's I if that were the case, then yes, it would be trivial. But I don't think it is that trivial because you know I, I think well, larger I'm not sure. I mean, like, so let's say let's say Trump was in office. I, mean, I I hate counterfactuals, but sometimes I have to indulge, right? Yeah. Let's say Trump was in office in December of 2021 when Russia sends that sort of like ultimatum-style letter to the State Department where they lay out the demands or whatever, the um, conditions that it's seeking to avert war in Ukraine. Um, and the president, whoever's in office, whether it's Trump or anybody else, says, you know, we're not going to do this whole like holier-than-thou routine that Biden and Blinken and Newland do where they're saying that like the most sacrosanct hist- uh, principle in the history of mankind is to maintain the open door policy of NATO. And we'll actually give you a written, you know, um, uh, formal assurance uh, of the kind that you're seeking that Ukraine actually will be militarily neutral. I mean, that's not that crazed. I mean, it, it's not, that's I not so far fetched is- a scenario that I can't imagine it ever possibly happening in any universe. I really can't. I think we'd all be dead. I think we'd all be dead because Trump would do some stupid shit like what he did with Soleimani. Maybe. I, but the, Let's say John Huntsman I mean, was president. <laughs> I don't know if you don't know who that is. But, the point in yeah. that scenario is that the West is bringing themselves to the negotiating table and actually treating Russia's concerns like they're legitimate, which is not the case. And in that, in that scenario where Russia is understanding this so continuously over decades, they're going to act at some point. And this just happens to be the point. And I don't agree with war. I wish, you know, in World War One, I, I would have said, let's have all the sides stop. I'm with the workers of the world, unite kind of thing. Let's not kill each other. But in this scenario where nukes are involved, and this is really the, the central point for me and why I care about this at all, is that I think this rally actually could be important. And I do kind of agree with your suspicions of ops at play and people being smeared. And I think Max Blumenthal has been paying attention to that. And I'd like you to talk to him at some point. I have talked to him about it. Okay. I would love to know if most of these, most of the stuff that I, I I mean, I've been aware of this for a while. Most of the concerns that I've raised were in private for a long time. And, you know, nothing happened. Tara Reid, still the face of the, I mean, (laughs) give me a freaking break. And I know that's sort of a side issue. But it's that's know, so but is humiliating. That worth World War III is that worth World? Well, no, I mean, that's <laughs> okay. But you can't. It's everything done in the ostensible name of 
preventing World War III. I mean, sorry, you can't just say let's prevent World War III and that, that somehow trickles down into like providing an affirmative defense for everything that's done pursuant to that aim. I'm like, not no, I don't think that Tara Reid no. being, I don't I'm think a con that. artist being elevated as the face of a, you know, movement that actually has a very sort of noble lineage insofar as you can trace a lineage of an anti-war movement throughout American really? history. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it does. I, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, it, glomming on to that is should be exempt from criticism because such and such World War III. Criticize it all you want. That's, all, I'm, that's not... I mean, I'm what do you think about that? I think that's a bad speaker to have. I don't understand. Is she speaking? Yeah, she is, is and she's she, not just speaking. They're putting her in the promotional material, and they're okay. making mocking up graphics showing as her as this like clairvoyant vo uh, voice. I mean, it's absurd. I don't understand what she has to do with any of it or why she's speaking. All I'm saying she I, confabulated I, a, I, like a tall tale about Joe Biden in 1993, and then she marshaled that into this you know little uh, alt media platform, and you know manipulated people into you know giving a profile. I mean, it's it's actually I, pathetic. But what um, I'm saying is as she has nothing to do with Ukraine or Russia or the war effort. Well, yes, she does. I mean, well, she's a, what is she she's a commentator. I mean, she's, she thinks she's some kind of pundit now where she has this, like, okay. little podcast gig. And I don't know. Apparently, she's the producer for Kim Iverson. How that happens, um, I, I'm, uh, I don't know. I shouldn't say anymore because I don't, I don't want to create drama and stuff. But it's just like, Look, sorry, I can't. I can't. Uh, I guess maybe my temperament is such that I can't see that and say, oh, because of World War III, I can't criticize like the most glaringly obvious criticizable it's thing. It's not in the world. a yeah. It's a matter of priority. I think I agree with your criticisms of that being valid. I just for me the priority is what could what good could come of this rally, which I do think there are points that could be built upon. I'm not saying this is the perfect iteration. Clearly, it's far. I'm from not so it, sure. Well, anyway, just to wrap up, about, Andrew, because we got on for a while, and I you know, know I appreciate I'm, the uh, interchange with you, but I'm I'm in Munich right now because at least for my own personal purposes. I feel like what I can do to contribute is better served by going to the Munich I, Security Conference this week and try to ferret out some good information. So we'll see. Could I, could I ask one last thing? If, yeah. you, if what I've described the rally's core uh, demands as and what you understand the rally's core demands as, you would agree with the spirit of that, correct? Am I incorrect? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would assume that basically you would agree with all the demands on that and apart from the bad organization and speakers, that the spirit and the core concept of the message you would agree with uh, is that. Well, I'm not sure what the core concept is because, like, I mean, the the, okay. the the demands on the website are like not the only material that one would take into account when assessing what the sort of organizational impetus for the rally is. That it also well, goes to who they choose yeah. to spotlight and what those people's views are on the you know the war in question. So, what I mean, about just the demands. Just the demands, then. I know they're um, kind of sporadic, but I think I don't have to. I gotta. Well, let, let me, I gotta look at them one more time, just because I don't have them 100 percent fresh in my memory. But uh, so when you read the them, did any object to you? Did they stick out as objectionable? Hold on, give me one second. Them? Give me one second. Okay. Rageagainstwar.com. Blah 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 blah. One of them's like Assange, uh, which I'm not sure. Yeah, like so. I mean, not that I object to that, but like why? Is that, I agree. Like, relevant? There's, there's valid criticisms, but I'm just. <laughs> this is such an important thing, and I get 
if you it recognize its importance, you want it to be as good as it is, which is why you should criticize it and why I've defended you and been blocked by people for doing so. Says, negotiate peace, the U.S. instigated the war in Ukraine. So no, I mean, I, I don't agree with that as a flat statement. I think it's much more complicated than, than just saying as some sort of received yeah. wisdom that the U.S. instigated the war in Ukraine because it, I think is that a reasonably, what? Was, was the U.S. an instigatory, that's a word, force in various aspects of how this conflict developed that? But just to say that the, flat out that he was instigated the war in Ukraine, no, I, w- I wouldn't sign on to a well, statement that makes a sort of unqualified, you know, uh, declaration worded that way. No, I wouldn't. Is that, a, is that one of the demands? Well, yes, it's, it's right under number two. The U.S. instigated the war in Ukraine with a coup on its democratically okay. elected government in 2014. You know, I'm also, okay. you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sort of... Uh, I know I'm, I'm a little ambiguous on what happened in 2014 as well. Not that the U.S. wasn't agitating for the overthrow of the mm. government in Ukraine in 2014. It clearly was. But um, I don't know. I do think that there was a, you know, clearly a, a, a radicalized sort of you know, indigenous, if you want to put it that way, element within Ukraine that was seeking to. I don't know. I just the. the there's like a dogmat- dogmatic certitude that I read in some of this that I personally would not just sign on to out of hand. Okay. Well, I think that if the rally got its demands, it would be a good thing, and everyone should support the demands of the rally, essentially, if you want an end to the conflict. And also, the, disband the NATO. I mean, like... <laughs> yeah, I'm all for that. Uh, well, okay, but I don't know. If, I, I just feel like if you were that you know, single-mindedly concerned about thwarting the potential of World War III, and you're adding on, like, an incredibly maximalist demand that NATO should just be disbanded, then you're it's sort of... The, it's yeah, weird. It's, it's sort of a weird dilution of what you think... What, what is supposed... Uh, what is, like, supposedly the central organizing impetus of what you're I, doing. Um, these so, are legitimate criticisms I agree with mostly. So, yeah. But thanks for your time. Uh, All right. Thanks, Andrew. This is an Appreciate it. Issue. And, uh... I, uh I do recognize that you're uh, back on Twitter, so I'm glad about that as well. All right. Now I can pester you there. Great. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that was uh, extensive, but I think uh, fruitful. So, hey, Jenny, sorry uh, to keep you waiting with that. No worries. I love listening to you t- to talk. I think Andrew's such a gift to Colin. Yeah, no, I, I, I like Andrew. That's why I call him Andrew number one, because one time there was a different Andrew, so... I decided yes. to distinguish him by calling him Andrew number one. <laughs> the, Andrew, the other Andrew is also very verbose. I've heard okay. him talk. <laughs> um, so I just think it's great that the anti-war activists are doing anything. Because I feel like whenever a Democrat has been president, eight years of Obama, eight years of Clinton, they just kind of go to sleep. And you do have Code Pink. They're pretty reliable. But they I backed out of the rally, didn't they? I'm not sure if they're a part of this one, but... Well, they were. They withdrew from it. I I haven't been following the story. My point is, I think it's powerful that anti-war activists are doing something. Even if you don't agree with it or you don't like what they're saying, I think it's good that there's a recognition that the war has some problems. And so that's that's my big well, sure. I, I mean, I agree that most of the, a lot of these people. Not I shouldn't say most, but I don't I don't agree that a lot of these people are, are could be reasonably said to be anti war activists in the first place. Um, yeah, certainly I not Jackson Hinkle. Made for that. They're, it's like what? Who's that? What's he doing? But my my bigger question is: Have you read Seymour Hirsch? What do you think about his claims? What do you think about the response to his claims? Yeah, well, you, I mean, you mean I've, the I've you mean the Nord Stream article? 
Yeah, I, I sit here yeah. a couple of weeks ago on your show. I believe the Biden administration blew up the pipeline. And here's Seymour with his substack that it just feels like the whole media is just yawning with his claim. So what do well, you yeah, think? Well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Jenny. I mean, and a lot of people had the same intuition. The thing is, and I think I even said this almost verbatim. I don't maybe it was two weeks ago. I forget even who it was to. It might have been to you. But like, you know, you, your intuition or your, you know, reasonably well-founded speculation as to who is culpable for bombing the Nord Stream pipelines is no substitute for actually having hard evidence. And yeah, I would say that Hirsch, with his article from whenever that was, February 9th, uh, laying out in meticulous detail the chronology of how the U.S., according to Hirsch, executed that secret operation to blow up the pipeline, I would say that is evidence um, and highly convincing evidence that the U.S. actually did carry out the operation as Hirsch describes. Um, so, you know, I think uh, one thing to point out about how the story's been received is, you know, people will latch on to, I mean, these OSINT guys are so obnoxious. There's this one guy who's like, looks like he's 23 and from Denmark or something. And if you look at his, he does like Substack where he says that, you know, he figured out that Norway didn't have this particular, uh, you know, military vessel at such and such coordinate on the date and time that, that uh, Hirsch suggests. I mean, as though that's dispositive of anything and as though there couldn't be, you know, obviously clandestine action that wouldn't be observable to him because it's, clandestine for a particular reason, which is that they were going to great lengths to keep this under wraps until Hirsch reported it. But this guy, if you read his article, I forget his name now, sorry, but um, I don't know, it'll, 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 maybe it'll come to me, but he actually has the nerve to just say flat out that he has debunked Seymour Hirsch right. with his little OSINT analysis, which is just so, it's almost like juvenile in how arrogant it is. I'm not even sure if he would be able to recognize how arrogant it is. He's like the self-proclaimed, you know, independent security analyst or whatever, because he knows how to do quote OSINT. Um, well, and, and so, calling yeah. Him, calling him a conspiracy theorying blogger as right. a summation of this mighty career is insulting. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming a lot of people, because actually Hirsch was sort of um, in the background for the past couple years. During the Trump administration, he really didn't come out with that many major stories, I think in part because he was like, and I know, I know this to be true, I think he was more sort of, uh, mm, his journalistic antenna was more uh, uh, situated toward like the excesses of the Trump opposition than of Trump himself, which you know, roughly characterizes my own journalistic antenna or whatever. And also Hirsch put out a memoir in 2018 that he worked on for a while. So there's been, it's, been, it's been a few years now that he's really put out one of these recurrent bombshell um, articles. So there are a bunch of people who probably have only really become familiar with Hirsch for the first time. Maybe they heard of him, but they didn't really do a deep dive on him and his background and whatever, his sources and methodology. But if you have... And I really recommend his memoir. It's 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 really good. It's um, called Reporter. But you know the thing that you just can't deny is that his methodology, 
has been vir- vir- uh, virtually exactly the same throughout his entire career, including how he approached his approach to sources and what have you. Um, so this idea that it's somehow novel that Hirsch only quotes one source, and this guy John last week made a really good point about this in Colin. This idea that because Hirsch only cites one quoted source, that means that he relied entirely on one single individual for the information that was derived that led to the creation of this article is just not true or not uh, known to be true based on what's in the article, right? Or in other words, we don't know for sure, and nobody does, other than Hirsch and maybe his editors, because he actually does have editors at Substack and fact checkers, which people don't understand maybe, and try to denigrate it as a blog to make it seem like there's not a rigorous editorial process that uh, went into the production of the article. Um, did you, did, you yeah. read his, did you read his follow-up? He just dropped it the other night. The, oh, the, no, I haven't, I haven't read that yet. I will. Yeah, the frustration that he expressed was just screaming off the page as I was reading because he was just gobsmacked at the response, especially by the other news media. Like, yeah, that's it? I talked to him myself, actually. <laughs> you did? Yeah, you know, just over, uh, you know, just not, not too um, robustly, but yeah. Um, well, I think yeah, you're going to see yeah. a whole bunch of people defecting to the anti-war posture, virtue signaling how, how much they were against the war. They had no idea that the Biden administration did anything wrong, you know, and now that there's proof, you're going to see people getting off the fence and choosing a side. And because it's kind of sexy and cool to be anti-war, you're going to see all these people who've been absolutely for every, everything that's happened with Ukraine slowly start to back away and just pretend that they were always against the war. This is the side of it that well, I... Well, yeah. Really I mean, that's the pattern for every war, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Well, thank you so all much. Right, thanks, Jenny. Call. And I got to tell you, I, I believe Tara Reid. You know, I believe Joe Biden. Well, I, I don't know why you believe that, but I mean, let's not get into it for now because it's a whole Apparently, other kind of her, her own mother called into the Larry King show and talked about her daughter. I, yeah, I, I know. If you're if you want to, I mean, I'm almost resist hesitant to even get further into it, but I covered that in the I did an article for The Spectator that's very lengthy and pretty comprehensive in 2020. If you want to look it up on the Terry situation, and the mother called Larry King and didn't say anything about sexual assault or rape. The mother said that her daughter, who had just terminated, as we found out, from Biden's Senate office a few days prior, had a problem in the office in terms of workplace dynamics, not that there was a sexual assault. So, I mean, all that corroborates is that she was fired as, like, a low-level mailroom assistant, which she was. I'm not trying to be pejorative. That's what she was for, you know, workplace incompetence in August of 1993. It doesn't corroborate anything. When people say that it's corroboration, it's just not. Um, Well, I'll go read your piece. Okay, thanks, Jenny. I didn't know you did a deep dive on it, and uh, I'll go check that out. I do think Biden's a predator, though. Uh, I mean, I I just don't think there's evidence for that at all. I know people think that, but I think it's dumb. I mean, the plenty of le- uh, there's plenty of legitimate stuff to criticize Biden for. I don't know why people have to think that everybody that they dislike politically is also a sexual predator nowadays. But that's another subject. Um, uh, all right, thanks, Jenny. All right, uh, Arashk. Hello. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Were you on last week? Uh, yes, because I was on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
So thank you for answering me. I, I don't want to go into the whole the whole rally thing, but all I have to say is that these people keep on saying it's like an existential threat to Russia, and they don't realize that it's much more of an existential threat to Ukraine. I mean, to an average Ukrainian, um, they don't want Donbass to be the next Kuban, and then Donbass, the, like, the next region should be the next Donbass, and eventually Odessa, and so on and so on. Just, they keep, they, I mean, these are Russian imperial, like, um, um, it, it just it, the Russia is trying to just bring back its imperial empire. And I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that. It's trying to bring back its imperial empire. You know, people make that claim like they're trying to reconstruct the that Soviet it, Union or Russian it, Empire or something. But you're right in that the war actually pretty obviously is an existential threat to Ukraine in the sense of Russia is seeking to or has sought and probably continues to seek the toppling of the Ukraine government. Um, yeah. So if that's what you would regard as yeah, yeah, I, warranting to call it existential in nature in terms of the stakes for Ukraine. Yeah, I and mean, that's pretty obviously the case. I don't mean it in the MSM way. I just mean that like no, I gotcha. they're just doing its own imperialism and they're like arguing against imperial, American imperialism and justifying Russian imperialism. It's just pretty ridiculous. I mean, it's anyway. But um, I just want to note before I ask my question, you said you're in Munich. Um, recently there was a, like a... Uh, anti-Iranian government r- protests in um, Los Angeles. I think there's going to be mm-hmm. another one in Munich. I don't know if you can like go there and stuff and ask some people because there's been this like division between the two groups. So I don't know if you can get. I don't know anything about that really. I'll keep an eye out if I can. I do know that for the first time, the Munich Security Conference, which is basically the, the preeminent, yeah, you know, NATSEC conference in uh, Europe each year, um, it. Uh, disinvited any official representatives, both of Iran and Russia, um, because, you know, which is basically a statement that, you know, if the Iranian or Russian governments want to have their diplomatic representatives welcome at the Munich Security Conference, this premier, you know, global, it's not even just European, I mean, China is sending people and whatever, um, and the government must be changed. So, you know, regime yeah. change is the precondition <laughs> for further participation in the Munich Security Conference. But I, uh, I don't know about that, the protests. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Anyway, to my actual, I don't want to talk too much about it. I know I keep on asking around, but it's because I'm really like right. heartbroken because I hate the government and then I hate the people against it. But my actual question is like, with the whole China balloon thing, and then they did this whole like shooting now three, four things. It was such big news in Canada. It was more of an embarrassment because like, um, they were saying, why didn't America shoot down this object that was in Yukon? And all? I I really want to see, like, because it, it, it now is coming out all that was a lie, which is, like, it was so obvious. Like, um, do you think, like, similar to my previous question, do you think they were really, really, really trying to lay down, like, this, like, panic to create a framework for, like, actual war with China? Because, again, the military bases in Philippines, they're doing this stuff with Japan now. I think especially after the defeat of the election in Taiwan, they're focusing more on Japan and Korea, but especially Japan because Korea is like a little more balanced. So it just seemed in, in Australia too, like there's been a debate in Australia if like they should have nukes or American nukes or something, if I'm not wrong, if I'm not correct. Um, it just, it's getting worse and worse with China, especially since, you know, the Ukraine-Russia war is kind of declining. I mean, I, they're probably going to make the Zaporizhia offensive, but for the most part, they're pivoting to China, and it's just—it's so crazy. Like all the warmongering, it's—it's. It's, well, yeah. I mean, I, well, first of all, uh, Arash, I'm not sure 
it's safe to say at this point that they're pivoting to China, at least in the sense that the Ukraine war is winding down or something. I mean, every day we're being warned about the imminence of these supposed offensives that are going to yeah. be enormous. I mean, like in that a mess. Both Russia and Ukraine are, are launching, maybe more in the long term, I guess you're right. You know, I don't know. It's impossible to say. I kind of doubt or I tend to doubt that there was some official in the Pentagon or wherever, or even Biden himself, who had a conscious thought where, oh, let's use this spy balloon incident over Montana specifically to gin up animosity toward uh, China. And that's why we're going to handle the situation the way we're going to handle it. I mean, I don't know. It's, it seems like it was kind of unplanned and happenstance that the balloon entered the continental U.S. airspace in the first place. So that there was like some grander design behind it. I'm not sure. Uh, especially, like- especially, especially because, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there was some, I, I'm not sure that there was some grander design behind it, but if, if it only be entered into the public consciousness because like somebody at the Billings Gazette happened to take a video of it. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, that would be a pretty elaborate scheme, but that setting that aside, clearly it neatly fits into the, you know, thoroughly bipartisan push for, an escalation of belligerent posture with China, as I think actually the Philippines uh, base announcement yeah. on the same week as the chi- initial Chinese spy balloon is much more consequential in that regard. The, yeah. the spy balloon stuff just seems like a um, an offshoot of this general trend in the way that it was kind of like repurposed into this anti-China sort of uh, rabble-rousing opportunity for mm-hmm. a lot of people with, you know, Republicans in particular saying, you know, Joe Biden is weak on China because he didn't shoot down the, you know, uh, t- double bus-sized aerial object over Billings, Montana, and waited until yeah. it was off the coast of South Carolina. I mean, that's sort of absurd. But yeah, I mean, I do think um, it's clearly, it's, whatever the exact story is in terms of how the balloon entered the U.S. airspace, uh, there's no denying that it was almost immediately seized on for, yeah, that exact geopolitical... Purpose but, that you, you spelled out there. Yes, but my main point is that, like, with Russia and Ukraine, they're probably just going to keep it a proxy war because it's easier. But it seems like with China, they really want an actual, like, physical war. You know, like how Bannon talked about it, like, while backing up. Yeah. yeah, it really seems... Well, Bannon wants, to, want, Bannon wants regime change. Bannon yeah, says the <laughs> Chinese, uh, the Communist Party of China, which they all say the CCP instead of yeah, uh, CPC. I'm not sure why. It's like how they, you know, Republicans will say Democrat Party instead of Democratic Party is yeah. like a way to malign them or something. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there definitely is a segment. I mean, I, I do think it's probable. I mean, although there's pretty much full consensus on China within the bipartisan political class, I do think that it probably will be the case that a Republican president will be more likely to take like really drastic, offensive sort of threshold crossing action against China more so than a Democrat. But of course, it's I wouldn't rule it out with a Democrat either. I mean, Biden actually did take threshold crossing action, mm-hmm. exceeding even that of Trump when Biden yeah. said for the first time for an American president on three separate occasions that the U.S. will go to war with China over Taiwan mm-hmm. um, in the event of some you know Chinese incursion in Taiwan. Trump that publicly on numerous occasions. Trump never said that. So, you know, it's a crapshoot as to who would actually take that, you know, uh, you know, take that uh, threshold crossing action, like I said. But just because you've got my fears, like they do so much of this talk in like the, um, 
you know, the islands and ocean, like Solomon, Marshall, and all these islands have, like, big deals with the American military. And, like, it feels like there's going to be another, like, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's getting crazy anyway. Like, uh, like uh, you know, in World War Two, there was all these battles over all these tiny island nations in Japan and the U.S. And, like, they're just, like, almost trying to recreate right. that. It's just, I, I feel like there's much more fear from an actual physical war between the two countries and that than, like, Russia, Ukraine, which is probably going to be more of a brutal proxy war. Right. Know, they probably wanted that to be more like in Afghanistan. This is like war, war. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, clearly the, <laughs> the potential eventualities uh, around U.S. conflict with China are pretty, pretty grave. So, all right, Arash, thanks. We have a lot of people, so we want to kind of go slightly quickly through them, but, you know, you can, you can, you guys can speak as much as you'd like, hopefully. Hey, Brent. Hi, Michael. So I'm not really familiar with your channel, so um, I just okay. saw your title, and um, <laughs> I'm curious. It's a bit sar- uh, What is anti-war to you? Because people play semantics with this term. No, no, I mean, Brent. I mean, the, the, the it's a sarcastic title. People play semantics with like whenever I anti-war is not. I don't mean pacifism. Like that's just I think that's also wrong because you sh- you have to defend yourself. Anti-war to me and to I believe the the general public, correct me if I'm wrong, is not using military intervention unless you are attacked. Hmm. Unless self-defense. I mean there might be some variations on that, but I believe that's the term. That's what they mean when they when people say they're anti-war. Yeah, well, here's the crux of how I'm using it in this context. And uh, right. uh, by the way, I wouldn't expect you to be familiar necessarily with this call-in channel, but the, I tend to use sarcastic uh, titles just because that's my default setting, sarcasm. But um, the way I'm thinking of it in this context is that if you are op- opposed to a warring parties military campaign in a war zone, then you are anti-war in that you're opposed to that warfare campaign. So like if 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 I'm saying I'm opposed to the war in Ukraine, then I'm against the warfare that's being undertaken by the belligerent parties in the war in Ukraine. Um, Now, if you want to say that actually it's justified to be pro-war in the case of Ukraine because you support the rationale that's being put forward for the Russian war effort, then that's a potentially coherent argument you can make. But that's a pro-war argument in that it's an attempt by you to make an argument in favor of the Russian military campaign by reference to like a just war theory or something. It's just not an anti-war argument. Um, I also don't think that to be anti-war in one particular instance, as with, for example, this particular conflict in Ukraine, means that you have to be anti-war in every other conceivable instance. It also doesn't mean you have to be a pacifist. I mean, a pacifist has a philosophical opposition to warfare in every form, or you know, that's probably a reasonable distillation of what pacifism would mean. Um, but you know, you can be anti-war in the case of the Ukraine war now and support uh, another war down the line in five years. And you could say that that's a um, you know, consistent 
position on your part because you never claimed to be a pacifist, which could be, you know, fair enough. So that, that's the way that in which that I'm, I mean it. Like if you're saying that you're supporting a war effort, right, whatever the, the belligerent party is, then that's a pro-war statement that you're making. Um, and to kind of uh, retrofit some sort of anti-war, you know, pretension onto it, I think is uh, not just misguided in like some moral or ethical sense or whatever it may or may not be, but it's just so fundamentally kind of logically contradictory that it's, it, it just kind of inherently obscures the reality of what it is that you're saying that you support. And that's like the main ground on which I've kind of raised criticisms about this uh, um, push by people who or at least being purported to represent the supposed anti-war cause in the United States when simultaneously they're actually avowed, passionate, you know, really committed partisans, explicitly and overtly and in, in public, of the Russian government's current uh, warfare campaign in Ukraine. So that about sums it up, hopefully. Right, and in terms of this, uh, the rally that you guys discussed, the Rage Against the War Machine, um, people claim that it shouldn't matter uh, what their views are as long as you get a movement out there because w- any movement is better than no movement. And I, while I do agree with that, people are the media, if, if the anti-war movement starts getting traction, these, the mainstream media, they're going to find ways to discredit it in a way that the general public will be turned off by it. They'll nitpick. This speaker is pro-war, yet they're, that get the organizers of the rally let this guy speak. Yeah, and I don't and, even think it would be a nitpick, right? I mean, I think that would actually be accurate. That would be Right, but there's, there's accurate, people right? all so, over calling are saying it shouldn't matter what their views are. Just as long as we have a rally, that should be enough. Well, of course it matters. Don't nitpick about the, the speakers in the, in the, in the roster. J- just worry about the bigger picture, but if you want, in, and I understand where they're coming from because these movements, these rallies are very rare, and we should be encouraging people to speak up. But at the same time, if if we live in a, a, a country where we have to get a lot of support from other people that aren't in your in your echo chamber, then you're going to have to be consistent in your in your in your messaging. And right, which is why have- it's so preposterous to gift wrap critics, and there will be many, I'm sure, of the rally a legitimate criticism, which is that they can say, and it'll be factually true, that the participants in this allegedly anti-war rally, at least some of them, aren't just pro-war, which is the case for several of the high-profile ones, but actually are also formally and financially affiliated with the Russian state. Like, that's what I get accused of all the time as just a slur on me, and it doesn't happen to be true, it's just a scurrilous little claim that people like to rattle off. In this case, it does happen to be factually true. So why the hell, if you actually were in favor of advancing the supposed cause of the anti-war position and trying to generate more widespread adoption of that position, why the hell would you deliver with a bow on top of it the perfect criticism that could be used to delegitimate that position i don't know it's uh, very strange but anyway and, thanks brent i do uh, sorry, sorry sorry brent i do have to uh i didn't sorry to cut you off i do have to kind of carry on though hey matthew hey michael so first off i'm gonna try to go quick so you can get to other callers um 
First off, I think this whole debate you've been doing today is fucking stupid over a trivial <laughs> semantical point. Yeah, just my opinion, bro. You know I like you overall. Yeah. Um, look, I would, if I would just participate in this for 10 seconds. I would disagree with your use of anti-war is strictly descriptive because I think there's a normative or positive connotation to it. But who cares? Like, why spend much time on this semantical issue? And my suspicion is, and tell me if, if there's something to this, is that there's something else you want to say about people like Hinkle and instead you're falling back on this semantical issue that just doesn't matter that much. No, I mean, I don't, I don't agree that it's just a frivolous semantic issue. And I've tried to explain my reasoning on that. I actually think the semantics are intrinsically and inextricably connected to the wider principles at stake. If it was just a purely semantic issue, then I would never have bothered to even mention anything about it in the first place, because I would agree that that was, that would be uh, stupid and not worth really my attention. Um, it's only because I, you know, contend that the semantics, so to say, are connected to the underlying principle in a fundamental way that I feel it's warranted or that, that I was compelled to make the statements that I have and engage on the topic with people who disagree with me. So no, I, I don't just disagree. I disagree with your, your premise about like how to actually characterize the essence of the issue, at least as I see it. Okay, well, well, that, that was my, my point on that. Um, one point, other thing I want to say is, like, people keep debating whether the Russian war effort is, it's like this absurd binary that it's either purely aggressive and intent or right. purely defensive, and it's just so simple-minded. And like, even earlier to, and they also very simple-minded that the United States, earlier today, Jackson Hinkle was talking about the Vietnam War, which, if you know, if you want to get me talking about the Vietnam War, I'll be as vituperative as you want against the United States. But, like, the goal of the United States was not uh, to murder Vietnamese civilians in the Vietnam War. It was, it was defensive and to, like, to blunt the ascendance of global communism that could eventually sure, come to, well, like, yeah. Oregon. And then to, and then as the Pentagon Papers show, to save face when they realized that their, you know, quasi-colonial South Vietnam state wasn't going to last. But, but still, it wasn't the, they were willing to kill people. The goal wasn't to simply save face, but Anyway, back to the, but what does it matter? Like, it's irrelevant whether that was like some explicitly stated goal in some memo somewhere. Well, but 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 my point is, people in this discussion, and I, I would say on the pro-Ukrainian side too, it's just like they want to have a strict binary where either the Russian war effort is there was there's no defensive there's no potentially defensive concerns about NATO, or it's just pure um, you know, pure defensive, purely defensive, and I think. Like, why can't it be a combination of motives? No, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah and it, 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 it reminds me. It reminds me of the uh, artificial binary that was used that that's probably still is used, or I'm sure is still used to describe the nature of the provision of U.S. quote aid to Ukraine, where we're told that don't you understand the javelins and then the heavy artillery and now even the Abrams tanks? That's all defensive aid, as though there's some like neat conceptual distinction between whether a tank in a war zone is defensive versus offensive. Um, I mean, the distinction doesn't hold up, and that was basically admitted to pretty quickly after the war began when it was you know, leaked to the Wall Street Journal and others that whatever sort of distinction that the U.S. was kind of trying to cling to to somehow sell their aid as defensive, wholly defensive as opposed to offensive, they just discarded that pretty 
quickly because it no longer was tenable, and they were just you know, sending armaments into a war zone for use that uh, for uses that could be described alternatively as defensive or or offensive. But in any event, the kind of binary that people wanted to describe it with didn't hold up. Well, but if it is a spectrum, I mean, can't we? So this is what I'd say. Well, you can make prudential judgments that the Ukrainian case. The Russian case that hypothetically we might be menaced by NATO is much weaker than Ukraine saying we are being attacked now. This is our, the Russians talk about this hypothetical possibility, you know, maybe with some justification, maybe with not, but we are being attacked now, like the woman you saw um, in Poland, the refugee. So, I mean, can't you make prudential judgments that, okay, it isn't as simple-minded as people are saying on Twitter, but nevertheless... Ukraine has a much more defensible posture than, than does Russia. doesn't mean everything's simplistic, but therefore we're going to sympathize with or, or side with Ukraine. Given All that- right. I mean, I think a, a defensive war or a defensive like policy measure pursuant to the perpetuation of a war is really defensive as defined by whether you happen to support it. I mean, it really doesn't have much more kind of hard, tangible criteria other than that, because who wants to go out in the public sphere and proclaim themselves to be in favor of an offensive war. I mean, nobody would unless you're a a pure psychopath, I guess. So you want to fudge that distinction, right, to your own advantage given the political or like discursive circumstances. That's really what what it boils down to. You've conceded, Michael, that that these things are usually spectrums. So couldn't you then, in in the course of making political judgments on war – Shouldn't we be um, not looking at the side that's been perfect or totally non-aggressive, but the side that's been much less vec- uh, aggressive, much more, and, and oppose the side that's been much more aggressive? I think here it's, it's clear Russia has had legitimate interest and did a monstrous, insane thing. I think that's the story here. And they also have imperialistic interests and ideological interests. So it's, 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 there's a spectrum. Russia's way more culpable than Ukraine or the United States might doesn't mean we're not culpable at all. I mean, usually in war, they're, both sides are culpable to some extent, but I think, I think they're much more culpable, just as I'd say. What's Ukraine's culpability? I'm just curious. If, well, the, if I, mean, any. I mean, Ukraine, I, I think, the, certainly not the people of Ukraine, but the, the government of Ukraine, I think, um, should have, I'm no expert in this, but I think had some rather uh, harsh policies with respect to the language rights of Russian speakers. So I think there's a, there was Which a its flagship there. university actually just took to its full extent and actually formally prescribed Well, I mean, I'm talking Russian. about before the war because... No, no, I'm saying, I'm just thing. noting as a point of information. Well, I think, I think the there was a concern, a legitimate concern by Russia that Ukraine is trying to, not like through genocide or whatever people absurdly Russia claims, but, but nevertheless, that Ukraine was trying to kind of homogenize the Russian population into identify. Well, Matthew, since you're the genocide, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say expert because I don't want to sound like no, I'm not being dismissive. Expert. But like, since that's sort of a area of interest for you, as it is increasingly for me, uh, mm-hmm. believe it or not, um, I don't know. Let's say Russia. Let's say Ukraine actually did seek to curtail somehow the ability of its Russian-speaking population to, you know, freely practice their cultural mores or uh, cultural norms, I guess, or uh, speak, even speak the language. And let's say, you know, they were trying to reduce the prevalence of Russian language or, you know, somehow kind of stifle the free expression of however 
Russian kind of culture, cultural values are, are, are expressed. I mean, couldn't that, I mean, I have to, I guess I have to look at the genocide convention of 1940, whatever, to verify, but I mean, isn't there some argument given the fluidity of no, the it's a massive definition of genocide that it could be say it was genocidal? It's an insane exaggeration of a real grievance, I'd say. Like, it, it, but look, this is. So this why couldn't you say it's genocidal? Well, I wouldn't. Well, I mean, look, all of these. I mean, so I think the terms, word genocide is way overused. I don't use it at all. No, I understand. If, if you do that. endorse that whole framework. I think sometimes, Michael, you have, and I think you're less than up. I think in the past, because we disagree on, on, on like, this war stuff and, and other things, we disagree on, like, moral issues that have big implications. I think that you assume I'm going to say, oh, you monster. <laughs> no, I don't. I, that's not really how I approach uh, intellectual questions in general. And no, I, I, think I don't, have I don't assume that you're going to accuse me of being a monster, Matthew. Well, I mean, like, I think you make clear that you have a, yes. some, something of a benign fueling uh, yeah. toward Every, me, and I take you at your word for that. So no, like, I'm not. I'm not just yeah. paranoid that you're going to accuse me of being a monster. No, no but every we can set that aside. Is to this effect, so I don't really blame. Well, you. I mean, but, if I if I come across as a Serbic on Twitter, that's just sort of no, whatever. But but yeah. okay. So to answer your question, I would say genocide is a term that it's a relatively new term. Uh, like Lemkin, uh, an author, coined it during the Second yeah, World yeah, War to talk yeah, about. I've read it. <laughs> yeah, you know this stuff. But maybe for the audience, like just yeah. really five seconds. Uh, an author coined it to describe the Nazi treatment of not only Jews, but also Eastern European Slavs during the Second World War. Like, yeah, I mean, it's people use it in a, it's, it, but I would, look, I would fall back on Foucault on this point and say language, whether we're talking, when we're talking about like core moral terms, like that person is a murderer, that person is a rapist, there is some ambiguity to, to all of these terms of genocide, you know, like, do we consider someone who, you know, <laughs> I want to get into the question. Well, so, yeah, my problem, like, Matthew, of, let, let me can. Uh, yeah. I know we're <laughs> opening up another can of worms here potentially, but just very quickly. Yeah. My problem in popular parlance anyway, with the overuse in my judgment of the term genocide is that I think the reason why it's so overused for the most part is that it's, it's users seek to import the moral weight of the Nazi Holocaust so they can say, look, we all said never again, and yet here's another genocide because that's what is overwhelmingly understood to be the paradigmatic example of it. So I think that means by which the term tends to be used is often used for politically manipulative purposes, hence why I just tend to not use it at all. And if I do use it at all, I'm going to probably limit it to the Nazi Holocaust itself, just because I feel like you know other stuff that's happened throughout history can just be described on its own terms rather than kind of having to, uh, you know, uh, no, I understand retrofit that, but... this, this like kind of in, inherently ambiguous kind of. Yeah. Conception. I understand that point. The response I'd make to that is first, um, first of all, like if we're going to use Nazi Holocaust as a barometer, I mean, other than the Cambodian genocide, there really isn't any example of the stuff we call genocide, like Armenian genocide and so on. There really aren't examples in the 20th century, at least, of, of attempts to totally annihilate an ethnic group. So not Rwanda? I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to read, read more about that particular episode, but my understanding is, like, with the, the Cambodian genocide with respect to Vietnamese and then the Holocaust with respect to European Jewry are kind of uh, unique cases where there's actually an attempt mm -hmm. to totally annihilate, not just to massacre huge numbers, but to totally annihilate 
uh, ethnic groups. Um, um, the second point I'd make is, yeah, you're totally right that people are using it to evoke the Holocaust, but maybe they're maybe they're right to do so because that'll get more attention to a to a problem if they, if they think it's morally reprehensible. There should be action. There should be military support. But it could also yeah, be I mean, politically the, 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 expedient. Of course it is. Look, here's another example. Take slavery. I don't know if you followed the. The, take the word slavery. I don't know if you followed the the issue with the Qatar World Cup at all. Um, the, with the the, the recent the, the World Cup in yeah, December, yeah, Qatar. Yeah, okay, the, the, I thought you said Qatar. I was like, wait, I thought it was I know, Qatar, Qatar, but I'm just not yeah, pronouncing yeah, it right. Sorry, I'm using yeah, yeah. Arabic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the so, forced labor and stuff to right, right. construct okay, the stadiums but, 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 and whatever. But, yeah, so the system they had there, and I think they're actually getting rid of it, which is good, probably because of the attention they got. But the system they had there under the law was not kidnapping people not, not like, or, or not owning people forever. It was people came in. Um, they, um, from like Thailand or whatever. Right? Wait, you know, well, from like poor, like yeah, poor South, South Asia, whatever. They could not leave until they were done with their contract, but they were paid. They were paid and they came in. They Indentured servitude would be the term. <laughs> right. But nobody would give a shit if we had said, oh, there's indentured labor in Qatar. No one would care. If you say there's slavery or modern slavery, then they care. Now, okay, well, yeah, people use histrionics kind of to describe stuff in order to generate like an emotional reaction. Okay, nobody would care yeah. if we, if, right. if, if, if everyone in the press had said there is indentured labor in Qatar, nobody would have cared. They care about. Slavery. I don't know. I mean, if it was, if it was as morally abominable as you'd think, if the term genocide is being ascribed to it, then I don't see why you couldn't rationally get people to care by using rational terminology to describe the thing at issue. I don't. Think that I mean, I'm not willing to say that for PR purposes, using the most um, the most sort of heated wordage is like automatically like something worth endorsing <laughs> just because it like may maybe bring extra attention, uh, bring additional attention. Well, I, mean, if I think that about, you wronged me, uh, yeah. Matthew, and that like you stole twenty dollars from me, uh-huh. you could have legitimately wronged me, and maybe I want attention brought to that. But if I say that you you know chopped my arm off. And that generates attention. I mean, okay, it yeah. generated the attention that I wanted, but it's still so vastly disproportionate to what the actual wrong that you committed was that I don't think I'm warranted in, well, using, well, no, but, in but, abusing language to that. But, but to go back to my example, so intellectually, I see indentured labor as so different that it's terrible, it's reprehensible, we should stop it, we should use our power to say you should not do this. But it's very different to say, you like, if, if the, the circumstances, you're some poor guy from India, you go there, choose to go there you make three hundred dollars a month you can't leave until your two-year contract's over or you'll go to you'll be arrested and deported that's just a lot different in the scale of evil than i own you forever hi you don't I yeah don't and like the, the the alarmists who try to push the issue and raise quote unquote raise awareness frankly i think uh, awareness but shouldn't be raised about stuff was calling it slavery reduced. really bad though well, it's, well it's but, but the, no i was going to say that they do the same thing with so-called human trafficking which i think is uh, pretty much essentially a bullshit concept at this point. Um, but by saying it's modern day slavery, even Trump, you know, gravely intoned that when he gave his obligatory like statement on it one day in 2019 or something. It's so right, absurd. Yeah. Um, so you're, okay. But, so but, you're saying, well, so you're saying that, you know, you know, consensual in some cases, um, well, prostitution is in any way, in any way, uh, you know, uh, analogous in terms of its core essence to like, Plantations in Mississippi in 1840, please. Well, yeah, but but but, but here's the thing: indenture is a is a grave abuse. It's it's cruel. 
uh, it doesn't belong in the 21st century. We can get rid of it. They should get rid of it. Actually, Qatar is moving to... The, the, the funny part about the, all the hysteria over the World Cup is they're actually got, they're actually have taken concrete... I know a lot about the Middle East. Stuff, like a quarter... Hey, Matthew, you're, uh, you're dropping out for me. I don't know if it's my line or yours, but... <clears throat> Okay, sorry, Matthew. Uh, something right. happened with the connection that went. The, something went wrong with your connection. But anyway, we should probably try to move on away here, Ron. Ron, are you there? Hmm. Maybe it is my connection. Yeah. Ron, are you there? Okay, go ahead, Ron. Hmm. Ron, are you there? Let's see. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe Colin is glitching or something at the moment. Not sure. So, Matthew, if you can hear me, I didn't intentionally uh, boot you. There seems to be some kind of glitch. Uh, let's see. All right, Ron, I'm going to go to the next caller. Um, sorry, Ron, I... Didn't want to skip you. I'm just trying to see if I can figure out what is glitching here. All right, John, you're up. Let's see if you can um, you can speak. John, if you're there, please unmute. John, if you're there, please unmute. Okay, I don't know if John is not there or if it's glitching, so I'm going to have to now skip John and see if I can go to Brady. Um, John, feel free to come back if you'd like. Brady, are you there? Microphone check. I think we should be good. Okay, yeah. yeah I, I hear you, Brady. Okay, everybody skipped over. Um, I didn't do that as a punishment, so come back if you'd like. All right, go ahead, Brady. And, Sorry. Uh, yeah, hopefully we can end this debate once and for all tonight. And okay. Just by saying that a lot of the people who are complaining about this rally, uh, specifically about the speakers who are showing up or something like that, I think – if, if they want to go to the rally and they're not going because of a speaker, what they should do is just go to the rally and bring a, bring your cell phone, charge it up and then find the speaker who you're mad at. You know, you can, you can approach them and uh, you can counter their philosophy in front of a camera, record it and post it online and make an example out of that person. Or you could publicly heckle them while they're talking. There's like, there's so many things you could do or, Alternatively, you could start your start a better like throw a better rally. We could build better political parties to organize these rallies around and host better rallies. I think and until that happens, we should just be supporting this rally with everything we got, because it's really the best thing we got right now. Um, Mm. I don't see any other anti-war movement going on in the United States that even comes close to this one. Well, I mean, first of all, Brady, I I actually agree that in the sense that I'm not encouraging anybody not to attend because of whatever points that I've raised about the rally. So I actually think if people want to attend, there's probably good reason to believe they could get something out of it or there was something worthwhile in attending. Like I'm not saying, I've never tried to say, or at least maybe I can clarify here, I've never been trying to say like the rally itself is like inherently or irrevocably tarnished in its very sort of fundamental essence or something, right? Such that anybody who is in proximity to it is like morally besmirched or something. No, I actually think... If you want to go and continue to, de- you should have debate or you should hash out these issues 
Um, that seems like it's potentially worthwhile. I mean, I've just spent the full pa- you know, past 48 hours trying to hash out these issues using whatever oh. platform I have. So I actually find the a value in dialogue as such. And if this could be a venue for dialogue, I don't see any reason to not utilize that if you can. Yeah, I saw you on Twitter Spaces. You did a good job. And uh, I just want to add the uh, echo chambers, the, the absence of debate in an echo chamber actually causes uh, divisiveness. It causes political polarization, which leads to violence and eventually spills into war. Also stultifies so thinking too, do, lazy thinking on top of that, but sorry. Yep. Yep. No, you're good. You're fine. Um, but yeah, I think one of the best things we can do to mitigate war um, from wherever we're at from where, you know, even if you're not going somewhere, it's just to have a discussion or debate about it. So, you know, shouts out to you for hosting the room. And I'll pass the mic so we can keep okay, on moving. Yeah. How about Thanks, that? Brady. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, one of my sort of driving principles in approaching whatever I do exactly <laughs> in terms of having a public platform is I'm outwardly desirous of people with conflicting views to mind to interact with me and have as much as possible a substantive exchange and, you know, have like a, uh, say, you know, like a, uh, not to be too toity-toity to that, like a Socratic sort of learning or uh, method where you can arrive at mutual understandings by just engaging in reason dialogue. I mean, it's not a novel insight on my part, but it's something I think more people should try to strive to uh, engage in when they can. Gator, you're next. I know you're going to have some criticisms of me, which I'm going to accept as um, going to accept graciously. Gator, are you there? Hey, Michael. Yeah, look, I mean, I'd say, and I've said this before, if people don't define this term anti-war, then basically the conversations they have run across each other because the, because um, anti-war is not pacifism, as has already been stated. And people will say, "I'm anti-war," but then I I I I resort I um, defend the right for me to fight in a war against an invasive force, which is exactly Ritter's position. Yet for some reason, he admits that by that definition, he's not anti-war because he recognizes the nature of humanity, conflict, conflict resolution, and the entire incentivization of the war machine, which he opposes but recognises there's a need for defensive armament and force, right? And yet people who say, because Ritter tweeted, I'm not anti-war, because his definition of anti-war is realistic, from what I can tell of everything I've heard him say, for some people, they think that that 260 characters is adequate to therefore render judgment. I mean, well, not, not just that. I mean, I've, I've found statements of his in a variety of forums where he makes very similar points and that kind of further fleshes out his view. I mean, he gave a whole lecture about how, how Russia is on the right side of history. And his point was that Russia triumphing militarily is the right thing as, uh, and should be supported as the, the morally correct outcome. So it's not just that one tweet, but I, I know. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you look at the 10, commandments of this rally Ritter ticks all of those boxes basically but or he'll tick nine out of ten of them even if you want to if you want to discount him on the um total cessation of all war right i don't think that's a realistic uh well, not all war war in this nine out of this ten war. Of them, right 
Uh, well, well, it, it it does actually have a a, a a complete cessation of all wars in there, I think. But um, so so I, without people defining what they mean by anti-war, you you lose this argument. People blur uh, what they what the degrees of pacifism that they're willing to go to because most people are not pacifists, right? And so on that basis, this anti-war rally thing is is it becomes a sort of a a bit of a mockery, right? Now, Chris Hedges does some, has produced an article two days ago on Consortium News, which kind of makes a good argument around this, where he's saying that essentially if the left and right can't get together on one issue and disband and, and, and ignore their otherwise political differences, then you're basically fucked because if, if people cannot unite on, on, an, on a general anti-war consensus, even before you get into the detailed nuance of exactly who's more anti-war than the other, then you can't do anything. No, okay, Gary, let me, just, let me just respond to two things. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, the, passive, the pacifism point, I think, is a non sequitur um, in this sense, at least as far as I can tell from my own ar- argumentative purposes here as I've conducted them, because I've never made an argument with, by appealing to pacifism. I don't identify myself as a pacifist, I don't even think that being anti-war necessarily implies pacifism at all. In fact, you can be a hardcore, you know, belligerent nationalist or what have you and still be anti-war in certain circumscribed contexts. So this idea that, like, everybody has to bring out pacifism and saying, you know, anti-war is not pacifism. Okay, nobody claimed that. That's you bringing it up, right? I mean, so I don't know. I mean, pacifism is, again, sort of, I, th- I think, a deflection because nobody's saying that like everybody has to be Gandhi in order to attend an anti-war rally. What you have to do, what you have to do, I would think, or like the core criterion you would have to satisfy in order to be a featured, publicized, and valorized, really, participant in an anti-war rally is to be against the war that the rally refers to. And if the speakers are actually in favor of the warfare by a belligerent party in the war that's being referred to specifically, then I think that's contradictory. So I've tried to be clear in terms of how I'm defining it in this context. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, but I I agree that like the definitional ambiguity there is a bit of an impediment. And in terms of the left-right thing that Chris Hedges was talking about, you know, I actually haven't read that Chris Hedges article. I've seen people referencing it. I'm not talking about a left I'm not making any objections at all on the grounds that it's sort of um, – it mars people for somebody who is a far-right figure or a far-left figure or anywhere in between to uh, – like – sorry, let me just restate – I'm not making an argument on the grounds of like ideological policing in the sense that I, that it's somehow discrediting to take part in a mutually agreed upon cause or take part in efforts to advance a mutually agreed upon cause just because there are certain people who might ideologically inhabit a certain kind of mm. sector of the spectrum who differ from you drastically. I've never made that argument. In fact, I've had, one of the first ma- big magazine articles I ever wrote, if you want to read it, go ahead. It was in the American Conservative 2011 where I interviewed um, Ron Paul and Ralph Nader about each other and about openings that could be fostered within mm-hmm. the American political system as it existed then anyway for sort of this cross-ideological 
cooperation. Uh, I know Dennis Kucinich feels the same way, um, as does Tulsi. So, uh, no, I mean, I, if anything, I've been on the other end of that argument in trying to counteract those criticisms on the grounds of ideological policing. What my points here have been totally separate from any kind of ideological policing, at least in the sense that I just articulated it there. Here I'm talking about the actual goal that's supposedly mutually agreed upon, not like ancillary stuff about the ideology of people who are agreeing to that goal, but the goal itself, which I argue is what's at issue and what is reflected on by the stated positions of people who are being presented to the public as emblems of some sort of anti-war cause and yet are explicit open advocates of warfare and seeking to justify it, you know, certain, a certain uh, strain of warfare, however they can, whether it's on defensive grounds or whatever. So just to clarify. Okay, but if I go to an anti-war rally and I see 10 speakers, right, and say I'm just apolitical, so just take my own politics out of this, and I hear everything from the, the cross that spans the left-right argument, and you'll see people like Tulsi Gabbard and Scott Ritter, who are military people who have basically fought for various reasons and have various positions, including some who, who know that they are now disillusioned, um, which is sort of where Tulsi Gabbard would paint herself, right? Um, and those who are kind of hyper-realists, I would say, which is what Ritter would generally push himself out as, given, his, given what he achieved and what he did, and what what how history has proven his stance to be his public statements to be right up to up to now before you get into the um ukrainian war and what he sort of sees as the outcome and i do think there's more subtleties to what he says about ukraine than what you just said but i don't want to dwell on ritter too much so if i if i saw this spectrum of people i would be i would take greater solace in a broad spectrum of people coming together to say you know what we want to war down as quick as possible we all share that view and we want to steer away from nuclear war and escalation towards it no matter what no matter whether Jackson Hinkle actually is heavily invested up to his bollocks in um, investments in war machine companies or whatever or whatever I don't know what Hinkle's stance actually is um, or whatever I would I would take solace in the spec in the fact that that broad spectrum of people can roughly unite and have ve- various different different takes on reasons why we shouldn't kill each other in this war or or a large-scale nuclear war, rather than running around trying to do what George Galloway says is a blood test on these people. And and, and I think that there's two things going on. One is that... Well, I don't think... I mean, I don't know what Galloway said exactly, and I generally like Galloway. I was on a show recently, but I don't regard this as a purity test at all because what I'm talking about, again, is not the overall purity of any given participant. It's the very goal itself. So you're, when you're saying, oh, all these people with different backgrounds should be able to unite and that should be celebrated if they agree on this particular goal. Well, I'm talking about the goal itself because I don't think that if you're an avowed explicit advocate of the Russian government's achieving its military objectives through warfare, that you could be said to be opposing the continuation of warfare in well, Ukraine because okay. you're, so, you're not. You're you're advancing a different argument. So that's okay. That's the core, that's the core issue. Well, it's okay. Not whether look. like somebody's right wing or left wing and agree, happen to agree on something. Okay, you know. by, by default, what we're addressing here is essentially Ritter's stance, right? And I think that it's not fair, from what I've heard of it, him say, to to be so unsubtle about it because what he's saying is, given the 
Well, I mean, I, let's go with Hinkle's stance because I just spent two hours talking to him and have a better, uh, more comprehensive understanding of his stance. Uh, and, okay. I mean, you might not, but I don't. I haven't done as deep of. A okay, well, there's really. probably crossover here then. So if we if we're saying that the point we got to pre-invasion represents the wind-up of over 25 years of Russia's constant complaining about NATO expansionism and all these other things saying, look, you need to back off. And finally, in this one more, ter- this last remaining territory, we, ha- we feel existentially we've got to oppose this. So we're going to use these tactics. They used the tactics that they did. They got to a point where they really fought with minimal, with minimal killing. They got to April where they nearly had a negotiation on the table because Zelensky was going down this road. Um, and then we know now that, that the West literally scuppered that deliberately to publish strategy of escalating and extending. Right? What that represents is, is, is the dynamic shift inside war, i.e. no plan survives first contact. But let me just stop you there, Gator, really quickly, because if you're saying that in light of all that, and people can quibble with some of the details, we, I won't even bother at this point because it's not yeah. n- n- directly relevant. But if you're saying in light of all that, Russia's current war effort is justified on a just war theory ground, then go ahead and make that argument. I don't understand why there's this insistence on conflating it with an anti-war argument. No, it's a pro-war argument. People can have made pro-war arguments throughout history because they feel the war is justified since Thomas Aquinas. So like, what is this resistance, this like violent inability to comprehend this distinction? And then hold your own rally where you're not deceptively framing it as anti-war. No, you're in favor of uh, the military triumph of a particular belligerent party. That could be a coherent position. What's not coherent, uh, not a coherent position is to try to smuggle it into this well, pretension of anti-war when it's not. But I don't, I, look, I don't think that's what's being done by, by certainly Ritter, right? Because what, what, what he would be saying is now is the reality that you have to accept now is because the tactics employed by the West to extend and, and escalate have have undermined Russia's um, desire to very quickly overwhelm politically using minimal military force to get um, a negotiated settlement as quickly as possible. Because also, I mean, first- min- mil- minimal military force, Gator. I know what you're saying when you say that, but like. <laughs> It's a matter of proportion. I mean, they, they did do a massive nationwide aerial bombardment like the first night of the war. So you, if you want to call that minimal, yeah, it's minimal compared to, I don't know, the firebombing of Tokyo or something. But like it's also it's pretty, pretty drastic if like you've never experienced your country being bombarded with missiles before. You know, so anyway, it's all relative. OK, okay so so where we are now is essentially a situation where politically. One side has eradicated the ability to negotiate because it is publicly stated we want precursor positions, which we can never get, which is the complete retrenchment of or re- retraction of Russia. You can't get that. So you're already saying we can't have negotiations on the le- on the West. Well, I mean, Gator, hold on. Russia- Do you know for a fact that Russia hasn't eradicated its uh, conditions to negotiate? Well, because well, yeah, they, they give mixed it, messages. Was... I mean, it's hard to tell. We can't get what, Putin's yeah. head. We don't have like an official binding doctrine which governs whether they're willing to negotiate or not because, because they've said at various times, uh, and I, I mean Putin and Lavrov, that they're not interested in negotiations um, given what has transpired 
from February up to uh, you know, usually September, I guess, is the delineating point there. So I, mean, I don't know how you can be so certain that you're that Russia is this like w- willing negotiating partner. I've not said that. Yeah. Okay. Right? What I was about to say was on the Western side, we've created a set of preconditions which Russia will never meet, and they know that. So that the West knows negotiations aren't really going to happen against the West's demand set. But also, equally, Russia has said, we will technically negotiate, but we're not giving up the, the, the land that we've, we've taken. And we're not changing our requirement to have the DPR, LPR and, the, and, and what we're holding in Crimea. Right. So they're already both both sides by having this mismatch of preconditions are at loggerheads, right? So Ritter's point, and maybe maybe Hinkle's, is that from that position, unless something gives on either side on a negotiation basis, the only way you get the end of this war is for one side to military exert so, so much force or possibly militarily win that negotiations become not required anymore or that you that you force the other side to concede on its preconditions and come back to the table. And that's essentially what Russia, what what written. Okay, but get it. That's another that's another just war argument. That's that's him saying that negotiations are no longer tenable. Therefore, the only solution to resolving the conflict is militarily, and thus, it's justifiable to support the victory of Russia's military campaign. Again, that's not an anti-war argument. I'm sorry, it's just not. And by the way, I'm also not sure how Ritter or whoever else who subscribes to that view could be so dogmatically certain as to its ultimate truth. Because the whole point of diplomacy is to resolve seemingly intractable political problems through uh, sometimes arduous negotiation. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it seems that they're at loggerheads now, and I don't personally see a path that seems viable at the moment that some sort of negotiated resolution could be attained. Um, but, you know, there have been seemingly intractable um, conflicts given that different parties appear to be at loggerheads that were ultimately resolved through some sort of negotiated settlement in the past. So, I mean, writing that off as a 100% sort of metaphysical impossibility so you can just therefore justify your pro-war argument as the only... Uh, viable argument in terms of resolving the conflict. I mean, I don't think that that's a um, necessarily a substantiated leap to make unless you just want to make the pro or argument, which, okay, do it. Again, my problem really boils down to, and I feel like I'm repeating myself, but so, I get, so be it. Just then make a just, just war argument. I don't understand the resistance to that. It seems like the, the resistance stems from, as I mentioned from you know the very outset of this, People just think it's uncouth to be making a pro-war argument. They think it's discreditable somehow. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, but the taboo around it, I don't think, is justification for you to not make the actual argument for the thing that you're making yeah, okay. and to use this deflection tactic. Yeah, and I, and I actually agree. I, I completely sympathize with your, character, your explicit characterization of this. And I, don't, and I think it's taken a while to, for me to hear that in this, in this calling, right, in such a concise way. And I actually believe that if you flip that, this is exactly what we in the West have done. That's exactly the stance we in the West have taken in defending our Western wars. We've always taken a pro-war stance of invade Afghan, invade Iraq, invade Libya, invade Syria. And we're all make, always making a pro-war statement because we're saying we're being attacked. Our interests are 
are being threatened. So therefore, yeah. we are just according to George W. Bush, the Iraq to, war to was defensive war. because Saddam Hussein was imminently exactly, going to yeah. acquire weapons of mass destruction that could blow up Washington yeah. D.C. But Scott Ritter obviously said that was bollocks because we've got them ninety five percent disarmed, and, and America used a hundred percent disarmament trick in order to continue... No, I get it. I'm just saying in terms of the rationale that was publicly presented. So, so I, I am sympathetic to the way that you just characterised that, and I totally understand now, when you put that so concisely, why you would evaluate Ritter or maybe Hinkle, if he's got a similar stance, on saying, look, come out and be and don't make the anti-war argument. But I think, I think Ritter's justified in basically being able to stand on an anti-war platform and say, the big fucking thing here is about perception Right. It's about perception on one side and the other. And you have to understand the other guy's perception of how they justify war to themselves in order to ameliorate the reasoning between you and them for, for fighting war in the first place. But also his fundamental thing, as put, as put out by his speech that he's published, that he's no longer going to give at this rally, is literally that. Uh, he and by the way, for people who don't know, that, he wasn't expelled from the rally because of his substantive position on the war. He was expelled for this extraneous stuff around, you know, his being convicted on various, uh, I don't even want, I'm, I'm not, the, people try to call it pedophilia. I don't think that's actually accurate. It was some sort of online sex thing with apparently a uh, plant who was, an, uh, you know, pretending, a cop who was pretending to be an underage girl. So, I mean, whatever it is, I mean, we don't have to get into that, but that's the yeah. reason that they, booted him from the event, not because they had some realization that his stated substantive position was in conflict with like, kind of the organizing impetus of the event. And a lot, of, but a lot of people at the rally did actually back his attendance, even despite the political right, issues. Which, right? again, I have and to say, does lead me to be a bit doubtful as to what people actually do think the core organizing impetus is, if they are aware of his position, which, again, he put in... I mean, you could say it's just a tweet. Well, okay, but it was a pretty crisp summation of what his position is. And he's yeah, but he's, he's, published, he's, he's published a, a speech that he was going to give, right, on his substack, And in there, he basically goes disarmament is absolutely essential. So there's a number of things. People just read it for themselves and then wonder whether whether it's fair to say that he has no place in an anti-war rally, because I don't think it's that straightforward. But one of the you know, he I'll said he's him, not anti-war. I mean, I know you can say one that of the, doesn't one encompass his whole position, but he did say it. Is, is that, I think, what's her name? Jacqueline Luckman makes this point in the Black Access Review in a very excessive length that she argues against this rally because it's been arranged initially or instigated by the Libertarian Party. And she organized, she argues that it's a ruse by the LP to gain greater political legitimacy by the back door. And in, and in trying to support it, what you are doing is supporting an oppressive, a, a grossly oppressive force against blacks, minorities, women, and all the rest of it because of their underpinning LP. Right. Violence. And that, that's, that's the latest iteration of the argument that was made up against the Answer Coalition in 2002, which is that because it was, you know, in some technical doctrinal sense, an organization that was run by Stalinists or based on Stalinist principles, that if they organized a rally against the invasion of Iraq, you couldn't attend because it was advancing X, Y, and Z, other kind of malicious goal. And that's the kind of argument that I've never entertained at all with regard to this issue. She may have, yeah, and I, 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 would, I would not sign. Yeah, I, I would argue that Luckman's position on this is specious at best. Oh, yeah, I agree. And I read that. The problem that, that creates is this, is that if Medea Benjamin is having to not speak because Code Pink's telling her not to because of various issues Code Pink have, why is Code Pink being shamed by the fact that, given that its only position really is anti-war, why? Why hasn't it? Why hasn't it? 
beaten the LP in arranging an, an, an anti-war protest on its grounds with its choice of speakers six months ago. If that's what it's well, they have they they have organized stuff. Like I mean, I get emails and uh, notifications from Copink that they're holding events and stuff. So it's not like they've been just uh, supine. It's just that this particular rally, given I guess some of the controversies associated, for whatever reason, uh, has gotten more uh, publicity. Um, but it's not a function of Code Pink being apathetic on the issue. Actually, they're much more um, far-reaching in their critique of. U.S. policy in Ukraine than okay. pretty much any other organization with like a comparable profile. Then all we need to see really is continuing increasing numbers of anyone, anywhere, creating an anti-war move, whether that's imperfect in one instance or not, and just more of it. And in the more time we sort of spend arguing the minutiae rather than just going for managing to get, you know, constantly increasing numbers of diverse supporters against this war and the general way war gets prosecuted in the world. That's got to be the outcome. Right. Well, again, Gator, and we'll just wrap it up here because I appreciate your uh, your input as, as always. But I, I don't agree that it's minutia. Just like I told Matthew before, I don't agree that it's semantics. I also, as I told Andrew, I don't agree that it's pedantic, uh, meaning the, the points that I've raised here. I actually think that they're central in their connection to the underlying principles at stake. So, again... An anti-war rally, if a reasonable case can be made that it's actually not anti-war in its kind of fundamental disposition, then that's more than just minutia or quibbling or nitpicking. That actually gets to the heart of the matter. Um, but you know, hopefully I've, I've articulated this, that at this mm, point. Okay. All right. Thanks, Gator. Cheers, mate. Uh, Max. Hello. Hey, Michael. Hey. So uh, I appreciate that you stuck your neck out. Um, I think the rally would benefit more from critique than like all these reluctant allegiances. Uh, but, yeah, and really quickly, just do, you know, and I'll let you continue. Yeah. But one thing that annoys me is when people say, "Oh, no critique is actually tolerable because we all got to stop World War III." I mean, I do think that's a bit manipulative. Not that I wouldn't agree that stopping World War III ought to be the preeminent, ought to be at like the top of the higher. Uh, Pyramid of priorities, but I also don't think it should necessarily be invoked to stifle reasons, critique, and... Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to touch on Jackson for a bit, because I think his justification is not just purely justification. It's like cartoonish celebration. Like, he goes above what you would expect to hear from Putin, like, in terms of his rhetoric. He's like, make Ukraine, Russia again. Um, I don't even know if Putin would want Galicia. Yeah, he says, you know, if Putin is based and he's in such great shape and all this. I mean, it, it is, there is a sort of like a cartoonish, almost like showbiz element to it, which I guess is consistent with his previous um, uh, role in life where he was in some sort of Hollywood. I, I don't know what he did exactly, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like a lot of it's sort of tailored to generate you know, a uh, reaction, which is not unique to him in terms of people who are trying to build a online profile for themselves. But yeah, there are, he definitely says stuff that you kind of, I mean, that's why I asked him at one point, I'm not sure if you were being tongue in cheek here when you said that Russia is fighting absolute evil and this is like the last battle for humanity. I don't know if that was meant in any kind of tongue in cheek, half sincere, half sarcastic way or not, but I got to just assume barring any 
further information that would tell me one way or another that you're being sincere because I, I can't mind read the guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So that leads me to my next point, which is what does being pro-war mean if Jackson is pro-war? Like, is him posting that he's running like five, five miles for Putin, uh, like dangerous? Um, like, I see him as a political thespian, but is he actually dangerous? Like, if his main goal is de-escalation, um, can't he be a temporary ally or... Um, well, yeah, I actually think a th political thespian is a good way of kind of summarizing what his whole deal appears to be. Mm -hmm. Um, dangerous? No, I wouldn't call him dangerous. I think he's just sort of a slightly obnoxious sort of, uh, if anything, maybe an annoyance or a, a nuisance, but I wouldn't call him dangerous. And most people are going to have no uh, awareness that he even exists. So would I call him a danger? No. I mean, but insofar as his actually stated explicitly articulated views can be used by critics of like the, the what's understood to be the anti-war position to malign anybody who affirms some variation of that position um, because he's you know an explicit partisan of the Russian state. He even mimics, as you might know if you listened, he even like deliberately echoes like their euphemistic terminology when he call he you know, demands that everybody use the phrase special military operation rather than more. I mean, why would you do that other than trying to streamline your rhetoric with the, the rhetoric of the Russian state? I mean, it's, it's silly. Um, it's silly unless that's the explanation, which it appears to be. So, I mean, I got to just take the guy at his word because I'm not his psychiatrist. I don't know what's actually <laughs> going on inside his head. Is he dangerous? No. I mean, he's sort of uh, a bit of a, yeah, yeah. A thespian is a good way of putting it. And lots of thespians are like farcical. Um, so right. yeah, we think of him in terms of like, you know, the, the village idiot. Yeah. He's more of an embarrassment than I guess you could say. Oh, <laughs> sure. I guess. Um, yeah. but yeah, also, but, but uh, I don't know. At the same time, now that I'm thinking about it, if he is attempting to gin up support, or if it's like whatever profile he has is being marshaled in service of generating like overt support of the kind that he personally also articulates for a like maximalist endorsement of the Russian military effort, then I mean there might be there could be some dangers there. I mean I don't know. Um, because like if you're supporting a belligerent party's warfare campaign, you know that tends to breed death and destruction. So you know, lending support to that, I think, could be dangerous, just, just as the people who invoke fallacious arguments for why they're in favor of dumping battle tanks into the war zone to you know, enable the increasingly adventurous and, uh, let's say, uh, you know, risk non-risk-averse uh, war effort of Ukraine. I mean, that also poses certain dangers as well because, you know, I mean, they blew up a bridge. They did a car bomb assassination of a civilian in the suburbs of Moscow. They're doing drone strikes Sorry. on Russia's strategic uh, air fleet, strategic nuclear air fleet, also, you know, hundreds of miles away from the border. So, I mean, you can make an argument that if you're marshalling support for that uh, with your public platform, then that maybe poses like certain indirect dangers in that you're kind of creating or contributing to the like, permission structure that enables that behavior to persist. So I, mean, I think maybe a somewhat analogous argument could be made for, for Hinkle, but again, I don't, I don't want to overstate his actual influence. Uh, and so I wouldn't necessarily call him dangerous, but I, I don't also don't think that he's um, 
I don't know, I think a, you know, pro, uh, supporting war is kind of inherently dangerous and just in that wars are dangerous, right? And unpredictable mm-hmm. and chaotic. So if somebody's supporting that, then yeah, I mean, the, it's potentially plausible that you could say that they're posing some sort of indirect danger in terms of the influence that they're having on the overall sort of climate and, um, and just public debate. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's, it's difficult to criticize him as well because um, it's hard to know what is genuine and what is not. Um, so right, I've I, I ignored him up pretty much up until now. I've been peripherally aware of him, but he's, you know, he came, you know, he was directly confronting me about my stated views on the, in, in the thread that I initially did about, around the rally. And I, I responded to him and then they invited me to, he and that girl Samira invited me to do the, the Twitter spaces. So um, I, I wouldn't have engaged with him otherwise Right, and or I wouldn't have gone out of my way to engage with him because um, I don't think it's necessarily that worthwhile. But it just so happens that you know, there was some direct sort of impetus for me to do so in this this circumstance. So no, and I'm glad you did. Um, but uh, that being said, in terms of the rally in in general, uh, what do you think like people should lobby for as their like what is the most just aim to lobby for? in order to de-escalate. Okay, so this, when people ask me what my personal sort of normative view is on this, or like what prescription would I make in terms of like what people ought to do, I do tend to sort of def- uh, <laughs> evade that question because I don't think of myself, and I actually don't, I legitimately don't think in terms of like what prescriptively ought the activists do, what should the American government do, what should the Russian government do, etc. I just don't, uh, my kind of, mind is not set up to be thinking in those terms, really. I think maybe this is some sort of like journalistic absolutism on my part, but I actually think that like my mental, uh, I actually just find myself just naturally expending whatever mental resources I have on trying to be, uh, trying to truthfully describe the reality of situations rather than to come up with like a uh, manifesto on what people ought to do or ought not to do. In other words, I'm more interested in the is part of the equation than the ought part of the equation. That that said, Mm -hmm. The one thing that I will say in terms of like what my personal like nor, uh, prescriptive preference is, is that I tend to think that given the manifold deleterious impacts of war, that it's preferable to attempt to bring about the cessation of warfare rather than the perpetuation and expansion of warfare. So um, if that were the guiding principle of some sort of activist action, it would be consistent with what, you know, my sort of, that one narrow uh, proposition that I am willing to sort of express is, uh, I just don't think that's, that doesn't appear to be the case with this particular rally. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's worth pointing out. Um, So, you know, that's why, that's why it's so bizarre to me that like when you look at the the stated diplomatic position, actually, you know what, that, little narrow position that I just stated there is consistent with the stated diplomatic position of, for example, Lula, who just got into office in Brazil and, you know, on his first sort of international, big international trip, including to the United States, he made pretty much that exact argument, hence why he declined the request by Germany to provide, um, uh, I think it was artillery for the uh, Leopard tanks or Leopard tanks that they're going to be dispatching because he said said that's a pro-war policy. And I think that's just straightforwardly right. Um, And so, you know, 
this idea that you know Putin, Putin, you know, bombing a or Russia bombing electrical infrastructure is anti-war <laughs> is not consistent with how Lula appears to perceive the situation, whatever his views might be on other aspects of the war. So it, it's bizarre to me that, you know, China, Brazil, Mexico, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, the entire African Union, meaning the entire continent, um, and let's go to Hungary and Israel, uh, that all these countries can have pretty much the same view. And that view is consistent with what mine is, which is that what should be prioritized is bringing about the cessation of the hostilities. That that could be seen as such a fringe position, not primarily, in my experience, in like the mainstream of the debate on this stuff, meaning with like the NAFO trolls and just like the pro-Ukraine consensus, where that's like inconceivable for them to think of as something that could be prioritized. But also, apparently, within this little segment of the pro-war, uh, nominally anti-war Russia crowd, where they have a similarly convoluted position that is also sort of um, conflict in conflict with that little proposition that I just stated there, and which is the stated position of all those other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think what you're saying is like as annoying as like what I hear people say, like, oh, these Palestinians throwing rocks at military vehicles, they really shouldn't do that because it's escalatory. I don't think you're saying goes that far, but I do get why people kind of roll their eyes at it um, in a sense, but obviously Russia is obviously much more superior militarily. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if I was in the West Bank and I was in the presence of like a 14-year-old who had a rock in his hand and was considering whether to throw it at an IDF soldier, I might advise the kid not to do it because like nothing really good is going to come of it and he could actually get in trouble and maybe it could like something bad could happen from it. But I mean, is that, am I going to like translate that into some like principled denunciation of every Palestinian teenager who throws a rock as like some sort of aggressor? No, I mean, that's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so would you consider the main source of escalation in the war like the U.S. and NATO? Or would you say Russia is equally uh, escalatory? Um, it's hard to actually quantify in a way that would make it tenable to just assert that the two parties are equally escalatory, right? But it's a mutual escalation. That's why it's an, I would call it like an escalatory spiral. Um, that requires both to participate in the escalation. So if the U.S. escalates by sending a higher grade of weaponry and then Russia takes retaliatory action for that and in so doing escalates in its own right, then that's sort of a tit-for-tat escalation that kind of requires both parties. Um, So I don't know how... it's like, how would you actually Im- try to empirically establish? Because, like, I'm not big on the like conjecture for the most part, or if I can avoid it, I do. And I think it would necessarily require conjecture to like give you an answer as to like who is like 51% versus 49% more responsible for the escalation. Like, I don't know. I mean, it actually seems fairly aggressively escalatory for Russia to be like systematically bombing all this civilian infrastructure uh, for months now. Um, so, I don't know. It, does NATO expansion necessarily mean that that? doesn't earn Russia the 51% distinction? I'm I'm not sure. I don't think there's really a way to answer that. I think that what is tenable to say is that it's this escalatory spiral in which two parties are 
kind of um, uh, reacting to one another or um, in, in escalating in concert with one another to some degree in this kind of like almost kind of like dark synergy um, dynamic. Yeah, I mean, to that extent, I do support the rally in the sense that their goal is to be de-escalatory. Um, however, I, obviously, there's a lot of problems there. But. Yeah, again, I'm just not sure that that's the case, because if your whole idea in wanting to withdraw U.S. support for Ukraine is to enable Russia to escalate militarily and achieve its aims through a more maximalist military action, then that's not necessarily de-escalatory. I mean, it could be escalatory. I don't, I don't know. Um, hmm. So anyway. All right. Thanks, Max. Yeah, yeah thank um, you. Uh, Joseph, uh, I saw somebody in the comments said that you're about to bring the heat against me, Joseph. So we'll have to see. Joseph, are you there? Joseph, are you there? Joseph going once. Joseph going twice. All right, Joseph, if you want to rejoin the uh, queue, feel free. Uh, hey, Mike. Uh, hey. I'm surprised your voice has lasted this long between all the things you've been doing today. I'm a very strange person. I, I acknowledge that. So, because yeah, I think it, it takes a strange person to be doing this for three hours and thirty eight minutes at this yeah. point. But hey, have you ever been to Russia? I haven't. No. Have no. you? Yeah, yeah. I lived there a few years oh, okay. ago. No, I, I mean I would like to. Not the you know not the whole time. Just yeah. Where are you from? Or where did you live? I'm from your uh, beautiful home state. Oh, really? Where Where did you live in Russia? Moscow. Okay. So you're from New Jersey originally, like me, and you lived in Moscow. Okay. <laughs> well, now I, I like you already. Okay. Yeah. No. Um. So anyway, do you uh, do you know what the biggest uh, complaint that uh, people had with the uh, the sanctions in that time was? Which sanctions? Sorry. The sanctions that were going on um, from 2014. That the U.S. and the European Union imposed on yeah, Russia? Yeah, yeah. What the biggest complaint among Russians was about the sanctions? Yes. Um, let me see if I can hazard a guess. That it forced them to, like, take an extra bureaucratic step to, like, travel to vacation destinations or something? I don't know. I'm just throwing something out there. That's probably not right. No, it was that they couldn't import uh, cheese from Europe. Okay, that's a valid complaint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like, it really didn't affect them that much. And actually, you know, like, uh, in response to the sort of ban of import of perishable foods, I mean, cheese is obviously the most important one. Um, you know, they started developing a little bit more of their own. Hey, I actually think cheese, cheese is pretty important. It's, it's, it's unfortunately very important to my diet, so <laughs> I wouldn't downplay that. But yeah, I mean, like if you had a, I think so. I think that's kind of the lesson that Putin learned from that whole thing, though, is that it's just like, you know, whatever, the sanctions are just not going to be a big deal. Well, I don't know about that. I mentioned this on the last call and last week, actually. I mean, if you look at the GDP data anyway, there is pretty good evidence that those sanctions in 2014, even though people for some reason like to claim that they had no effect whatsoever, whether they're saying that you know, Obama and the West appeased Putin when he did Crimea with these ineffectual sanctions, or whether it's like other people saying, look, Russia is resilient enough that the sanctions had no effect. I'm not sure that that's really borne out in the GDP data. There actually is, you know, some reason, some very good, some good reason to think that it had an appreciable impact, I mean, the sanctions did, um, whereas like it stunted Russia's 
you know, the, it's not that the growth projections that had would otherwise have been operative for Russia had the sanctions not been placed. But I don't know. I guess yeah, it's I mean, open. There was some bad inflation at that time. Um, things kind of stabilized a little bit after that. But um, I think I think he really. It's pretty clear though that um, popular sentiment, like about this sort of you know chilling of relations between uh, Russia and the U.S., didn't really. Uh, matter that much. People could still travel to Europe fairly easily. Um, and I even knew some people, you know, uh, who could, who traveled, you know, between Russia and the U.S. during that time, I was able to get a visa to, you know, go live there for a bit. So it wasn't like, it really didn't seem like a big deal. Um, yeah, I, I see what you mean. But, yeah. But, um, and then in Crimea, um, I did get the sense that Russian people really felt that uh, it was theirs at that time. Um, like people would travel there, like they were not leaving the country. Um, so I, but I think that for the most part, people just like really, really didn't care and were pretty apolitical. Right. Like most people in the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, I was just curious if you ever uh, had a chance to speak to anyone who was living in Russia at that time, um, or more recently. Well, like I said before, I've never been to Russia. I would l yeah. like to go. Um, it's not necessarily the number Unlikely one desired destination on my, uh, for my like uh, my wish list, but I would definitely like to go. Um, I guess I've talked to people off and on who give, who have are Russian themselves, but like born in Russia or have been to Russia you know, enough to have like some sense of the, how they describe that, that period. But, um, I can't say like I've done like a intentional sort of like in-depth like survey or something on that particular topic. No, but I'm always happy to hear people's uh, perspectives. Anyway. Um, yeah, I didn't want to, uh, take too much of the time. Just, yeah. uh, okay. Well, thanks Trojan. Appreciate it. With the polls. Let's Move on to the next guy. Okay, thanks, Trojan. Uh, Nessium, is that a moniker, or is that your name? I'm not sure, but Hello? you're up. Hey. Yep, hey. Hi, thanks for hosting this space or uh, calling. Um, I wanted to say that I really appreciate your views and your independence in viewing this, this war and this escalation. Um, I want to say I'm not really partisan. I'm not really... I wasn't pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia before this war. As a matter of fact, I was originally from the Middle East. I'm familiar with all the anti-NATO rhetoric and all of that. Tunisia. Okay. Um, but I, but Where I, the Arab I mean, Spring started, right? Yes. <laughs> that's, the, we, that's the popular and, telling. And we did have like a, a, like a revolution similar to what happened in Ukraine. And I find it interesting that people you know, would justify a war based on that when in my country there was no war over it. Uh, but I wanted to say, as somebody who really... By the way, quick aside, and let's not get bogged down on this, but wasn't there, didn't something happen in Tunisia within like the past year or so where essentially there was a reinstatement of the pre-2011 kind of governing regime by the, whoever the ruler is, whose name escapes me? Uh, yes, it's it's slow. Uh, he does have popular support, unfortunately, so, but but it's been slow. He's sort of like strengthening his powers, similar to what we've seen in other countries. But there was a revolution. Somebody was like a former president was toppled. 
Uh, I, I wanted to say that I agree with a lot of things that you say. I, for, I for one, don't favor Ukraine, although it's their matter, it's their, uh, it's their right. I don't favor Ukraine going into, into Crimea or doing escalatory things. But there is a problem that I have with this de-escalatory notion that a lot of people push, is that recently it has become a way to enable Russia to win the war quickly as opposed to reaching a fair settlement for Russia and Ukraine. And, and one thing in particular, I think if we all agree that we, we want war to stop, I think the best way, and maybe I can ask you this, do you think that the best way for that is for all countries, including Western countries, to adhere to the United Nations, uh, the United Nations Charter? And, you know, the United Nations in March, I think March 2nd or 7th, they really called on the Russian troops to withdraw. And yet in every anti-war demand that I see, I don't see that point. I don't see anybody calling for Russian troops to comply with the UN resolution and to withdraw their, their border. If you could elaborate on that a little bit and help me, exp uh, help me understand why, and I have a few other questions. Well, no, I think it's a fair point. Um, I'm not sure that I would personally favor making some sort of appeal by invoking like the authority of the United Nations Charter because that's so open to manipulation and distortion by whatever party wants to justify its particular action on a given day that it's almost like worthless as a reference point. Um, I, I would say that Again, I, I would just mention to you, and I think this position also applies to at least some uh, certain uh, some countries in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, believe it or not, which has sort of defied the U.S. in taking this stance. In that, okay, yeah, maybe Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, not the society necessarily we we all want to emulate or anything, but if you just look at what their stated position is on Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine war, rather, it's essentially identical to the stated position of China, India. Pakistan, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, etc., in that it's resume negotiations immediately and cease hostilities immediately and arrive at a political solution uh, if uh, at all humanly possible. Or like keep going in the negotiations, however intractable the two parties' positions may seem now, until a non-military solution is arrived at. Um, so, you know, I, I don't see, I, I actually don't, I, I know what you mean in that it's, I've heard this argument anyway, that pro-Ukraine will people, people will say wariness of escalation is really just a front for people who want to solidify Russia's gains and allow it the upper hand or, um, kind of lock in their attainment of whatever, uh, objectives they've secured thus far in the war. Um, maybe it would do that. Maybe it wouldn't. I'm not sure. It's hard to say. Here's what I can say. And here's what basically guides my thinking on it, at least from like my own normative perspective. What the fruits of what the policy consensus on both on the parts of both the quote West and Russia are right now in Ukraine are um, uh, the estimates vary, uh, but I've been going on the estimate by the German, actually, intelligence services that was reported on in Der Spiegel a couple weeks ago now. Don't know if it's 100% um, 
applicable to, to today, but at least with like in, the, let's say, the past month, it's been reported, and just, again, just stipulate this is true, that uh, hundreds of casualties on both the Ukraine and Russian side are piling up every day. So you have hundred picture in your mind, if you can, like, I don't know, 250 dead bodies stacked on top of one another. If these assessments are correct, then that like would be a potentially just kind of average day in Ukraine at this point. Now, whatever the curtailment of the escalatory spiral would produce in terms of fulfilling Russia's ultimate war aims or disadvantaging Ukraine in some sense, if enacting these de-escalatory measures today, like or at least going along with the recommendations of like a China or India or whatever in their diplomatic um, recommendation, if that would result in the cessation of each day hundreds and hundreds of bodies of dead, like mostly men, men in their early 20s piling up on top of each other, um, then I think that would probably be the thing that I would prioritize rather than some less tangible sort of surmise as to how Russia might be advantaged in an ultimate political sense from a cessation to the hostilities slash escalatory spiral at this juncture. Like, whatever is true in that regard, if it is also true that ceasing hostilities will stop hundreds of dead 21-year-olds being added to the death toll um, every day, then I don't know. That probably would be the, um, probably would be what would be more guiding my, my personal recommendations. Yeah, I do agree with you in that regard. And I really, uh, I genuinely believe that Ukraine as well is losing a lot of people. And I, I don't like find joy in seeing dead or Russian Ukrainians, but I do believe that that is a decision for Ukraine to make. But, but we have responsibility for us as, as people outside uh, Ukraine is to not be focused on one side, which is Ukraine, and really forget um, like the fact that Russia went into there. And I think that the argument for cessation of, and I think you're very smart and I think you recognize this, is also of political convenience for certain countries to not make a demand that upsets Russia, knowing that you know, asking for withdrawal, even though that is the demand of the United Nations, uh, asking for withdrawal is not politically convenient because that would appear as if taking side with Ukraine. Uh, so, so for me, I think the principled approach would be to stick with the international borders. And I hold that view for every nation, including the U.S. and Western nations. Uh, but, but I do believe that I, we have to not really water down the demands or water down the, the, the international law or international requirements just to do Russia a favor. I think we have to remind Russia that they have to withdraw. But, um, but hold, hold on, um, well. uh, hold on there, Sam. Let's just take um, uh, Lula of Brazil as one example of somebody who espouses the position that I just mentioned there in terms of, like, they're not, I don't know for, uh, for a fact, but I haven't heard Lula issue that demand that you're saying that Russia, that countries ought to be issuing if they want to be consistent, right? Lula is issuing the demand that every other of those countries have demanded from the very beginning, which is resumption of negotiations, political settlements, cessation of hostilities, okay? Now, if Lula decided to accede to what you're demanding that he do, <laughs> right, and indeed issue one of these demands for Russia to just withdraw wholesale from 
all of Ukraine within its like internationally recognized borders. Uh, just one point. Uh, Number, what, uh, I wouldn't uh, even say internationally recognized. So what okay, whatever. So withdraw. Withdraw from whatever borders, right? Okay, so forget, forget Crimea. Withdraw from the territory that it seized since last February, let's say. Would that be at all beneficial in actually achieving the goal of cessation of hostilities if it means that Lula now is no longer viewed as a trustworthy mediator between the two warring parties, which means that he no longer he no longer has like an open line to whatever contacts he has within the Russian government, and and just you know he can no longer play some sort of potentially constructive role in actually arranging for or attempting to facilitate negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, because that's what Lula actually says that he's striving to do insofar as he has any role in the conflict at all, but to be this sort of mediator. I mean, uh, Naftali Bennett, when he was the Prime Minister of Israel in the spring of last year, also didn't issue one of these demands that you're saying ought to be issued for Russia to withdraw all its troops from Ukraine. He instead took this more neutral position that was just kind of like predicated on support for negotiations. And what did that get? Well, I mean, he came pretty close to, I mean, he actually did successfully mediate certain negotiations that both parties, at least on, on paper, participated in. So I don't know. I think if, if issuing this demand then forecloses the possibility that a, you know, whether it's China or Russia or whomever, sorry, whether it's China or Brazil or whomever, can then potentially play a constructive role in encouraging and facilitating and maybe even mediating negotiations, then I'm not sure why, you know, the um, sort of like moral satisfaction that certain people will get from hearing like Lula articulate that those denunciatory words are more um, preferable than Lula actually um, being able to play some sort of personal role because he, there's a perception that he's even handed on the matter and in kind of bringing about some sort of negotiated settlement. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. That's why I said of political convenience in the sense that they want to be, they want to, they want the appearance of neutrality, even though their position is not really consistent with international law. And I, I'm happy to give that benefit of the doubt to politicians, but I do think outside politicians and people who are participating directly in the negotiations, I, I think we, at least as outsiders and uh, press people, uh, the journalists like yourself and others, really have got to not forget the fact that Russia is violating the borders, Russia is violating international law. And I wish this rally that we speak about really had one point about withdrawing the troops. I don't know what they would lose from asking Russia to withdraw its troops, which would end the war, the war tomorrow. And, and, and uh, another thing is like, I tend to see a lot of people try to muddy the water uh, to justify the war and everything. Like with the coup, I mentioned in my home country there was a coup, nobody invaded us. Uh, in Egypt, in other places, and, and, and they use what I find ironic is the Monroe Doctrine on steroids, basically saying that any, Russia, any country in Russian sphere of influence that uh, tries to align with the West, Russia has the right to invade. It's hard for me to reconcile that with the anti-American uh, imperialism view, which is anti-Monroe Doctrine, and you go on the other side and all of a sudden you support the Monroe Doctrine. Well, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I actually don't think, though, maybe this is not directly addressing your point, but I still, still think it's worth saying. It's, it, this wouldn't be the Monroe Doctrine on steroids. It'd actually be a much more modest version of the Monroe Doctrine, because it's not like Russia asserts dominion over the entire hemisphere that it occupies, right? Um, which is what the U.S. did, and actually 
as the 20th century wore on, starting in World War II, and I actually did a piece that referenced this a couple months ago, but Franklin Roosevelt actually did like a formal extension of the Monroe Doctrine into the North Atlantic across the, into the Eastern Hemisphere because he wanted to justify expeditionary uh, marine convoys to basically occupy Iceland. I mean, sort of like a, just a historical little uh, curiosity of a factoid there, but um, no, so it wouldn't actually be as bold as the Monroe Doctrine at all. In fact, I was just researching the uh, initial debate around the adoption by the Senate, the U.S. Senate in 1949 of the initial North Atlantic Treaty that established NATO. And, um, you know, the proponents of the adoption of that treaty were saying that, look, we should, we must understand the adoption of this treaty and the formation of NATO as an extension of the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, the United States Monroe Doctrine over all of Europe, or at least the member states of NATO within Europe, right? So now the Monroe Doctrine applies to France and uh, Turkey and Greece and so forth, at least according to that, according to that rationale. So um, I know what you mean in terms of like the sphere of influence conception of like international affairs not really being consistent necessarily with a, a uh, anti-imperialism sort of worldview, uh, but I also think it's sort of worth clarifying like what the actual you know, uh, yeah, sphere of influence sort of what the nature of these different spheres of influence actually are proportionally. Yeah, I get your point. I was just saying that if we go down this path of like saying this is my sphere of influence and if a government changes, I don't like it. You know, Mexico, their current government is more left-leaning. Arguably, tomorrow Trump can say, hey, there are cartels in Mexico. I want to use my forces to, you know, quash the cartel or destroy or something. Uh, that, that leads to danger. this type of, like, justification from a point of view of sphere of influence. That was, that's what Russia is doing. And I'm not saying that the U.S. didn't do it in the past, but I'm principled in my view that this justification is still does not justify a war. So I, I just take issue with the way that people muddy the water to find justification. No, I think, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, ha I have noticed what you're talking about here, I think, in that like, the realist school of thought on Russia having a sphere of influence and Russia will react in a certain way if its sphere of influence is encroached upon and therefore it would be prudent not to encroach upon its sphere of influence. That sort of assessment, which is kind of probably most prominently associated with somebody like John Mearsheimer, that's supposed to be like shorn of moral content in that it's just this like naked kind of um, uh, anti-moralistic assessment of the reality of like the power dynamic, right, in the international system. But you're right in that I have noticed that seeping out into the normative side of the argument or in that it becomes like a quasi-moral argument that people make in terms of like Russia having this like right to its sphere of influence or something. Um, so I do think there's been like some sort of, uh, you know, concept creep there in terms of people who are making a affirmative pro-war argument or attempting to justify the Russian um, war effort. But that's not surprising to me because pro-war arguments often are like logically inconsistent and are very kind of, you know, politically contingent and, and don't hold up to um, a lot of scrutiny when you really examine them. Yeah, one last question. I don't want to take a lot of your time, and thank you for this. One last question. Another issue, and I think another, another dilemma for me when thinking about peace in Ukraine, 
is we've seen all the war crimes that were done by, by, by Russia. And I think objectively there were even New York Times reports that were very detailed, et cetera. And the, even videos published by Russians themselves, not, not saying that Ukrainians are perfect angels, but, but at least we see what, what Russia uh, has done. Uh, very, it's well documented. So how do you reconcile the surrender of these lands to, to Russia, knowing that they have nationalists as well, Russia? They can go into you, these newly occupied and hunt for you know, past Ukrainian supporters, etc., and torture them. And, and, you know, imprison them or execute them. How do you reconcile that with peace? Is, is that spread of internal violence, um, revenge, retribution, do you think that's worth pursuing the, the peace, even if, like me, surrendering millions of people to an authoritarian regime? Um, well, first of all, I'm not personally going around advocating for the surrender of any territory. I mean, that's why I kind of limited whatever prescriptive recommendation I'm, I'm willing to make on my own behalf. Um, I limited that to just cessation of hostilities, right? Because I'm not, I don't feel it's like my, I'm in a, in a correct position where I can make like a specific recommendation as to like how certain international borders should be delineated or whatever. Um, but in terms of like the broader point, this is where I d actually will do what people who are less charitable would probably try to dismiss as whataboutism or something, right? Because I do actually think the proportionality here is very relevant to that the underlying principle. Because, okay, so if you look at the UN data, which is you know, necessarily incomplete because it's a chaotic war zone, so it's not going to be comprehensive or all-inclusive, right? But last I checked, and I think I probably last checked in, I don't know, mid to late January or something, so let's just assume it's like in the same ballpark. The uh, number of deaths, the casualties, not just casualties including injuries, but deaths among civilians in Ukraine since the war started last February is something like um, 7,000 or 8,000, somewhere in that range, right? And actually the UN doesn't even specify who caused the deaths or whether the deaths are among... Because uh, obviously, there you know we do. There, it is true that Donetsk is regularly shelled by the Ukrainian military, and that has re produced civilian casualties. So those would be presumably included in that total, and they don't differentiate between them and the UN total, right? So, but let's just you know, for the sake of argument here, say that like you know there have been eight thousand civilian deaths since in a year. I don't know. I mean, if you think that that is such a grievous moral crime, and I'm not saying it's not, but if you think it's like such a grievous moral crime that it should be this like fervent principle that it cannot ever be countenanced and like ceding territory to Russia would cast that moral crime, well, then I have to wonder how consistent you are in your stated principles. I'm sorry, and the stated principle is actually directly relevant here. So, you know, um, you know the uh, casualty estimates for the, uh, in terms of civilian casualties in the Iraq war, um, were much higher for the, for within, I think just the first couple months. Um, does that mean that it was morally abominable to ever cede anything again to the United States? Because that would somehow give some, you know, a justification for the civilian casualties that it's responsible for in Iraq. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't hear people making this argument about Russian civilian casualties ever making that argument about the United States, in part because, you know, guess what? The United States happens to be the, um, 
the uh, party that's most singularly responsible now for the ability of Ukraine to continue its own war effort. And you said earlier that, you know, it's up for Ukraine to decide, like, what it wants to pursue in terms of, like, whether it retakes Crimea or not or attempts to. I mean, I actually don't think that's true. I mean, it's not as though Ukraine just has this autonomous agency can can decide for its own self what it would like to do militarily. No, it's 100% contingent on what the United States is willing to provision, both from its own stockpiles and resources and industrial base, but also the um, armaments and so forth that it's willing to funnel into Ukraine coming from other contributing member states. Because like when, you know, Romania or the or Belgium gives something to Ukraine, it's not like they're having their own organizational operation to dispatch them to Ukraine. No, it's all funneled through the United States, which is the prime military force here and being the supplier of the uh, armament sort of uh, infusion in, into Ukraine. So it's it all it's all down to the United States, really, because, I mean, I've said that I've done this spiel before, but they're not even just singularly funding the military efforts of the Ukraine government right now. They're funding the basic governmental services even on the civilian level. So like subsidizing Ukraine's very existence of a state uh, by, you know, paying for electricity, paying for its medical services, its educational system, its payments of salaries and pensions. Just, they're just, the U.S. is just giving money, depositing money into the general fund of the Ukraine government, which otherwise would, would have no ability to basically just subsist and would probably you know collapse pretty quickly or who who knows but um, the United States is the you know the uh, backstop there uh, so it's not it's just it's not, it's not a matter of Ukraine making being you know endowed with the ability to make this autonomous decision it's autonomy that it's actually in the possession of the United States doesn't mean that individual Ukrainians can't have autonomous thoughts about things but you know this is where I actually do think the realist assessment is very uh, necessary to to use as a frame, because otherwise it leads to like confused thinking about who actually has that decision-making authority in the arrangement. Um, so I actually forgot what your uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, last it's point okay. was. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, like the UN, you know, statistics, statistics as you said, you're probably incomplete. But if we were going to use the UN, uh, also, the, you know, they had in the 2021 in the Donbass only eight people died as a result yeah. of the hostilities, and I wish it stayed that way. Uh, I think I really wish it stayed that way for the sake of Russians and Ukrainians. And I think uh, moving forward... Oh, sorry. Well, one, one more thing I was going to say before I forget. I also don't think this um, appeal to international law is very persuasive because we've, we have now basically... I mean, here, unfortunately, is where Putin in his speeches actually is just empirically and substantively correct when he talks about how Russia, so-called international law can be bent at the whim of whatever the most powerful actor is in the international system, and that's the United States. So international law really has no binding authority as some sort of like neutral governance mechanism. It's always up to the power, the discretionary power of the U.S. to determine whether it abides by international law or not. The situation with Kosovo is a perfect example in like absolute direct un incontrovertible defiance of anything resembling international law, including UN resolutions that were passed to enable the deployment of international troops to Kosovo. Um, The United States decided to just totally abrogate any commitment it had to international law in that regard and and recognize the unilateral declaration of independence by Kosovo from Serbia, thereby 
you know, uh, conferring legitimacy upon the dismemberment of Yugoslavia and then also later Serbia itself. Um, and, you know, international law was no obstacle there. So uh, that's where I do actually think that pointing out the glaring and unmissable, just utter inconsistency in the application of these principles is, is, is not just justifiable, but actually kind of necessary to have realistic understanding of the actual sort of dynamics at play, which is why I think there would be other things to appeal to beyond international law or borders or whatever, because international law and borders, I mean, the U.S. can fly off that whatever it likes. It's occupying parts of Syria right now at the, within borders and at the, under protest by the central governing authority of Syria. And I'm not defending the legitimacy of Assad or whatever, but this is the sort of framework that we're using. So I would just kind of discard all that as somehow what would be most, you know, uh, justifiable to appeal to and instead appeal to something that is incredibly tangible and visceral and also true, which is that hundreds of bodies of, you know, 20-year-olds are piling up every day in the war. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree uh, with, uh, with that. And uh, uh, it's not mutually exclusive to criticize U.S. past engagements or, you know, Russia's today's engagements. I, I do think that what Russia is doing is a lot more reprehensible, especially with the destruction of the infrastructure. Um, and I think that's... Well, I mean, the U.S. destroyed civilian infrastructure on purpose in, in the Kosovo War, so... Yeah, but, but, but uh, what I read about it back then is that they used some special bombs to short-circuit... Yeah, but that—that's—that's—that's—that's a—that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a yeah, nonsensicality. Yeah, but, I mean, sorry, that, uh, nonsensicality. That's—that's that's a nonsense. I mean, whatever bombs they use, they bombed—they bombed the electrical. Yeah. I—I I just did a review of all of this literature pretty recently, so I mean, I can pretty much assure you that it's factual. I mean, but, the, but, the U.S. admitted at the time, and they—they they leaked it to the New York Times, saying, "Look, we're doing this because we need to sap the morale of Milosevic's constituents, constituents, and one way to do that is to deprive them of." their access to the energy grid, and then they'll get disillusioned with, with Milosevic and demand that he be removed from power. Maybe this is a debate for another day, but I think I read that it was for a few hours. It's not like permanent destruction. I'm not justifying it, but I think it's proportionality matters, uh, and I think it's, it's different from the campaign that Russia conducted now for weeks, which crippled the entire energy infrastructure, 10 million people out of power. Well, I mean, how about shock and awe in Baghdad? I mean, that also targeted the civilian infrastructure. Um, yeah. you know, so, I mean, there, the, the point is you can find plenty of examples, which I think at the very least ought to not, ought to prevent one from giving undue credence to these like moralizing sermons from people in like the, from like, you know, Victoria Newland or something about how unconscionable it is for anything like this to have ever happened if she's a member of a government which did very similar stuff. Right, and it never caused this kind of this level of moral consternation. So that, I mean, that's actually an inconsistency that's worth yeah. highlighting if these people are in positions of power and are using this moralizing rhetoric to justify their policy. I enjoyed this discussion. Uh, what, what I want to say is, like, uh, I want to make a change in my lifetime. I know that horrible things happened in the past. I didn't witness them at the time. I didn't live through them. I think uh, I'm more positive about changing things in my lifetime while I'm an adult now. So that's all I'm going to say. I think we ought to focus really more on, uh, on uh, holding Russia accountable and asking them to, to withdraw to their borders so that would solve the problem. Uh, thank you for your time, and um, I look forward to hearing from okay. your other guests. Yep, appreciate it. Uh, all right, John. 
you're up. I think you might be the same person who I had to uh, boot for technical reasons before, so glad you came back. Uh, yeah, no, hey, thank you for doing this for like four hours and 16 minutes, man. I'm, a, I'm kind of a deranged person, but what can I say? And, you know, it's, it's really cool to talk to you. I followed you for a long time. I have a lot of respect for you, so this is kind of a cool thing for me. Well, yeah, appreciate it. I always like uh, interacting with people who have a positive opinion of me rather than a viciously negative one, which for whatever reason, tend to be the type of people I find myself interacting with most of the time. Yeah, I mean, um, but um, so I want to say, look, I think NATO is really responsible for a lot of this. I really do. Uh, so I agree with the rally, but what, what bothers me, so I'm a huge Jimmy Dore fan, huge. But what bothers me about this rally um, are uh, just a lot, but two, two things are... Um, Tulsi Gabbard is in Africa right now uh, um, enforcing U- U.S. imperialism, which is what the rally's against. So that's a huge, huge thing. And then wait, um, wait, I would wait, be scared wait. if she, I... She's, you're saying, I don't actually know for sure. I haven't looked into it recently. She's physically in Africa as we speak right now, and she's coming back this weekend to participate in the rally? Um, or... No, 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 she was. I mean, I don't, I don't know the exact timeline. Okay. Right. So she was and, on one of her army deployments, which she goes on periodically, right? Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, but but to me, she, that's still enforcing uh, U.S. imperialism in Africa. Like, I'm sure we're not there to to help them. I mean, that's just my my view. And yeah, then, yeah um, I know, I, I I know what you're saying. Yeah. And by the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna also just say that you know, I I I've been friendly now with, with Jimmy Dore for for years. Um, I'm not going to say like we're the closest of personal friends necessarily, but we have you know friendly personal relations for sure, and have for like uh, I don't know five plus years at this point. So I'm not casting aspersion on him for his participation necessarily. Um, I think that somebody could, in theory, give a speech or deliver remarks or something at an event like this, where they're maintaining logical consistency of a kind that I actually don't think has been maintained by the organizers as a reflection of like the rally in aggregate. But that doesn't mean like in on individual terms, a particular participant couldn't say stuff that I like, you know, would fully probably even agree with. Oh no, for sure. I mean, they have Christopher Hedges, they have a uh, Ron Paul who's consistent, but my, um, and, and I, I like Jimmy for the same reason I like you as you guys, um, Tell um tell what you guys think is the truth um no matter what uh no matter which way the winds are blowing uh, I'm actually worried though that this is gonna damage his credibility a little bit because you have Cynthia McKinney who I'm worried is gonna say something anti-Semitic on stage and the news is gonna ignore this rally up until she says something that's like on her Twitter feed like that this is a Jewish war or something and then they're going to loop it and it's going to be a gift. Like you said, it's going to be a gift to the critics. <laughs> yeah. So I'm more worried about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I know what you're getting at there. Um, you know, there's sort of a conundrum here, right? Because guilt by association is a fallacy. I mean, actually it's just a logical fallacy that you could look up in lists of logical fallacies and philosophic texts, right? I mean, because somebody that you're in some sort of association with said something that is discreditable doesn't somehow ipso facto mean that you are discredited by the thing that was said. Um, and so I think that's true as a matter of principle and is even true with this particular rally. Um, however, I mean, <laughs> something that is a fallacy, does something being a fallacy doesn't prevent it from being used 
for political castigation purposes? Or it doesn't mean that like PR and public presentation has no effect on how people perceive things that go on in the world. So yeah, I mean, if somebody says something that's crazy at the rally and it's then used to sort of tarnish other participants, is that guilt by association, ascription of blame, um, a fallacy on a logical level? Yeah, it is. If you reason it out, you would find that it's a fallacy, but still it doesn't mean that's not going to happen or it's not going to have like a political uh, impact. Cynthia McKinney is not who I would necessarily be most worried about there. I don't know. I, haven't, I know who she is, obviously, and I know in general terms what she believes. Um, but I don't know. Um, I, 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 but leaving her aside, I agree that, or like I too have had similar worries in that, you know, like I said before, I mean, there are, th- if I had to pick three politicians who I like am most personally, have the most personal affinity for, um, and also like, you know, know on a personal level, again, I'm not saying that I'm best buddies with all, all of them or anything, but you know, enough personal familiarity to have like, also, in addition to whatever political affinity, also have some degree of a personal affinity. It would be these three <laughs> former members of the of Congress who were speaking, Kucinich, Tulsi, and Ron Paul. Um, and so whether it's fair or not, whether it's logically fallacious or not, the idea, which I think is very unfortunately um, feasible, that they get kind of, you know, smeared just by association, given like the ineptitude and the stupidity of how this was apparently uh, put together. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's an unavoidable uh, worry. And um, it's one that definitely has occurred to me as well. Yeah, and, and look, that's ultimately just my point. Um, also, my, my, my point, and look, you're, everything you said, I absolutely agree with. And I'm not going to desert Jimmy or Ron. I, I don't like that Celsius in, in war is an active uh, an active soldier right now. I don't like that, but whatever. I'm just a blue collar guy, but um, I'm not. It's look, but we both know how the news is, and they they'll they'll clip it. But um, so that's that. So what I'm just getting at is, I wish just like you that they had done this rally, but they had done it so much smarter. Oh, and don't invite looking Jackson Hinkle. I actually agree with him on some stuff. But the dude is selling Z shirts. The dude is praising Putin who locks up protesters. I mean, I guess. Is I think he selling Z shirts? I, I didn't know mean, that. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, what oh, more dude. needs to be said? Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, I don't want to, and thank you for this opportunity. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do appreciate all your reporting. You've, um, you, I think you used to do something called Unheard, right? Like, I think that perfectly sums up why I like you. If I hope that <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. No, that was me. I did, like, uh, like a column for unheard for for a while. So yeah, yeah, that's a it's a good site. I was also on the I was on their podcast um, last year too in London. So yeah, cool. Man. Peace out, bro. All right, thanks, John. Okay, uh, marathon session here, but I'm going to power through at least the remaining three. So let's go to no. No, if you're there, and if you're there, maybe I'll call you yes. No, going once. No, going twice. And no gets there on number three. Okay, no. No, I can't hear you. No, um, you seem to unmute, have unmuted, but I can't hear you.
All right, no, uh, sorry about that. Not sure what the issue is. Uh, if you want to come back to the uh, stage before we wrap up, feel free. Billy. Oh, thanks, Mike, for doing yep. your time and uh, doing this for so long. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we talked once before. I, I'm a bit of a contrarian. I have my Stalin profile. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember um, when we spoke a lot more time. So same thing with this situation. Um, you know, I, I definitely support... Putin and Russia, I think Russia had um, a legal and a moral justification. They were definitely provoked and that, you know, they have a, a legal rationale for what they're doing. So, you know, I blame the West and the United States 100% in the conflict. And um, I'm just wondering what you make of, um, you know, the, the analogy people use. Like, you know, for instance, say the Soviet Union or Russia, um, you know, overthrew the government in Mexico and installed a virulently anti-U.S., anti-English-speaking um, government that repressed English speakers and tried to ethnically cleanse English speakers. You know, out of Mexico, out of the out of the northern border. Um, you know, would if you know if if they wanted to declare autonomy from that government and the U.S. went in to um, you know defend them and keep them from being ethnically cleansed. Uh, you know, there's justification to that. I mean, so, so in that scenario, like how, how do you, um, are there merits to that argument? Do you uh, think not you know, it's, it's such a, it's not just a counterfactual. It's like a multi-layered counterfactual that makes it even far removed from anything that's actually happening in the real world that, you know, so much of this stuff, comes down to specific details of a given situation. I mean, like Russia has a particular history in its position on the earth vis-a-vis Eastern Europe and its former, you know, um, you know, states that were former, formerly constituent republics of the Soviet Union and even historical ties and kind of overlapping lineages that go well beyond that and back in history. So I just don't know if it's really that um, straightforwardly sort of viable to just kind of plop that analogy situation. Uh, I mean, like kind of like extricate what happened or what you're, you know, kind of suggesting happened. And I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with you, but like taking whatever happened in 2014 in Ukraine and then like plopping that onto Mexico city and saying, okay, now what would you say if that were happening? I don't know. I think it's, it's sort of a, um, it's like an analytical stretch that I feel is kind of too far removed from anything that is like uh, tangible and real that I can really say one way or another. I don't say the counterfactuals or those sorts of like analogies are necessarily always useless. I think, you know, sometimes they're, they can be useful in the sense of like, okay, so if, uh, you know, China was sending, uh, if, if China was doing what the U S has done in East Asia or something like, or, you know, let's say, if China established the same sort of base constellation of bases that the U.S. just reestablished in the Philippines, but did it in like Newfoundland, what would you say? I mean, I actually do think that's more of a valid potential analogy because it's like more kind of conceptually straightforward, whereas like a coup type situation, at least akin to what happened in 2014 in, in Ukraine, it's so much more multi sort of variate or it's uh, 
has so much different, so many facets to it that I kind of, I don't know, I sort of bristle at the, just the ease with which people think they can transport the circumstances of it into Mexico City. Um, at, the same, at the same time, you know, I don't know, for my own purposes, I've never been, like, I don't, I've never sought to proactively justify any act of aggressive warfare by the United States. Um, and I tend to doubt, whatever the circumstances are, and of course they're unknowable here because it's a counterfactual or a hypothetical, I tend to doubt that I'd be like this vociferous supporter of the, the, the unassailable moral defensibility of that hypothetical action on the U.S.'s part, but hard to say. Um, but like, so anyway, like the point being, I'm not inclined really to make these affirmatively pro-war arguments on the U.S.'s behalf. And, you know, so at least for my own purposes, I don't think the, the analogy really causes me to question how I would be evaluating the situation from like my own sort of like baseline assumptions about what is sort of morally justifiable in terms of offensive military action or not. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if you, if the, if the roles were reversed, you know, that's all. If the roles were reversed, he was on the other foot. Um, it's just so freaking obvious. Well, if the roles were reversed, the United States would have a conniption fit, orders of magnitude probably more severe than lots of what Russia slash even if you want to throw in China has done. I mean, look at how people lost their freaking minds over a so-called spy balloon within the past couple of weeks. I mean, if it, imagine if there were anything kind of more severe or if there was like actual warfare involved or like you could claim that, I don't know, some uh, small town USA was under threat from shelling or something. I mean, I... Everything that I know about U.S. political culture and the the media establishment and the uh, military industrial apparatus and so forth makes me pretty confident that they would go. You know, if the roles were reversed, just as like a general principle, the United States would probably go more, much more berserk yeah. than uh, most of the, what we're accustomed to seeing in other countries. As as berserk as they may go, uh, <laughs> my rule of thumb would probably be that like the United States would surpass that level of berserkness by like a comfortable margin. Yeah. And that's, that's a safe, safe bet. Um, let me, let me just say, um, you know, I think that it's, it's the U S is really, you know, pushing all this and it's, and it's because they're, you know, they're, they're Can I interrupt you really real quick? I'm just, just for my own curiosity. Do you call, would you call yourself? So you're saying, you know, you're supportive of Russia, which is, again, I think it's a coherent position. I was trying to explain yeah. this to that guy Jackson earlier. Do you do what he does in trying to couch your position as somehow anti-war, or are you content to just say, "Look, I feel the war is just," and I'm making a pro-war argument, and I'm not trying to make any bones about that. Um, that's just the argument that I'm making. Or do you do this sort of like nomenclatural kind of jujitsu thing? <laughs> so, so yeah, I think I think being pro-war, anti-war, that's that's liberal liberal ignorance. You know, I think, um, you know, political theory and understanding that there's a, a class war going on, class war, you know, translates into those, you know, imperialism, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. So so anti-imperialism. So, um, I mean, I'm an anti-imperialist. It's it's obvious that the, the Western imperialism. 
uh, empire is in decline. And that's why they were doing what they were doing in Ukraine to provoke this. They were looking for an excuse to uh, launch these uh, economic sanctions against Russia. They were looking for an excuse to destroy the pipelines connecting Europe and Russia. So this is imperialism looking for an excuse to weaken Russia so they don't have to take on Russia and China together. So it's 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 really, really obvious what's, what's going on and, and what this is about. And so I support Russia. I support the anti-imperialist bloc. In their in their resistance to imperialist aggression, because the empire knows that if you know they can't compete with Russia and China um, on a peaceful level, they understand that if 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 we're just allowed to continue with the, the status quo, continue with the current rules, the the you know China is going to surpass us, um, Russia and Europe would be closer, and the U.S. would be ass out, and dollar global hegemony would would decline. It's going to decline anyway. So the, so the U.S. is strategizing how can we maintain our unipolar position going into the rest of the 21st century, and they're going to lose. Russia and China are going to are going to win. Like it's inevitable. But the United States can't help it. They're going to they're going to you know um, precipitate violence, and they're going to try and use their military to contain China, which is just a euphemism for destroy China, and they're going to try and destroy Russia, but but they miscalculated. Okay, I mean, well, it's I mean, obvious. okay, so let, let me stop you there, because, um, you know, I don't agree that it's somehow intrinsically liberal to use as a frame of reference pro-war versus anti-war in the case of particular wars. I mean, if you are supporting a particular war effort on what you call anti-imperialistic grounds, then okay, so be it. That's a pro-war argument that you're making. So, but I, I get it if you don't want to get it's dragged into that it's sort just of war. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Perfect. Just war. Got it. That's exactly what I was trying to see if you sort of characterized your position as. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of the, um, I don't know, you threw a lot out there, but in terms of like, uh, I guess one thing I'll just comment on quickly is the inevitability of China and Russia prevailing. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I think uh, it's a bit. Arrogant. I'm not saying like you're arrogant as like a personality trait or anything. I think, but right. I think there's like intellectual arrogance in assuming that anything as sweeping in scope as like which block of states is going to attain superiority, anything that there's anything inevitable about that. Um, no, I don't. I don't agree that it's inevitable. I don't. I don't see much evidence to suppose that it's inevitable. I mean, even just within the past couple of years, China's um, China's uh, economic growth has been severely. Uh, severely diminished for, you know, COVID reasons and other reasons, what have you. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, so, it's I mean, that's, not, that's planet, not something that you would have necessarily foreseen five, five years yeah. before. So, I mean, I, I, I'm wary about declaring anything of okay. that um, grandiose sort of, uh, again, scope, uh, just somehow kind of so obviously inevitable. And not, um, not because like, I particularly support yeah. or oppose the U.S. retaining its hegemonic right. status or anything. I just don't think it's necessarily a foregone conclusion one way or another that it'll, it'll, it'll lose it. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, and I make that claim, I mean, really because Russia is as, as disconnected from the global economy as, as can be. And, and, you know, the sanctions aren't hurting them. And also China. So say there's... You know, any 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 kind of um, any kind of scenario you can think of, even a nuclear exchange, um, China is going to be able to build back better, faster, and and so there's just there's just no way. So it's really up to the West. It's up to the wow. West how 
I mean, who the hell, how, they who the hell knows what would happen in the hard way or they of a nuclear the exchange? Way. I mean, we have one, we have a sample size of one, or I guess two, if you want to be a bit pedantic about it, in terms of like what happened in the aftermath of an actual nuclear exchange and, you know, warfare scenarios. So I don't know if that's, a, that's anywhere near this, enough to extrapolate from with any degree of certitude as to like how China would comport itself in the aftermath. But anyway. Um, they just did it. Like 70 years ago, I mean, they were a devastated country. And, and, sure. and now they're, you know, leading the world in so many fields. So, so you, you take everything, everybody back to zero again. China's going to be right back way better than the U.S. I mean, that's it's... Impossible to say, but I'll be uh, yeah. I'll be watching with great interest, as I'm sure you will be as well, Billy. Okay, thanks. I'm going to uh, yeah, move on. I do uh, want to at least be a little sane here and uh, try to wrap up with the next two people. So, uh, July, if you're there, please unmute. July, how about August or September? Are you there? May or June? Are you there? Okay, uh, July, you're not unmuting, so. I invite you to rejoin the queue if you'd like. And if you're still there, no, I see you're back. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. All right. Well, appreciate you going these many hours. Uh, you know, that you don't have to do that. So that's showing something. Yeah, and, you know, there were more people than usual who wanted to uh, comment on this particular call-in. I got a lot of people, you know, uh, agitating for me to do a call-in and address this topic. So I feel like, you know, I don't know, I'm... Uh, I'm in a privileged okay, position where, like, I get, I have uh, like, gonna, some sort of livelihood okay, on, like, I'm going to give, go ahead. Say three pretty strong rationales, I would say, for which the Hinkle. No, you, andro- you dropped out again, unfortunately. Just okay, now. can you hear me now? Yep. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yes. So I would say I'll give about three fairly strong defenses of why this particular rally could be called anti-war despite your protestations. Okay. Uh, the first is simply it's against U.S. involvement in this war, therefore it's anti-war. That's it. The second would be um, if the U.S. stops funding and arming the Ukraine, the war ends. So it's a rally to get in order to precipitate a sequence of events that will lead to the end of the war, hence it's anti-war. Uh, the third is, has a bit more uh, <clears throat> baggage attached to it. But if someone legitimately believes, which I think they have a good cause well, let, to let, believe. Let me, suge- let me address that- these one by one, and I'll let you do the next two, but just so I don't forget. All right. All right? So the, on number all one, right. I don't think it's really um, reasonable to say that that's it, in that the only thing that needs to be taken into account when – uh, attempting to ascertain whether the war, whether the rally could be rightly described as an anti-war rally, is that it's against U.S. involvement, and that's it, and that makes it some sort of obviously anti-war um, enterprise. Because I mean, let's just use, let's just try to suss that out, right? I mean, if you're of, if your position, and you're, if, if you are of the view that and you're a participant featured in the rally, and like you re- reflect something about the for, f- f- kind of fundamental organizational premise of the rally, and your avowed stated position and the position that you're going to express at the rally itself is, again, and this, this is like a, a admittedly hypothetical, but I'm just trying to illustrate like you know the principle here. Your position is that you're you want you demand that U.S. 
aid or support or whatever be halted immediately, but you're also actively in favor of Russia ramping up the violence of its particular, of its military effort in Ukraine. So you actually, I'm not saying anybody else necessarily has this view, but let's just say someone has this view, right? You're in favor of Russia becoming even more violent and aggressive and wreaking even more death and destruction in Ukraine. That's actually what you want because you maybe support that for its own sake because you're like a psychopath or you think that that's necessary to achieve the military objectives, whatever. That, that's what you want. And that like, so again, just to put a, a finer point on it, you're actively in favor simultaneously of the U.S. support being rescinded and warfare being dramatically intensified in Ukraine in such that there will be a more a greater amount of death and destruction. If that's your position, no, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's tenable to say that the evaluation stops at you saying that you're against U.S. involvement because you know there could be additional aspects to your position that bear directly on whether you're actually so-called anti-war, such as in that scenario that I just laid out. I mean, that's a fairly extreme, you know, confluence of circumstances. I mean, I'll grant you the point, but I'll also say that even in that first, that was, you know, the, the weakest, the, uh, okay. uh, the weakest consideration, even the first does provide a context that can be called anti-war. Now, albeit right, that can be uh, severely mitigated, uh, although going into such lengths as saying, well, what if somebody's a psychopath and he wants to, you know, the U.S. to end its participation so that Russia can nuke the U.S.? I mean, OK, fair enough. Um, but well, the I, mean, sec- I don't think it's that implausible. We shouldn't get too hung up on this, but I don't think it's that implausible, given the stated views of somebody like a Hinkle or a Ritter, that they are actively... In support of the, the Russia being able to ha- have a freer reign in its waging of the war effort to achieve its military goals. So forget the psychopath possibility, right? I mean, if you're I mean, some, one of those Ritter, guys and, you, and, you're, and you're wanting an escalation in Russia's ability to wage its warfare, which with whatever attendant civilian suffering that produces, then, well, no, I don't, I don't think if that's what, you, that's what you're in favor of, I don't think it's necessarily correct to say, oh, let's just leave it at your opposition to the aid. If there is another prong of your position that bears directly on whether it can be reasonable to say that you're, quote, anti-war in any meaningful respect, especially if you want the war to actually grow in intensity and produce greater, you know, damage to Ritter has never Ritter has never claimed anything close to that. Even Ritter, that this gets directly to my second point. If the United States withdraws, the war ends within days. Therefore, uh, being in favor of the United States withdrawal leads to a sequence of events that assures that the war ends quickly. Ergo, it is anti-war. So I don't know how you're so certain that the war ends in days. I mean. Weeks, I think I think it, it dra- well even weeks. I mean, it drastically changes obviously the contours of the war. But as I asked somebody else before who made a similar point, how do you know that it, it wouldn't just be another phase of the war that breaks out where there's now? I mean, you have a hyper radicalized faction of Ukraine society, including you know more and more militarized, nationalistic slash even neo fascistic or whatever elements such as say Azov, who are hell-bent on mounting uh, insurgent warfare in the event that, you know, maybe let's say Russia does actually succeed in toppling the current government in, in, in Kiev. 
Um, the, is the, has the war ended or has it just transitioned to another phase of warfare that could maybe in certain respects be even more um, severe? I mean, who's to say? I mean, I, I guess unlike you, and I'm not trying to single you out here, it's just like unlike you, I'm not, given the unpredictability that's sort of inherent to war, I'm not confident in making any sort of like prognostications with total certitude of uh, how this scenario would supposedly unfold. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and neither does Scott Ritter and neither does anybody else who seems to think that they can like predict the future, which I think is always a, uh, a fool's errand. Um, it's uh, It is Scott Ritter's position. It is his prediction that it is the United, and I think it's more than reasonable that it's the United States involvement that is prolonging the war, at least the war, you know, continuing in the scale in which it is continuing and the scale of the slaughter that is going on, which Ritter in his statements. I I agree that that's a key decisive. So, yeah. So, and Ritter, even Ritter constantly decries and bemoans the, the suffering that is going on. And he constantly claims that it's the United States and it's continue and NATO and their continual uh, funding of the Ukraine and the proxy war that is going on in the Ukraine that is exacerbating that suffering. So I think that provides a much more valid context for, now you can disagree with the premise, but disagreeing with the premise is not the same as being a contradiction in reasoning. So there is no contradiction if you say the United States involvement is prolonging and make in getting the United States out is therefore substantively an anti-war position with no contradiction. Okay. Um, well, I don't disagree at all with the premise and think, I actually think it's an unimpeachable pre- premise in that it's the absolute inescapable conclusion that you'd have to draw if you examine the nature of U.S. policy over the past year in Ukraine. Clearly, the objective has been to expand and prolong the warfare rather than bringing about a cessation of the warfare. That's just straightforwardly self-evident. And I know I don't have to make that, I don't have to justify that claim in much further detail to you. So, but then accepting that premise that you're, you know, attributing to Ritter and I have no reason to to doubt you. uh, I don't think it at all, therefore, justifies the leap that that, that then made into this prescriptive recommendation as to why it is it would be warranted to support this course of action on on anti-war grounds because you don't know i don't know you don't know or any nor does anybody know that that would actually you know somehow overnight eliminate the violence and destruction for one thing this is just one aspect of why i think the inserted the uncertainty kind of renders untenable this position I mean, it's not as it's not as though if all U.S. support Hello. for Ukraine were cut off tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I'm here. Yes. Yeah, it's not as though if all U.S. support for Ukraine was cut off tomorrow, that all of its all of the material in Ukraine's possession would suddenly evaporate, right? So it's still going to be able to. So, like the the the, the uh, true believers, of which there seem to be many in Ukraine at this point, including the more radicalized, hardcore ideological factions such as Azov and whatever. It's not as though they're going to be like all of a sudden disarmed. I mean, the U.S. has done the most comprehensively far-reaching arms funneling campaign in probably at least mod- at the very least modern history for the past year. 
Um, so that's the status quo right now. So this idea that like all of a sudden, like all warfare will cease the instant that the U.S. makes the, you know, that Biden like issues the executive order, like ceasing all further provision of any kind of support. Um, I, I don't think it's really, it's that, that's, that's not, that, that's not uh, obviously and straightforwardly the thing that is most likely to happen, at least as I can conceive it. And even if it is a one possible outcome, it's unknowable. And it's also possible that there could be some unforeseen escalation in the warfare beyond what we're seeing now on account of that action. Now, that's not, again, I'm not denying the premise. The premise is totally, I think, unable to be disputed at this point. I'm contesting if the premise can then be broadened out into this prescriptive sort of paradigm where you're saying, you know, somehow with like this received truth that you've gotten down, that, that the heavens have imparted on you, you know that this will be somehow a you know, comprehensively anti-war solution. You don't know that. I mean, it could be the opposite. Um, and, and if I'm, if, if, please yeah, forgive yeah. I just, I don't have that much time. And yeah, sorry, I, yeah. I, I'm sure you want to go to sleep at some point too. So, uh, I mean, I do understand that, but I will say that. I got up at 6 p.m. Have... last night because of my uh, weird time zone adjustment. So I'm actually powering through the rest of the day in my current state. So we'll see how it goes. All right. Fair, fair enough. But I mean, I will say that. Apart from argument from the unknown aren't unknown, it presents a valid theory of a case whereby you could validly and with increasing strength, you know, justify the position according to that theory of the case as being anti-war. I I, I don't think so. Uh, I really don't because, you know, if the demand is achieved and USAID is rescinded, why would we think that that would result in like Zelensky climbing on like the balcony of this presidential palace in Kiev and waving a red, a white flag. Um, you could easily see factions of the um, uh, military apparatus in Ukraine becoming even more radical in their determination to wage different kinds of warfare. I mean, I don't see why if the U S cut off aid tomorrow that you, that, Russia would then all of a sudden stop bombing electrical infrastructure in Ukraine. I mean, if, if their military objective is to like subjugate Ukraine in, in the sense of like bringing about the conditions whereby it can effectuate the toppling of the government, the idea that that is going to somehow all of a sudden magically happen nonviolently, I think is absurd. I mean, maybe that could have happened in April, March or April of last year if there hadn't been the blockage of the negotiations, which we've been over or whatever. Um, but especially now with the uh, year's worth of intense radicalization of war fervor on both sides, the idea that like somehow that ultimate resolution will be achieved militarily by Russia with no further like no, intensification no further. of violence, I think is, I don't know why people would be confident in assuming that at all. I mean, not no further, but far faster and with less death. It's, I think it's reasonable. But nonetheless, there's a third case and a fourth now that I think about it. Uh, the third being, according to the theory of the case that NATO and the United States are the principal aggressors, your, to be anti-war is to simply say to the aggressors, quit aggressing, which is perfectly reasonable. Well, 
I don't know that I would just state flat. I would agree with the flat statement that the U.S. and NATO are the, quote, principal aggressors. I do think that, as we discussed earlier, or as I discussed with Gator, or I forget who it was, I think it was Gator, or maybe it was with Andrew, actually. It was with Andrew. If we're in agreement, which, you know, Andrew eventually was with me, that on February 24th of last year, the doctrine of preemptive war was invoked by Putin, who then proceeded to commence a large-scale invasion or, you know, military assault on, on Ukraine. The idea that in doing so, he was not, in taking that action, like the principal aggressor in initiating that particular action, I don't know. I don't, I don't find that to be straightforwardly true at all. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily obviate the complicity of the United States in a whole variety of other respects that we don't need to really litigate here. I'm just not really willing to just make that sort of um, axiomatic statement that the U.S. and NATO are, like the, in every conceivable respect, the principal aggressors. I mean, if, if Russia is, is, if like somebody is giving an order within the Russian military to push a button to drop a bomb, as happened within the past 24 hours or so, on uh, the electric grid in Lviv, I mean, I think whoever dropped that bomb and gave that order was the principal aggressor in t- carrying out that action. doesn't mean that the U.S. was not an aggressor in a broader array of different sort of facets pertaining to the conflict, you know, today and stretching back years. But again, it just doesn't lend itself that, to that sort of just sort of reductive statement, at least in my mind. I mean, I'm, I would say to say that the evidence for NATO being by far the more, how do you say, the, I forget what the word is, but the uh, the party that is most belligerent. Yeah, the primary belligerent party. I think is it's it's just I think it's overwhelming that there were um, plans that were laid out to you know cut you know Russia up into several parts and just to, to essentially mine it for resources. There's con- consistent encroachment into territory. You've got people like Victoria Newland. You no, know, I, 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 I know all the history. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm, yeah. So so let's just say that. My, my position is you could, I think, without contradiction, view the West and NATO as the primary aggressor, view Russia as essentially uh, taking a defensive posture and say for the aggressor to get the aggressor to stop aggressing is an anti-war position without contradiction at the very. OK, least. so who let me just ask you this. Who was the principal aggressor in Granted, this is a narrow component of the entire of the wider conflict, but I'm choosing to hone in on it to establish a principle here or to like kind of at least try to elucidate the claim that you're making. Who is the principal aggressor in uh, carrying out a missile strike on Wednesday of this week against the civilian energy infrastructure in Western Ukraine in terms of that? particular event. I know there's a broader context. What I'm asking for the purpose of our uh, argument here, if we're honing in on that particular event, who is the pr- principal aggressor in carrying out that action? Was it the okay. party that actually uh, proactively initiated the action or, or a different party? I mean, you I could lay it out according to Aristotle's four causes, you know, if I mean, of course, the Russian army and Putin would be the proximate cause or the effective efficient cause. I think that would be mm. now, I mean, principal aggressor, we're talking about 
essentially, if somebody's taking, even under just war theory, if somebody is claiming that a, a war like a war is just, then you by extension have to claim that war things, doing war things is just. Unless sure. you're, you know, you can't say this war is just, but look at how bad this is. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, if a war is just, then war things are just. Right. No, if a war is just, then the aggressor party would be just in taking certain aggressive actions in certain respects because the overall war effort is just. But it well, wouldn't, wouldn't make Russia less of the principal aggressor in carrying out the missile strike on the Lviv infrastructure. You just think that it was justified for them to do it. I mean, was that, that is, it may, perhaps, perhaps, I mean, I do know that in April, if the United States does not intervene in April to undo the war talks, there's a good chance that that strike doesn't happen. Well, sure. I mean, we don't know that with absolute certainty. Um, I would love to know more details. And if it is true with absolute certainty, I would love to establish that with evidence. There's sort of, uh, there's certain evidence that the U.S. did intercede to, you know, preempt the continuation of negotiations. I'm well aware of that body of evidence. Um, I've actually tried I mean, to do I mean, some reporting on this myself that I haven't published yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm aware. Um, I mean, but let's be fair. Okay. Talking absolute certainty a little bit more than might be warranted here. I'm, all I'm trying to say is that you could call it an anti-war position without contradiction in certain contexts with respect okay, to but certain at the, at the, at the, Sure, but at the same time, Putin could have had, like, food poisoning on February 24th of last year and then just had a change of heart and not launch the invasion. I mean, so there are all these kind of contingent factors that are always going to kind of be, uh, you know, that you could always sort of substitute out for other potential eventualities. Um, and, you know, we are where we are, right? So when, given that we are where we are and the missile strike was taken against the electrical infrastructure in Western Ukraine, I don't know. I just, it, it, it seems uh, fatuous to me to say that the military force that affirmatively chose to carry out that action is not the principal aggressor in carrying that, out that action. Again, the justifiability of the action is a separate question. If your whole point here was predicated on establishing that the U.S. is in every kind of significant respect the primary aggressor, uh, I think that's undercut by, you know, Russia using its own discretion and taking its own using you know using its own agency to undertake certain military actions that it could also alternatively choose not to undertake. I'm I I would say no actually I'd say that the principal aggressor is a, is referring to the wider you know, uh, context of moral culpability, whereas actions done in the war. It's simply an artifact of a war taking place. The fact that a war, that things, terrible things happen in a war by both sides is, it goes without saying. That's the nature of what a war is. The, the, the issue of who the principal aggressor in a war is has to do with the reasons behind the actions and who's, you know, is the primary agent that drove this war to coming into place in the first place. Does it, so it doesn't strike you as just sort of like intuitively strange that the initiator of a war on the grounds of the doctrine of preemption, assuming that that's like something that we can agree was done, bears like deserves no ascription of culpability in the sense of labeling them an aggressor. Because I would think that, you know, my understanding of the doctrine of preemption when I was 
familiarizing myself with it back during the Bush years, is that even separate and apart from the specific circumstances of the Iraq war, preemptive war is always, by definition, an aggressive action. Now you could say it's a justified action or not. That the party that undertakes that action can't be an aggressor is, I mean, doesn't, I will doesn't really... The, I, will, I will turn to the, the Tracy's uh, doctrine of absolute certainty. Do we know with absolute certainty the intelligence that Putin had? What if Vladimir Putin and the Russian army had intelligence that we're not privy to, that the United States was, in fact, for, for example littering the Ukraine with biochemical laboratories. Or we, what we do know is that Kamala Harris went to the Ukraine in the months before Putin invaded the Ukraine and talked openly about arming Ukraine with nuclear weapons. I don't know. I don't like the idea. Did she? Oh, yes. I missed that one. Send, send me a link to that or something. because I'm, uh, oh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that you're correct. I just don't know. But I, I mean, absolutely. Now, granted, that seem, that does have a familiar ring to Saddam Hussein, who's going to have nuclear weapons. I understand that. But at the same time, I mean, Saddam Hussein is at the other side of the world. Saddam Hussein had inspectors coming in. You know, Ukraine seems to have had biological laboratories. <laughs> Ukraine's, and, you know, when people like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are talking about giving Ukraine's biological weapons, there seems to be, you know, even during the Iraq case, there was talk of the imminence of the threat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, justifying some degree of preemption. Even in preemption, there is a matter of imminence and degree and history. I mean, there was, you know, no real history behind Saddam Hussein, you know, launching nuke attacks against the United States. I mean, there's a manifest history of encroachment on the other side. But that gets me to the fourth, and I think I'll be... Well, I don't know. I mean, there was, I think, a plausible allegation that Saddam Hussein or factions within his sort of governing cadre actually did attempt to uh, organize some sort of assassination plot against George H.W. Bush. Um, so, I mean, you could then make oh, some sort of defensive that. argument on that ground. I'm not saying that the, that the defensive argument would be valid, right? But, like, I mean, you could always kind of pick stuff, pick out stuff that might kind of, like, uh, militate in favor of the preemption being justified. I, I'm not actually finding, and I would be genuinely, I genuinely want to find it if it did happen. I can't find Kamala Harris saying that she, uh, the U.S. would provide Ukraine with nuclear weapons ahead of the invasion last year. So if you could send me something that substantially, I'll, I'd appreciate I it. Shall, I Just email to me or DM me or whatever. Okay, but on the, on the point of, like, yeah, absolute certainty, not knowing what intelligence Putin may or may not have had, first of all, if he had that intelligence, you'd think at this point maybe he would have provided it because it would go a long way in maybe, you know, uh, generating public acceptance of the rationale for the preemptive invasion. I mean, I mean that's a fair point. And I'll get to the, the last one, my last one, a little bit quickly in that there's a certain cultural context in which the, the term anti-war in the United States is used in that the United States has a sort of a permanent war party, a permanent war machine that is always seeking to escalate, seeking to, um, seeking to, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm framing the word again, but um, worsen to inflame war, seeking to, you know, perpetuate war all over the globe on various pretexts all the time. 
And to be sort of against that national security state blob, to be, you know, on the other side of that is also a valid sort of, at least in the cultural, cultural context in which this is taking place, you could call that anti-war. Can you hear me or no? No? All right. Well, it was nice talking to you. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Anyway, thank you again. Bye-bye.